Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, please. And it starts, if we may, in verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? Paul's going to lay his credentials on the line here. And Paul was probably the most maligned apostle that ever existed. On the one hand, he was the greatest apostle. He wrote 13, and if you give him Hebrews, 14 epistles. And yet he was slandered. He was treated with absolute contempt by the religious crowd. The world in general abhorred him. And yet he was greatly beloved by the Corinthians. And he starts by saying, am I not an apostle? An apostle is someone who was sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are no apostles today. And if you come across someone who says they are an apostle or a prophet in the sense of being able to foretell the future, then you know you are dealing with somebody who is being disingenuous. He doesn't say, am I not free in the sense of free from the blood of all men? We find from, I think it's Acts 18, how he witnessed to the Jews in a corporate sense and the Jews in a corporate sense rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm no longer responsible uh, for you. I'm now free from all of your blood. And he turns from the Jews and goes to the Gentiles. And he goes on to say, have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? And yet, if you were to speak to a Muslim, and I've spoken to many Muslims over the years, they will say that Paul was a liar. They will tell you that Paul never saw the risen Christ. And yet, we know from 1 Corinthians 15 how he did see the risen Christ. Not straight away, of course. He made him on the road to Damascus from Acts chapter 9. But he's having to constantly reaffirm his credentials as being an apostle who wasn't chosen by the other apostles. If you go back to the uh, the book of Acts, you find uh, the apostles laying or casting lots in order to decide who was going to replace Judas Iscariot. Those apostles didn't have any say in Paul's ministry. He was chosen completely outside of their circle, outside of their remit. He was chosen directly via the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, are not ye my work in the Lord? Are you not my fruit in the Lord? I preached to you. I traveled to Corinth. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't John. It wasn't Barnabas. It was Paul. And therefore he's saying that I really am your spiritual father. In other words, your salvation, your growth as Christians is down to my laboring among you. That's a profound statement to make. Look at verse two. If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. That's an amazing statement. He would also write to the Galatians and the Ephesians. And like I say, 13 and if you give him 14 epistles, will be penned to Christians all over the Roman Empire. And it's like he has to continually reaffirm his credentials because he was slandered. And you'll see that from, I think it's 2 Corinthians. And he was also treated very badly from Acts 14 going into Acts 15. Hence why he goes up to Jerusalem to try and issue or try and get to the bottom of how Jew and Gentile are going to be saved. He knew, of course, he was given the mystery gospel, but he wasn't given it straight away. It was given to him over a period of time. And that's why he says in verse two, one more time. And if I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. Because he was sent to the Gentiles, not the Jews. And yet he witnessed to the Jews along his many paths to glory. But he says that ultimately that doubtless I am to you or ultimately I am to you. For you are the seal of mine apostleship in the Lord. That goes back to what I said also from last time, how... Paul, a spiritual father, never once called Father Paul, was a true father in the sense of being a godly man dispatched to the Gentiles and also to the Jews to witness to them. And it does uh, interest me in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ chose 12 men to follow him for three and a half years, plus the 70, and Barnabas was one of the 70, along with Dr. Luke, I believe. And yet not one of those men could have done a fraction 
of what the Apostle Paul did. Look at verse 3, please. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? You see, one of the things that Paul was probably accused of was living off Christians, uh, being in it for the money, as we say today. A lot of televangelists, a lot of so-called Christian leaders are pretty much doing what they do for money. And he anticipated that. And that's why he's going to deal with paid ministry as we go through this uh, this chapter. But he says, have we not power? Have we not authority to eat and to drink? In other words, have we not the ability to allow you to look after us? You see, I think Peter lived quite comfortably. I think John lived quite comfortably. I think all of the Jewish apostles lived quite comfortably. They weren't wealthy in the sense of what you find in most churches today. But Paul lived hand to mouth. And he says, we have the authority, we have the power to eat and to drink. But almost seeing what's going to come, if he took that sort of support from uh, the Corinthians and the Galatians and the Ephesians, he sidesteps it. And he says in the book of Acts how he was a tent maker. And by this stage, Paul is probably in his 60s, maybe late 60s. He's not a young man. His eyesight is failing him. And yet, if anybody deserved to be supported financially from the Christian community, it was Paul. And yet Paul says, no, I won't take your gifts. I'm going to work with my own hands, along with, I think it's uh, another godly couple from the book of Acts, whose name escapes me. And he works with this couple so he can almost avoid being slandered because he knew it was coming, as I say. And when you are a faithful Bible-believing Christian, people will watch you, people will try and find fault in you. And if you can avoid it, it's best to raise the bar to have such a high level of integrity that it's almost impossible to criticize you. And he goes and say in verse five, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles and as a brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Don't we have power or authority to marry a sister, a believing Bible-believing sister to become a wife, of course, as well as other apostles. Peter was married. John, we're not sure. But what really interests me from verse 9 is this term, and as the brethren of the Lord. Probably Jude and James, the Lord's half-brothers. And we know that Cephas, being Peter, was married. But this is interesting to me because it shows me that Mary did have other children. And we know that from Mark 6. And these other children, the brethren, the brothers here, were married. Which means that Mary was probably a grandmother. Nana Mary, how about that? Next time you speak to a Catholic, take him here to 9, 5, verse 6. Or I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? And Barnabas is now in, in, introduced into this piece of scripture. Barnabas, he fell out with Paul back in Acts. They were arguing over John Mark. And yet Barnabas, as I say, was one of the 70. Barnabas was a great father figure in the book of Acts. And he now says, or I only and Barnabas, have not we power, authority again, to forbear, to restrain work? In other words, we don't have to work. If we wanted to, we could sit back and give ourselves to prayer and ministry, which you find in Acts chapter 6. But no, we're going to live the gospel. We're going to be living epistles. We're going to be full-time evangelists and missionaries. And yet, at the same time, we're not going to take gifts from the brethren. We can do so if we choose to. And this comes down to one's discretion now. If you want to be a full-time missionary or evangelist, you have the right to be supported financially. But what you can't get from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I believe, is the one man pastor. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Look at verse 7, please. Who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? That's a good point. Who goes to a warfare at any time of his own charge? In other words, you won't find any British, American or Canadian general literally paying for his own warfare. The state will fund that, of course. 
And he goes on to say, who plants a vineyard and eats not of the fruit thereof? Again, if you're a farmer, you are going to be supported. You're going to live off the ground. That's what you do. Or who feedeth the flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? You would think you wouldn't have to make this case to the Corinthians. And yet he anticipates their criticism of him. Not so much the Corinthians, although there may have been some sniping Corinthians. He's obviously anticipating those outside of Corinth. Perhaps the Judaizers we find in Acts 15. And James at times would fall. One time he would be preaching faith alone. Other times he would be preaching abstaining from things that would be problematic to the Jews. So Paul, as always, is one step ahead of these people. And he goes on to say in verse 8, Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law, the same also. Of course, go back to the Old Testament. If you want to use an analogy of a priest back in the Old Testament, the chances are he was supported with gifts. The chances are he was uh, taken care of by the Jewish community. And yet... The taxes back in the Old Testament were given to upkeep the temple. So this is a fine line I will grant between a pastor on the one hand and an evangelist on the other. But he's going to build on this from verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Of course. 10. Or saith it altogether for our sakes. For our sakes no doubt this is written, that he that ploweth should plough in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. What's interesting here is what he says here. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. Quoting Deuteronomy 22, written 1500 years BC, before Christ, of course. And he says, was it written for our sakes? In fact, he says, no doubt it was written for our sakes. So Paul, writing around 60 AD, is quoting Deuteronomy 22. And he's saying that was written for our sakes. That's a profound statement. And that's why Paul was an apostle. Paul had the authority to write this. Paul had the authority to quote the Old Testament. And many times when he would quote the Old Testament, it wasn't word for word. When the Lord Jesus Christ would quote the Old Testament, it wasn't always word for word. People say, why would they do that? Because Christ is God. He's the author of the scriptures. He can do what he wants with it. And the apostles were commissioned. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. And also from the Gospels, the Lord told us how he, the Holy Spirit, would guide them, the apostles, into all truth. So when Paul says, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written, he really means it. That he that ploweth should plough in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. He could have been supported with gifts, as I say, had he wanted to. But Paul, always the loving spiritual father, always the humble apostle to the Gentiles, says, no, we're not going to go down that road, because if we do go down that road... Some people are going to criticise us. And I'll say it one more time. I think Peter, after the Lord was resurrected, was a full-time apostle and evangelist. And I don't think Paul was a pastor. I don't think Peter was a pastor. I don't think John was a pastor. They were evangelists. They were apostles. And like I say, an apostle is somebody who was sent. So you could be very careful with these verses when you read them because most people will read 1 Corinthians 9 and say, there you are, you see, Pastor A is entitled to be supported with gifts or a full-time salary or pastor B is entitled to be supported with gifts or full-time salary. Not necessarily. An evangelist, yes, if he chooses it. But most evangelists or some evangelists are either in part-time employment, full-time employment, or they are able to support themselves. But the point is if they wanted to be supported with financial support, they are entitled to. And I'll say this also, that tithing is not applicable for the new covenant either. If you want to give money to a minister or a missionary or a ministry, that's up to you. That's your prerogative, but it's not mandatory whatsoever. Let's move on, please. Verse 11. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, 
Is it a great thing that we shall reap your carnal things? This church were a mess. Let's be quite honest. This church was a mess. But they were a saved group of people. They were arguing. They were bickering over all sorts of insignificant things. And he's saying, you know, we've given you so much. We've seen you grow from nothing. We've witnessed to you. We've pretty much given you the gospel. You've become Christians overnight. And yet, are we going to reap your carnal things? We're going to be part of your backbiting. We're going to be part of your indifference, your pastor worship. You know, I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow uh, Apollos and perhaps Barnabas or sign into the mix here. He's not interested in this. This is why denominationalism is a problem. Yes, there are many churches around the world. And that's why I told you from the beginning of this epistle how you write to the church singular at Corinth. But the church singular is simply a term of the body of Christ. There were many house churches in Corinth in the first century, many house churches. And that's why we have great liberty in the Lord. You know, if you're born again, if you're a saved man, if you're a saved woman, you have great liberty in the Lord and you are in the body of Christ. You may be in a physical local assembly or not in a physical local assembly. That doesn't matter. The body of Christ is a living organism. The local church is something completely different. And also most, most local churches are you know, apostates. They don't offer anything substantial. They are simply there to glorify man. I was sent an email just yesterday by a brother in London who found a ministry or found a church online. He wanted me to look at it. And I went on this website, took a quick look. And it's all insulated. It's the pastor preaching to the congregation. And it's all about the church. It's all about the pastor. It's all about the congregation. There's no real zeal or focus on witnessing to people in their community. And I've spoken to people so many times over the years that, you know, say they go to this church or that church, but they're not interested in evangelizing. And I'll get to that a little later. But let's move on, please. Verse 12. If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Could there be a power struggle in Corinth around this time? Is it possible that some men were upsurping their authority, or perhaps some women? Maybe there were some feminists in this church too that were trying to take the reins of authority. But he says, no, you know, we are over you in the sense of being your spiritual fathers, power over you, authority. Nevertheless, we have not to use this power or authority or this right, but suffer all things, put up with all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. He's such a mindful man, Paul. And that's why I call him the greatest man that ever lived, because he really understood man. He understood the Jews. He understood the law. And he knew the Lord God in a personal way. He went to the third heaven, of course. And it's kind of sad in a sense that he has to relay his credentials. But he knows what's going to come. He knows the Jews hated him. The Gnostics hated him. And like I say, the Muslims today are very much against him. And the Jews to this present day, if they are religious Jews or they follow the Tanakh, they attack Paul. Just go into your local library. Look up any book in your local library about the Apostle Paul. Nine times out of ten, it's a critical book to critique the Apostle Paul. And yet, if you take Paul out of the equation, there's no explicit uh, reference to the rapture. Yes, it's found in John 14, but it's further expounded in the Pauline epistles. There's no explicit reference to the Antichrist or the false prophet. And yes, you'll find it in Revelation, but that comes much later. The second coming laid out clearly in distinction to the rapture, Pauline epistles, 13 epistles. And if you want to give them Hebrews 14, you take Paul out of the equation, you know, you're going to struggle to find some of the clearest teachings, the gospel of the grace of God, which was given to the Apostle Paul. Like I say, he could have been supported. He could have allowed the Corinthians, he could have allowed the Ephesians, he could have allowed the Galatians to look after him. Maybe they did when he got older, maybe when his eyesight started to, to leave him, maybe when he was really going through it, he said, okay then, please help me here or please help me there. But 
From what I can see from scripture, for the most part, he was a full-time tent maker slash evangelist and, of course, an apostle. And he really does raise the bar. Look at 13, please. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Goes back to the Old Testament, the high priest, Aaron or Caiaphas in the days of the Lord. No doubt they were full-time priests. And we know that Caiaphas was a very wealthy individual. And I think he owned probably much of Jerusalem. But again, he's drawing the analogy that those that preach or live from the temple are entitled to be supported with the offerings of the temple. And yes, it's a fine line. I will say that. It goes back to one's liberty in the Lord, which we spoke about last time. It's a very fine line as to where you allow yourself to do A, B or C, or where you abstain from doing A, B and C in order to uh, not allow a weak brother or sister to stumble. And I think, going back to verse 1 and verse 2, that Paul's really speaking in the sense of an apostle who has been chosen to be to be a preacher, to go out full-time into the Lord's ministry. But again, I'll leave that issue you know, on the side for now. I don't want to get to spend too much time trying to distinguish the difference between a pastor and an evangelist. Look at 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained, that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And most people say, this is in reference to being a pastor. You know, I can be supported, or a priest, although a priest normally gets a stipend, whereas a pastor or a vicar in the Church of England gets a salary from the states. And he says, well, you know, the Lord has ordained those that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But I would say one more time, probably in reference to an evangelist, one who preaches the gospel, proclaims the gospel. If you go to a local church, the chances of the pastor is not necessarily preaching the gospel, he may be like a motivational speaker. He may be like uh, your special, you know, just to beef you up, tickle your ears perhaps. But those that actually preach the gospel from Genesis to Revelation are far and few between. Look at 15, please. But I have used none of these things. Neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. One more time. But I have used none of these things. The right to be paid the right to take a salary. Neither have I written these things. No Pauline epistle exists where Paul says, I want A, B and C by the end of the week. That it should be so done unto me. He could have done it. He could have written it in scripture. He was an apostle, but no. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. That's profound. And I say this, that if you're a pastor and you are on a full-time salary, what does this first mean to you? And if you are an evangelist, what does this first mean to you? And I've known evangelists who are in full-time employment, secular employment, who do their work on the side. And I know full-time evangelists who are paid via their church or ministry or what have you, who don't work secular jobs. So this goes both ways. And of course, it's not a salvation issue, but it can affect your testimony, I think, but he knows what's going to come. He knows that people are going to say, that man, Paul, you know, he's in it for the money. He's in it for this. You know, he's in it for that, which is complete foolishness, of course. And the attacks, you know, the attackers were out to get him. Those that hated him were out to get him. And that's why the Lord said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. And Paul was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. But like I say, these verses, if you take the time to read them carefully, on the surface anyway, they do appear to give the green light to a pastor receiving a salary. But that's problematic because people then turn around and say, well, should he be doing it doing it for the money? You know, filthy lucre, is he only in it for the money? And I've seen churches where there's one pastor who's paid a salary and there's four elders who are sometimes retired, sometimes still in 
sector employments, and those four elders are more than capable of teaching the Bible, and I've seen it with my own eyes. And yet, for some reason, those churches want a full-time paid pastor, and I've questioned it, trying to understand it, and to date, I've not had a clear answer as to how that would be or why that would be. And yes, every church is autonomous. We know that as well. Every church is autonomous. Every ministry is autonomous. That's the blessing that God has given those of us which are born again. And yet I can't help thinking that Paul is walking a fine line here because there would have been times where he would have suffered, he would have struggled. In fact, we found, didn't we, back in chapter four, I think he says, how they were naked, buffeted, no certain dwelling place, you know, really going through it, living hand to mouth. And yet Paul, at that point in his life, said, no, I don't want your money, put it away. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to do the work of a tent maker for as long as I can. But today, most Christian leaders, if you follow any kind of ministry or any kind of church system, on full-time salaries but uh, let's move on please 16 for though i preach the gospel i have nothing to glory of for necessity is laid upon me yea woe is unto me if i preach not the gospel paul was a soul winner and i've been saved 13 years patrick 15 16 years now and we want to be soul winners we want to get the gospel out we want to win souls to the lord jesus christ we've done religion we came from a religious background patrick many years obviously in it before i was born before i was saved but what does it do what did it do for him? What did it do for me? Nothing. I knew of the Lord, but I didn't know him personally. Patrick knew of the Lord, but he didn't know him personally. And neither of us were soul winning all the years of being in the Catholic Church. So one more time. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. I'm nothing, he says. In fact, I think it's Philippians. He says, all that he had pre-Christ was dung. It was filth. It was nothing. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And there are many full-time pastors around the world today who are not street preachers. In fact, most full-time pastors that I'm aware of are not street preachers. I think I can count probably on one hand in the UK full-time pastors that I'm aware of, Calvinist or not, that are street preachers. And he really, really lays the law down here. He says, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And please don't look at that verse and say that's not relevant to me. I'm not an apostle. I'm not an evangelist. It is relevant to you just as it was relevant to him. But how you witness to people, how you try to save people or reach out to people is obviously up to yourself. If you're a single woman, be careful, of course. If you are a brother on your own, use your common sense as to how you would go out and do what you do. But I still think this is primarily in reference to being a soul winner. And yes, it helped that he was an evangelist. Yes, it helped that he'd been to the third heaven. Yes, it helped. He was given 13, maybe 14 epistles to write. And yet it's difficult sometimes when you look at Paul, when you compare yourself to him because he was such a remarkable man. And yet he was just an ordinary man. All the apostles were just ordinary men. Mary Magdalene was just an ordinary woman. Susanna uh, and the other women found in the New Testament are just ordinary women that the Lord used, moulded to be living epistles. And I say this also that a woman can share the gospel. A woman can give out tracts, but she cannot street preach. She cannot be a Bible teacher per se. And I'll tell you what, if you want to try it, you try it. You see how hard it is. If you're a woman and you think you can street preach, you try it sometime. I guarantee within five minutes, you'll want to stop preaching altogether. It's very hard. People will laugh at you. They'll mock you. They'll ridicule you. And sometimes they'll even try to assault you. That's why it's not wise for a woman to street preach. And as far as being a Bible teacher is concerned, you won't find it anywhere in Scripture. But I'm slightly going off the main theme here where he says one more time, woe is unto me. If I preach not the gospel, I'm condemned, I'm at fault, I'm in the wrong here if I don't preach the gospel. Faith in Christ alone, sola scriptura, 
for the scripture alone. That, in essence, is what the gospel is. But he lays it out very clearly in chapter 15. We'll get there a little later on in the study. But 17, for if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. A reward, probably in reference to the judgment seat of Christ. And there are five crowns, which we find very clearly in scripture. And the next few verses are going to pretty much focus on service and rewards and what every Christian has the potential to receive if they put themselves out, if they leave their four-wall system. And I'm not against church system per se. You know, sometimes people may think, oh, no, I'm very much against church systems per se. I'm against the systems, of course, but the actual content which is found within the four walls is what I'm really interested in. Are they Bible believers? Are they King James Bible believers? Are they premillennial? Are they pre-tribulational? Are they into eternal security? Are they actually trying to win souls to Christ? Are they contending for the faith? We were told to pull those out of the fire that are perishing. And yet most churches I come into contact with are doing almost nothing for the Lord. But he's now switching to a reward which is going to be given to him and vicariously all of us at the judgment seat of Christ. 18. What is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. It's all about Christ. Paul was chosen for service, Acts 9, not salvation. He was told by the Lord that he would suffer many things. He was shown the third heaven. He wasn't allowed to reveal things that he saw in heaven. And yet, if you go online, there are thousands of videos posted about what this person saw in heaven, or that person saw in heaven, or what this person saw in hell, or that person saw in hell. Button it. I hath not seen, ear hath not heard what God has revealed to those that love him. 19. For thou be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. I am free from all men, back from Acts. I'm no longer responsible for your blood, yet have I made myself servant unto all. Jew and Gentile, but he's made himself servant unto all, that he would gain the more. That's really humility, isn't it? Put yourself out to make yourself a servant unto all men that he would gain them all. And that really comes by being on the streets, I think. Going from church to church, you're going to meet church people. You're going to preach to the converted. But going onto the streets, you're meeting unsaved people. We meet people in cults. We meet people in false religions. We meet people who are saved at times, but are very confused. So when he says here, for though I be free from all men, Jew and Gentile, yet have I made myself servants unto all. Gentiles sent primarily to preach to, and the Jews as well on his way to heaven, that I might gain the more. So get rid of Calvinism. Don't fall for that Calvinist system tulip that God has already chosen as elect from the foundation of the world. As far as I'm concerned, it's all to gain. And when we arrive in glory, I think the Lord's going to say to us that to being faithful, well done, good and faithful servants. And yet, on the other hand, you're going to say, why didn't you do more for me? You had the time, you had the ability, but you chose not to do what you could have done for me. And therefore, these crowns are not going to be given to you. That's a worst case scenario, of course. I think most of us are going to hopefully get at least one or two crowns if we are faithful. Some may get five, but I don't think many in the 21st century, especially in the West anyway, are going to get all five crowns. But look at verse 20, please. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. This is a slightly difficult passage to look at, 21. But look at 20 first of all. To the Jews I became as a Jew. He took Timothy, Acts, 
16, and he circumcised Timothy. Timothy was a Jew. His mother was a Jewess, saved, along with his grandmother, but his father was a Greek, an unsaved Gentile. He goes in the temple. I think it's in Acts 20, 21, 22, and he offers up a sacrifice to the Lord. So he's a Jew to the Jews to win them to Christ, to them that are under the law. Still in reference to the Jews, of course, the Ten Commandments, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. He went to the Jews first of all. Of course he did. The first few chapters of Acts 9, 10, 11, he's preaching to the Jews in their synagogues, as you would expect him to do. But chapter 12, 13, 14, 15 onwards, he switches to the Gentiles to win them to Christ. And 21, to them that are without law, as without law, not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. Now, I read this last night, and I read it this morning, and I was thinking to myself, what exactly does he mean here? Sometimes people say, you know, he's a law unto himself. You've heard that expression, he's a law unto himself. Well, you could use that perhaps to explain this, but I think this is more in reference to those that were saved, that were under the law of Christ, the grace of God, but had somehow got into error, maybe like Ananias and Sapphira from Acts 5. Maybe Paul was dispatched to backslidden Christians. I don't know exactly what this term means. I know that when we are saved, we have the fruits of the spirits, and I believe there are nine fruits in total. So there are expectations for those of us which are saved. We're not under the law of God. He makes that distinction clearly, being the Ten Commandments, but we are under the law to Christ, one's service, See, we are saved by grace and we are kept saved by grace, but there are rules for Christians. We are expected to live a certain way. And just read all of the Pauline epistles. Read First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, read Colossians, Galatians 2. The Lord expects us to live a certain way. And I'm going to make a video sometime in the future looking at the Old Testament law versus the New Testament period of grace. There is a very, a very clear similarity between the Jews under the law how they were chastised, how they were punished when they wouldn't honour the Lord to a Gentile or a Jew saved in the church age who doesn't walk with the Lord. He slash she can be chastised. And I gave you the, the account from Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira who were put to death by the Lord. So God does expect people to walk with him and at times he will, from the New Testament, kill backslidden Christians. But more likely he'll do what he did with Samson. He will simply withdraw his anointing from you. If you're a saved Christian who's not walking the Holy Spirit, if you're a saved Christian who is doing your own thing, he will do what he did with Samson, take his anointing from you, and you become barren. You become spiritually anemic. And you know the account when they came to arrest Samson, he thought he could rise up from the Philistines, break free, and of course they detained him. They uh, took his eyes out, and he was you know, pretty much left for dead. That's a picture of a Christian in the New Covenant who doesn't walk with the Lord, who strays from the Lord, who doesn't repent, of his or her sin, who's not under the law of Christ here in 21, they lose it all. They're still saved, thankfully, but they lose it all. 22, to the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. That term weak, I'm not sure it's in reference to somebody who's physically weak. And uh, you find that in Romans 14, in reference to somebody who's weak in their faith. He's still, I guess, building on 21. But the main theme from these verses is that Paul put himself out. Paul humbled himself. Paul was a great scholar. Paul was a great man of God. And yet he humbled himself to reach out to every type of people. Like the Lord Jesus Christ, who came from heaven, lived among men for 33 years and died 
on a cross outside of Jerusalem, that I might by all means save some. And I think one more time, this is very much open to us today. I think if we put ourselves out, we could win many more people. So that's why I don't get involved with Calvinism. I think Calvinism is an excuse not to witness. I think Calvinism is a poor and sorry uh, theological concept to avoid going out to the streets to preach the gospel. Because you will get laughed at, you'll get shouted at, and you may even get attacked. Not necessarily by unsaved people, although that will happen of course, but saved people. Many Christians get offended when they see other Christians preaching on the streets. You know why? Because they get convicted. They know they should be doing it themselves, but they don't want to put themselves out. 23. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. He led by example. Paul's a true general. I mean, I wouldn't tell someone to do something I wasn't prepared to do myself. That's why some of the best generals in the British Armed Forces going back 200 years, maybe to Napoleon's time, a bit before perhaps, maybe First World War, Gordon, uh, General Gordon perhaps, and uh, Montgomery perhaps. I mean, those guys led by example. They didn't sit you know, on their horses from a distance watching the troops go over the lines and get massacred, although that did happen during the First World War. And they died in their thousands. But Paul led by example, and he said, look, this is what I do as an apostle, and this is what you can do once you stop arguing and fighting amongst each other. Get off your high horses, repent, turn from your carnality, and hit the streets. 24. Know you not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. You think to yourself, why is Paul even speaking this way to this group of Christians? They're not interested in soul winning. They're still following Pastor A, Pastor B, Pastor C. And this is where Paul is such a skillful writer. He's now, I think, speaking vicariously to all of us. You see, most of the Bible is written to different groups of people. Most of the gospel contents is for the Jews under the law. And parts of the gospel content, the four gospels, is still future for the millennial kingdom. But here, Paul is now speaking to you and I. And he says one more time, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Only one's going to be the winner. So run that ye may obtain. This now goes back to service. Why are we still here? I've been saved 13 years. Patrick's been saved 15 years. You may have been saved 20 years, 30 years, maybe 40 years. Why are you still here on the earth? Maybe you ask yourself that. You're here on the earth still to make a difference to those in your communities, in your families, and maybe in your workplaces. We are living epistles. If we can win people to Christ, people will get saved. That's a great blessing for us. And it also glorifies the Lord. But to achieve that, you've got to be temperate in all things. Self-control. 25. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we, an incorruptible, temperate, self-control. How do you dress? How do you appear to people? You want to be a soul winner? You've got to put yourself into spiritual shape. And this goes both ways, not just a physical appearance, but an inward state of what you are doing internally. I remember years ago listening to a preacher who said, never mind giving out tracts. What's a tract of your own life like? That's a good point. It's very easy to give out tracts 24-7, but if you're tracked within your life, if your heart isn't right with the Lord, if you're not physically walking with the Lord, or if you're not spiritually walking with the Lord, that tract is irrelevant. And yes, we know that it's not about the messenger, it's about the message. We understand that as well, but God wants people to be faithful to themselves in order to be faithful to him, in order to be faithful to others. 26. I therefore so run, not 
as uncertainly, so fight I, not as when it beateth the air, but I keep under my body, and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. And 99% of people reading this will say, there you are, Paul could lose his salvation, and if he could lose it, so could you. Don't be so foolish. If Paul could lose it, what hope would we have? Third heaven, 14 epistles, the true prince of the apostles, never mind Simon Peter being called the prince of the apostles, it's Paul. This term, a castaway, is pretty much in reference to arriving at the judgment seat of Christ to be disapproved, to be pretty much stripped of any garments or crown or reward that a Roman governor would have given somebody during Paul's generation. The context here is a race to be temperate, to keep your body in submission, so you can not just be a partaker of the race, but win the race, to be a soul winner. This term castaway has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It's more in reference to, as I say, losing everything at the judgment seat of Christ. So 27 verses outlining 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And as always, Paul lays the framework as an apostle from, I guess, verses 1 down to 6. How he and Barnabas could be married if they wanted to. How he and Barnabas could be supported with gifts if they wanted to. How he's already reaffirmed his credentials to the Corinthians time after time. And yet he says, no, we're not interested in that. We're going to do our own thing. But if we wanted to be supported with gifts, if we wanted to be married, we can do so. It's not a sin. We are entitled to be supported by others. And he goes on from 7 down to probably 14, saying that the Old Testament priests were supported with gifts from the upkeep of the temple most of the money that was given to the jewish temple was for the upkeep of the temple but on top of that the priests were there pretty much 24 7 they had a rota no doubt and those men were expected to be supported with gifts so you can see a a fine line i will grant between a full-time pastor slash evangelist and yet for me the context here is of evangelism soul winning discipling which really comes down to the work of an evangelist 19 down to 27 self-control be temperate in all things so you can win a prize at the judgment seat of christ and that prize of course is a crown one of five crowns and it's true that people today are you know putting themselves forward to win oscars or gold discs for their number of albums they've sold and that's all corruptible one day they'll perish one day those singers politicians pop stars film stars those well-to-do people, politicians, are going to go six feet into the ground, and who cares then? In fact, let's be quite honest. If you spent years collecting books or records or DVDs or whatever you're into, when you die, when your family come to bury you, they'll put all your stuff in a skip, and they'll chuck it all out. It may sound slightly crude, but it's true. Most people, when they die, all their stuff gets thrown out, and they're quickly forgotten. Not the people, of course, but their their loves, their you know, their idols, their objects, their whatever they're into gets thrown out and it becomes dung philippians chapter 2 one more time 26 therefore so i run not as uncertainly so fight i not as one that beateth the air don't take this to be in reference to what the catholic church would tell you from the opus day movement how you are to whip yourself scourge yourself to flagellate yourself that's not what he's talking about here self-control bringing every thought and deed temptation to the lord laying it out bare to the lord say lord this is what i'm up against this is what i'm currently going through take it from me 
But 27, you've got to help yourself. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Self-control. Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Lest that by any means when I preach to others, Jew or Gentile, I myself should be a castaway. So it is possible that a saved man or woman who doesn't finish the race in the sense of falling short, in the sense of not being temperate in all things, in the sense of becoming indifferent, in the sense of backsliding, in the sense of not dealing uh, with their sin problem, are going to arrive at the judgment seat of Christ. Still saved, absolutely still saved, but nothing awaiting them. That's why, as I've said repeatedly, if you can do as much as you can for the Lord, you really should do as much as you can for him. And approach like this, that in some ways your life depends on it. Although your salvation is fixed, praise the Lord. Just do what you can when you can. And also don't compare yourself to anyone else. That's the worst thing you can do when you look at someone else and say, I want to be like him or I want to be like her. And you start to compare yourself to others. That's a very dangerous thing to do. Paul could say, follow me as I follow Christ. But just be careful that you don't set a goal which is too high to reach that's what the lordship salvation people make the mistake they say you've got to turn from all your sins in order to be saved you've got to be practically perfect and you know they don't like me saying that but it's true they will say you know you've got to be almost you know perfect in every possible way in your life to prove that you are saved i don't accept that you know we come as sinners we were saved in our worst possible state you know while we're yet sinners christ died for us and he saves us he regenerates us he keeps us in a state of perfection when it comes to our positional standing and i've been through this before when the lord looks at you he sees christ not yourself but your practical standing can fluctuate one day you can be very strong in the lord very bold very courageous and the next hand you can be very weak very uh, inferior struggling just to tread water and that's a picture of the two natures in the christian and i showed you from uh, romans 7 how paul lamented over his old man and yet he said you know he gave christ the glory that one day he'd be victorious and he would ultimately arrive at the judgment seats saved, blameless, but the crowns would be conditional, of course, on how Paul lived after he was saved. So there is a distinction there between crowns and service and salvation and works. And I said last time that we are saved unto good works and our works are evidence, not all the time, but some of the time that we are saved. And yet even with the works, we've got to be careful because the cults are very good at works. The cults work day and night going door to door and if people were to look at those individuals they would say look what a great you know christian over there doing all that work for the lord but of course that's a works unto salvation that's a works in order to be saved you know we work because we are saved we don't work in order to be saved so i think that's all, all i wanted to say for this lord's day morning from first corinthians chapter nine and i guess the great hope we all have when it comes to service is that if we are faithful to the lord he's faithful to us and he will give us a crown if not five, if we run the race, if we complete the race in a temperate way. But it's going to cost you something to control yourself physically and spiritually. And it's going to take a lot of work. It's not easy being a soul winner. It's not easy being active in your community. It's not easy living for the Lord and serving him and doing the best you can for him. But if you started with him, you're finished with him. And he will give you all that you need to reach the judgment seat of Christ, the beam of seat of Christ, victorious. So a great message. But again, temperate, temperate temperate okay first corinthians chapter 10 first corinthians chapter 10 moreover brethren i would not that ye should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all baptized unto moses in the cloud 
and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Rock, capital R, in reference to Christ, of course, the Shehina glory, the foundation of Israel, and the foundation of the church. But from verse 1, he says, All our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And if you were to speak to anybody that holds to replacement theology or a formed theology, they will say, There you are, you see, we, the church, have replaced Israel. Not quite. Temporarily, yes. Permanently, absolutely not. We know from Romans chapter 11 how the Lord is going to turn back to Israel during the Great Tribulation. And the believing remnant will be saved. So this term, our fathers, in reference to the Jews, of course, going back to the Old Testament, has to be interpreted with the understanding that we are the spiritual Jews. We are the people of God for today. That much is true. But like I said, we haven't permanently replaced Israel. I'm going to give you a quick read, if I may, from Fox's Book of Martyrs, because I think if you hold to a placement theology, if you hold to Reformed theology... If you believe that the church, however you wish to define the church, has replaced Israel, this is what happens. Fox's Book of Martyrs, written in the 16th century by an Anglican priest who knew all about church history. And I would suggest anyone and everyone who was born again get a hold of Fox's Book of Martyrs. Fifty Jews and Jewesses were sentenced to long confinement and to wear a yellow cap. And ten others indicted for bigamy, witchcraft and other crimes were sentenced to be whipped, and then sent to the galleys. These last wore large pasteboard caps, with inscriptions on them, having a halt about their necks, and torches on their heads, or in their hands. That's page 48. You think, that's pretty terrible, 50 Jews and Jewesses, whipped, sentenced to death, forced to wear a yellow cap, and the crimes were trumped up, of course, bigamy, witchcraft, so on and so forth, whipped, and then sent to the galleys, and on top of that, they were forced to wear large, pasteboard caps with inscriptions on them having a halt about their necks and torches in their hands you think that's pretty awful but please remember what the third reich did during the 1930s and 40s they too singled out the jews and they treated them pretty awfully they made them wear star of david they were forced to be identified to be treated with contempt and we know six million plus went to the ovens they were put to death you might say why is he referring to this today well the Catholic Church believed in replacement theology. The Catholic Church believed that they have replaced Israel and therefore they thought nothing of killing thousands of Jews from Pentecost right up until, well, I guess the 19th century. Although the Catholic Church didn't begin until the 4th century AD. There's always been hostility towards the Jews. So Hitler, being a good Catholic, pretty much followed the same teaching of the Catholic Church. He said, well, if the Church of Rome have persecuted Jews for centuries and they had done why can't I and he signed a concordat in the late 1930s with Pope Pius XII and a man called Bontini who became Pope Paul VI and that concordat pretty much went along the lines of we work with you and you work with us and that way we can we can eradicate communism atheism and you know the rest Uh, Hitler of course was defeated by the allies shot himself in the bunker but the point is he was a catholic His top lieutenants were Catholics. They were following a long-age policy, which even Martin Luther, unfortunately, went along with hatred and contentment for the Jews because of this this misunderstanding from chapter 10, verse 1, how all our fathers were under the cloud. Now, 
I'm not going to stretch it, but I will make the point because I think it's valid that when you read these verses, and I think John Calvin also thought that he too had replaced Israel, that somehow they could do with the Jews as they please. That's very dangerous. As I say, Romans 11 makes it very clear how the Lord is not finished with the Jews. So we are the spiritual Jews. And in a sense, Moses is our spiritual father. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are our spiritual fathers, along with Joshua and the rest of the patriarchs and Jews going back to the Old Testament. But we are not Israel per se. But what's he really saying here, how we are identified with Moses? We have a great heritage. And like I said last time, Corinthians is written primarily to Gentile believers. Some Jews, yes, but for the most part, Gentile believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you've got a great heritage. Moses, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, so on and so forth, went before you. But this rock that followed them was Christ. Please turn to Deuteronomy 32, scripture with scripture. Deuteronomy 32. And you find also from uh, Matthew 16, where the Lord says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And Catholics say, there you are, you see, Peter's the rock, he's not the rock. Deuteronomy 32, please. Deuteronomy 32, look at verse 4, please. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. He is a rock, or he is the rock, capital R. His work is perfect. Who is this rock? Look at verse 3. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Jehovah God. Jehovah God is our rock. So our foundation, if we are saved, is built on the rock of all ages. And that rock is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that rock was very evident back in the Old Testament. In fact, go back even before the days of Israel, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar. And he said, go back to your mistress and submit to her. To her. And she named uh, her firstborn uh, Ishmael. And the Muslims say that Ishmael was a forerunner for Muhammad. Well, maybe he was, maybe he was not. But if he was, the angel of the Lord, being the Lord Jesus Christ, named him as Ishmael. But here, the rock is the Lord. And the rock, as I say, has been around for a long time. The Shekinah glory, the foundation of Israel. And this angel of the Lord led them out of Egypt. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But also from Deuteronomy 32, uh, look at verse 31. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Their rock, lowercase r, is not as our rock, capital R, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is a poison of dragons and the cool venom of asps. Their vine is the vine of Sodom and the fields of Gomorrah. There's a counterfeit of our communion, which we're going to have later. And he says, their grapes are grapes of gall and their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons being devils and the cool venom of asps. 1500 BC, Moses is writing about this counterfeit communion service, this counterfeit religion. And Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians. And please go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he says one more time, Moreover, brethren, brothers and sisters, I would not that he should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, baptized unto Moses in a spiritual sense, whereas we are baptized physically into the Lord Jesus Christ by being born again. Two, and all baptized unto Moses, a type of the Lord, in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and they died back in the Old Testament, but we eat of the Lord in a spiritual sense, we live forever. 
and had all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So he was very busy back in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ, and obviously for today the church age, he is our foundation, we are built upon him. But take note from Deuteronomy 32 in reference to this counterfeit communion service, this counterfeit rock, Simon Peter, perhaps if you are a Catholic, maybe you are trusting in him to get you into heaven. But the church cannot be built on the apostles per se. It has to be built on the living rock. Now, it's true that the apostles make up the foundation along with the prophets. But Peter made it very clear how the ultimate rock was the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's move on, please. Verse five. But with many of them, God is not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The church, in a sense, is in the wilderness. We are called out of the world system and we congregate to worship the Lord, especially on days like today. So in a sense, we are in the world system. We are in the wilderness. We are a peculiar people. We are very much on our own. And yet he says here, but for many of them, the Jews, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And this goes back to last time, chapter 9, 27, how Paul spoke about being a castaway in reference to being in a race or a boxing match, if you will. And if he wasn't temperate in all things, if he hadn't prepared himself for the battle or the race or the fight, he would have lost. He would have been disqualified. He would have been a castaway in reference, of course, to service, not salvation. And here Paul's making it very clear how the Lord overthrew many back in the Old Testament and he can do the same today in the church age. He can overthrow us, not in reference to our salvation, thankfully, but in reference to our service, in reference to the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 6. Now these things were our examples to the attempt, which not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. These things were examples to the intent, we should not lust after evil things. It's possible, like I said last time, I'll say it again, that... A saved man or woman can commit any sin that an unsaved man or woman commits. When, when you got saved, you received Christ's imputed righteousness, but your body is still the same. Your flesh is still the same. If you came to the Lord as a blind man, I guess you're still blind. If you came to the Lord as a crippled woman, I would suggest you are still crippled, but you receive a new imputed righteousness, which lusts or clashes with the new nature on a daily basis. So don't be too surprised when he says the next several things of the next few verses about abstaining from this, abstaining from that, because you two have the potential to do the same things. Seven, neither be idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Play in reference to an orgy. And what's going on here? Well, we know from scripture that a mixed multitude left Egypt I went into the promised land and that mixed multitude is a picture of the wheat and the tares from Matthew 13. The church has always been surrounded by unsaved people. And that's why many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? Have we not done this? Have we not done that? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. These people never saved to begin with. And here it's the same theme. A mixed multitude left Egypt, a type of the world system into the promised land. And most fell. They fell through sin. They fell through unbelief. The Lord destroyed thousands, not millions of them, over a period of 40 years. Eight. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Fornication, going back to seven, an orgy, going back to lusting, chapter six. And this term, 
23,000 fallen in one day has been picked up by some Bible rejectors to suggest a discrepancy because in Numbers 25, I believe it refers to 24,000 dying. Paul is referring to a literal day, a literal 24-hour day in which 23,000 fell. So both accounts are correct. Paul is focusing in on the first day when this judgment fell from the Lord. He sent plagues and he killed 23,000 people. But I guess in the coming hours post this initial judgment, 24,000 people died. And I'll be quite honest with you and say that God does kill people. He gives life and he takes it. Somebody came up to me in the street a few days ago trying to get into an argument with me about the Lord. And he said to me, what about all this suffering in the world? And he mentioned an account in Italy, I think it was, some years ago when an earthquake took place, like Naples, quite recently. Nepal, excuse me. And uh, you know, everything was destroyed but a church. And he said to me, did the Lord ordain that or did he allow it to happen? I said, yes, he did through his permissive will. And he said to me, that's terrible. I said, well, let me tell you something. Back in the days of Noah, he killed everyone. He drowned all the unbelieving men, women and children. And sometimes I will go a little overboard when I witness to people like that because they are seeking to attack the Lord's goodness. They are seeking to blaspheme his uh, long patience. And we know from scripture how his long patience results in the salvation of people. And I said to him, yes, you know, he will destroy people. He destroyed over two million people back in the days of Noah. And the same happened in the days of Lot. Uh, he is an angry, he is a holy, he is a righteous God. He, you know, he gives life and he takes it. But also Noah preached for over 120 years, I think it was, up until the ark was built. And they laughed, they ridiculed him, they made fun of him. And when the floods came, they were screaming, bang on the ark, let me into the ark. And he said, too little, too late. Or at least that's what I think he may have said. But the point is, God gave that generation 120 years to get right, and they refused to get right, and he destroyed them all. So yes, God will destroy people. He will destroy men and women and children, because he holds the parents responsible for their children. That's why it's imperative, if you are saved, to get your children saved. Because if the rapture comes tomorrow, only you are going to go up in the rapture. I know some people think that children are going to go up. They'll only go up if their parents are saved. And they'll only go up if they are pre the age of accountability. If your children are over the age of accountability and are not believers, are not saved, they will stay behind with the rest of the world. Go back to Noah. Check it out carefully. Nobody was spared that uh, judgment on the Lord. Just Noah and his immediate family. Go back to Lot. Nobody survived that judgment from the Lord. Just Lot. And his two daughters. Verse 9. Another let us tempt Christ. As some of them also tempted. And were destroyed of serpents. Tempt Christ. Moses did it. With his brother Aaron. He showed contempt. For the rock. He smote the rock. He was told to speak to the rock. And he smote it twice. Showing contempt. And the Lord said that's it Moses. You're going to die prematurely. Because that is my son. God is no respecter of persons. And that's why Moses died prematurely, along with Aaron and even Miriam. And he says here, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents, fiery snakes. It's a pretty graphic example of serpents, snakes, lizards, devils, if you will, being sent to destroy the people of Israel. For the New Testament, he will chastise you. He will whip you. He will send you sickness and all sorts of problems. And as a last case scenario or worst case scenario, he will put you to death. But that's pretty rare. Most Christians that are in rebellion to the Lord are 
out of fellowship with him and they are struggling with emotional problems and sometimes even psychological problems. I think it's quite possible for a saved man or woman who falls out of fellowship with the Lord, doesn't repent, they go on to lose their mind in a sense, almost have a nervous breakdown. But here these people were sent and they were destroyed of the serpents. The bar is so high in scripture. God cannot lower his bar. If he lowers his bar, he no longer becomes God. So what does he do? He becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ who lives a perfect life, fulfills the law for you and I, and goes back to heaven and sits down at the right hand of the Father. 10. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. John chapter 6, the Lord is speaking to the Jews in the synagogue. And please note the context carefully of Luke chapter 6, excuse me, John chapter 6, because the Catholics will quote John 6 to prove transubstantiation, and the Calvinists will quote John 6 to prove predestination election. But in John chapter 6, the Lord is speaking to the Jews in a Jewish synagogue, and he's speaking to the Jews about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And he turns from them, and he says, these words are spiritual, the flesh profits nothing, These words are spiritual and they are life. Meaning that what I'm saying to you is spiritual. But he says here from 10. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. This word destroyer is a very interesting and also rather complicated and controversial expression to exegete. I was looking at this this morning and last night. In fact I'm reading Revelation at the moment. I'm thinking that Revelation might be my next project after 1 Corinthians and The term destroyer is found in Revelation to be Apollyon or Abaddon. And yet in the Old Testament, the destroyer is pointed out to be the angel of the Lord. So that gives me a dilemma. If the destroyer is suggested to be the angel of the Lord back in the Old Testament, a Christophany. And of course, the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ, you understand. But if he's also referred to as Abaddon and Apollyon in Revelation, reference to a fallen angel, what do you do? You could go back to the Old Testament and use the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament and suggest that the Lord used an ungodly angel to destroy the unbelieving people back in the Old Testament. In fact, if you go back to, I think it's Exodus 12, you find the children of Israel putting blood above their door. So when the destroyer came, he wouldn't destroy the children of Israel, but he would destroy the firstborn of Pharaoh. And he's also found in other parts of the Old Testament as well. That's possible that the Lord used an unclean spirit. We find that very clearly in, I think it's First Kings, Second Kings, where the Lord allows an unclean spirit to uh, deceive Ahab. So it's quite possible that the Lord could have used Satan. But if not, what do you do with this? This destroyer, this angel of the Lord, found back in Exodus, as I say, destroyed the firstborn of Pharaoh and yet... In the New Testament, in Revelation to be precise, he's referred to as Apollyon, Abaddon. And somebody made a very controversial point. He said, if you were to put the Lord Jesus Christ and the devil side by side, you couldn't tell them apart. Now, I'm not sure I accept that uh, hypothesis. I understand what he's saying because Satan is a counterfeit of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah and Satan is referred to as a Roaring Lion seeking to devour whom he will. So there is some legitimacy in that rather controversial statement. And it goes back to, I guess, our daily battles. We wake up sometimes, we think, you know, I don't feel so well today. I feel really bad. I'm dealing with a, an affliction. I have a some kind of problem with me. I don't feel right. Or I'm dealing with a terrible form of anxiety. You know, what's going to happen today? Or, you know, I can't get into the word of God. I'm so dry. And you think, is the Lord chastising me? Is he punishing me? Is the devil attacking me? 
Or is it just my literal body living in a fallen world? Well, ultimately it goes back to the Lord being sovereign. Yes, he can use the devil to chastise you, to attack you, to cause you to produce more fruit, to be more holy, to draw closer to him. And yes, sometimes he will he will discipline you himself as a father would discipline their child. And also it could just be a coincidence. You know, we live in a fallen world, like I say, we have ailments and you know problems that we have to deal with none of us are immune from that so i'm not sure what to do with this term the destroyer from chapter 10 it could be just in reference to the angel of the lord being a deity sent to destroy unbelieving israel apostate israel and on top of that being sent to destroy angels uh, excuse me israel's enemies but it kind of confuses me when i get to revelation that's why you gotta be so careful when you read the word of god to use scripture with scripture to understand who this angel of the Lord is, this destroyer to be precise. But let's move on, please. Verse 11. And all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. The end of the world, probably in reference to the end of the Old Testament era, written down, of course, so we would uh, not uh, repeat the same mistakes that others have committed and yet, what does somebody once say? If there's one thing that men learn from history is that men never learn from history. And that's so very true. You read the Bible day and night. You get some great blessings from the scripture. You walk with the Lord like he's your best friend. And yet, within five seconds, you've stumbled. You've fallen. You've sinned in your mind. A thought's come into your mind. You've given heed to it. And you've given into the flesh. That's how weak we all are. And I've had great blessings from the Lord. I've gone through some very fiery trials and tribulations and I've learnt that the Lord is behind everything that I go through and yet within five minutes I've forgotten that I go through what I go through for a purpose. Man is so weak, man is so pathetic and that's why as I said before and I say it again that eternal security once saved always saved or if saved always saved is paramount because if you could lose it you would lose it. The word of God says if we sin willfully there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin but a fearful fallen away of judgment and a fiery indignation. And we've all sinned willfully in different ways. We've all overslept. We've all underslept. We've all undereaten or overeaten. You know, we've all done this. We've all done that. It's all sin. What does James say? If you sin in one part of the law, you've sinned in all parts of the law. You are a transgressor. Look at verse 12, please. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, taketh heed, lest he fall. That's a good scripture. One more time. Therefore, or wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. You may think you're something special, you may be a great Bible expositor, you may be a great linguist, you may be a great street preacher, you may be a great evangelist, you may be some big wheel, some big cheese in your community, you may be something special, but you're nothing. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. Moses fell, David fell, Solomon fell, Peter fell, even Paul temporarily lost his ministry for 24 months. Only Jesus Christ is sinless. And somebody once said that when Jesus Christ said that the devil is coming and he has nothing on me, but he's got plenty on us. It wouldn't take Satan very long to find fault, sin, error, weakness, transgression in your life or my life if he took five minutes to take a close look at us. 13. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. But will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. No temptation, no trial, no tribulation has overtaken you, but such as is common to mankind. But God is faithful, 
who will not suffer you, who won't allow you to be tempted or tried or tested, above that ye are able. He knows your limits, he knows your breaking points, but will, with the temptation, trial, tribulation, so on and so forth, also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Whatever you go through, as a Bible-believing Christian, he knows, he's allowed it, he's one step ahead of you. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are the called according to his purpose. So whatever you go through as a saint of the Lord, he's going to give you all that you need to withstand it, to overcome it, and not to be broken by it. That's a great scripture. And yet what happens? We give in to the flesh. We stray from the Lord and we say, you know what, Lord, I can do this myself. I'm pretty good at uh, abstaining from this. I'm pretty good at abstaining from that, so on and so forth. And go back to 12. Therefore, or wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, take it heed, lest he fall. Put these verses together. Don't puff yourself up. Don't be arrogant. Don't think that you're something special. Because the greats all thought there was something special. And yet they all fell and they fell miserably. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, the only sinless man that ever lived. 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Dearly beloved, this is a carnal church. Dearly beloved, this is a church that was refusing to deal with incest. Dearly beloved, this is a church that were suing one another in the courts. And yet he says, wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Not just worshipping false gods, but Idolatry can be so much broader than that. You can worship your children. You can worship your ministry. You can worship money. You can worship your pets. Just sit down and work out how much you spent on cat food this past week or dog food this past week. Or how much you spent going to the races or going to a football match or a soccer match. And then work out how much money you gave to the Lord. That's idolatry. You know, where your heart is, that's where your treasure should be as well. 15. I speak as to wise men. Judge you what I say. Wise men in reference to the elders. There's no one man pastor here. This epistle was written to the elders in Corinth. Who were trying their best. I'm sure they were. But like you and I. They fell. They were weak. They were imperfect. But he says please don't get caught up with idolatry. Flee from it. Flee from idolatry. 14. Flee from lust. 6. And flee from fornication. Verse 8. You see it's possible as I say to... Commit these sins if you stop walking with the Lord, if you become dry, if you don't take your relationship with him seriously, you can fall. You can fall into these sins, you can sin willfully, but as somebody once said, you can fall inboard, but you can never fall overboard. I love that. Because if we could lose it, we would lose it, but praise be to God, we cannot lose our salvation. Verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion? Of the body of Christ. In John 6. He said to the Jews. I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. If you eat of this bread you will live forever. And they said how dare this man. This son of a carpenter. How dare this individual tell us. That we need to eat of his bread. They knew what that meant. That meant deity. That meant he was God almighty. And this term. The bread of Christ. Or the bread which we break. The communion. And the blood of Christ. It's not literal, of course, because we know from the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's 26, that it was a fruit of the vine that the apostles enjoyed with the Lord Jesus Christ. And after this reading of scripture, we will have juice, fruit juice, and we'll have a literal piece of bread to eat in commemoration, in remembrance of the Lord's 
uh, death on a cross for us. But you cannot get transubstantiation from this. And also, as I said earlier, you can't get Calvinism from John chapter 6. Verse 17. For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. If you're born again, wherever you are today, wherever you are around the world listening to this message, you are in the body of Christ. And you are put into the body of Christ through the Holy Ghost. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Apart from any works, you weren't put into the body of Christ by being baptised or going to church or tithing or being circumcised or being a good particular person. You were put into the body of Christ by believing. Salvation is a free gift. And that's why he says, for we, being many, are one bread, one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. We are bone of his bone. We are flesh of his flesh. And we are in the body of Christ. So in a sense, in a way that I don't quite understand, when we eat of the bread, we are actually eating of ourselves because we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, a living organism, which is universal, of course, it's supernatural. There's no such thing as a headquarters when it comes to the body of Christ. Unless, of course, you want to point to the New Jerusalem. Okay, fine. But for here and now on the earth, there's no headquarters. We don't have a place like Rome or Mecca or Brooklyn or Utah. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. And the Lord allows us to worship him as and how we choose to, as long as we do so in truth and in spirit. 18. Behold Israel after the flesh. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? That's your real Jews. They had a real altar up until 70 AD. And they sacrificed there almost 24-7. And he says, Behold Israel, observe Israel after the flesh. Never mind chapter 10 verse 1, how all our fathers were under the cloud. That's the real Israel. They were the real Jews. And now they are spiritual. Or now we are spiritual Israel. But here, 18, he's speaking about real Jews. And you can add to that in verse 32. Verse 19. What say I then? That the idol is anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? Of course not. Psalm 115 says they have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. And they have mouths but cannot speak. So any church, any religion that has uh, idols as an aid to worship is pagan. So out goes all the Catholic statues and dollies and pictures and this and that beads because it's idolatry it's wickedness and it's sacrifice to idols we know from scripture that idol or an idol is of the devil and if you worship the devil or if you pray to him directly or indirectly you are an idolater let me say this is also if i made that satan doesn't mind how you worship him he'll take worship from you directly or indirectly he doesn't care as long as your worship doesn't go to the lord god of the bible and you find very clearly from isaiah 14 how he wanted to ascend up into heaven but he was brought down to hell. And the tragedy is that so many people around the world, Catholics, Hindus, even Muslims, are worshipping false gods with idols as a bridge between man and God. You don't need to. Just come to him as you are. What does scripture say? There is one God and one mediator between men and God. The man, Christ Jesus. You don't need a religion. You need a relationship with the Lord to be saved and to enjoy him. Look at 20, please. But I say... That the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Could it be possible that some of these Corinthians were still hanging around the many pagan satanic temples in Corinth around 60 AD? Yes, I think it is. I think many Christians today have their foot in two camps. 
On the one hand, they go to one church. On the one hand, they are part of one fellowship. And on the other hand, they are in another fellowship. They are in another church. They have, you know, one foot in both camps. And you can't do it. God won't put up with people jumping around, coming and going as they please. He wants consistency and he wants uh, sincerity, but he wants truth as well. One more time from 20. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice the devils and not to God. That's pretty profound. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Separation. That's really the word here and the term to be cited to explain this piece of scripture. Separation. Come out from among them, saith the Lord, and be ye separate. 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Go back to Deuteronomy, please. Deuteronomy 32, 31. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. So there's two rocks, so there's a false rock and a true rock. 32. For their vine, fruit juice, communion, red wine, if you will, is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. That's pretty profound. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons, devils, and are called venom, poison of asps. You see, you can see very clearly here two foundations here, two lots of uh, systems of worship. Moses condemns it in Deuteronomy 32. Paul also cites it from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Please go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And that's why he makes it very clear that you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord, 21, and a cup of devils. And this could be in reference, of course, to the Church of Rome. They're very much into this worship of the Eucharist. When the priest stands up, he holds the wafer up, and he says the body of Christ, and they go down their knees. He holds the chalice up, and he says the blood of Christ, and they go down their knees, and they say amen. And when you say amen, that's Hebrew for let it be. So you are putting a curse on yourself because the Lord Jesus Christ, the Almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator doesn't become a piece of bread to then be eaten by the catholic and that red wine doesn't become the blood of christ to be drunk by a catholic that's cannibalism that's idolatry that's foolishness you were told never to drink blood that's what false religions do so this two-tier system found very clearly here in first corinthians chapter 10 on the one hand points to the commemoration to remember what the lord did for us which we'll do shortly and yet, on the other hand, you've got this pagan, satanic system where they are pretty much drinking blood and eating someone's flesh, but not in honour or not to please the Lord, God of the Bible, but they're doing it to devils. And that's why I said a few moments ago that Satan will take worship directly or indirectly. You can worship Mary. He's quite happy with that. You can worship Allah. He's quite happy with that. You can worship Yabulon. He's quite happy with that. You can worship Buddha. He's quite happy with that. You can worship your friends, your family, your children, your politicians, your country, your ministry, your family. He's happy with that too. But the Lord Jesus Christ says that the Father wants those to worship him in truth and in spirit, which can only happen once you are born again. 22. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Of course not. Some people say, how can God be jealous? Jealousy is a terrible thing. Why is God jealous? What's going on here? Well, God is jealous over his church as a husband will be jealous over his wife, as a wife will be jealous over a husband, as a parent will be jealous over their children. Not difficult to understand. We are made in the image of God. We reflect his nature. We have a body, soul and spirit. And we have a understanding which comes from heaven, which the animals do not have. We have a conscience which animals do not have. 
So if he gets jealous over us, a godly jealousy, of course, not a carnal jealousy, why should it be a strange thing if we too have a jealousy over our children or our wives or our husbands or those that we are close to? 23. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. That's a broad statement. Does that mean I can go to the opera tonight? Does that mean I can go to a football match tonight? Does that mean I can go to a bar tonight? Does that mean I can go salsa dancing tonight? Does that mean I can do this or I can do that? Yes and no. Does that mean I can go to a Catholic service? Does that mean I can go to an Islamic mosque? Does that mean I can go to a Masonic temple or Hindu temple? This we've got to use common sense. Now we have liberty as Christians and I will say this because if you were to sit down with a typical Jehovah's Witness or Mormon or I guess a hyper-dispensationalist or a hyper-Calvinist, they will say that you have to come under the authority of your pastors, elders, so on and so forth, and they really come down hard on their congregation. That's called uh, heavy shepherding. So we have liberty as Christians to do what we do, but that has to be weighed up very carefully. If I do those things I've just listed to you, how's it going to look in, in your eyes? How that look you know, in the eyes of people in my community? It's going to bring dishonor to the Lord, surely. It's going to shoot my testimony. I'm going to be considered a compromiser, a man of no integrity. So yes, all things are lawful for me, not without exception, but without distinction. But all things not expedient, not beneficial. All things are lawful for me. I'm not under the Old Testament, but all things edify not. In other words, am I going to grow as a Christian? Am I going to mature as a Christian if I do these things? If I go to sports events, for example, or if I go to a mosque or a temple or a church, if I do this or if I do that? Of course not. I'm going to probably go backwards on my spiritual growth. I'm going to start my spiritual growth. I'm going to uh, become a backslider. And like I said, I'll have no integrity. I'll have no testimony and I'll be pretty worthless. So you've got to be very careful how you balance this. And as I say, this goes back to one's liberty in the Lord. And yet sometimes your liberty is even questioned in your own family if you're saved and your family are not saved. 24. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Pick up your cross and follow me. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. That's the golden rule, of course. Put someone else first. That's very difficult. It's very difficult to put someone else ahead of you. It could be your husband, if he's saved. It could be your wife, if she's saved. It could be your children, if they're saved. It could be your pastor, your elder, a brother, somebody who's faithfully saved. Put that person ahead of your own needs. It comes a time, it comes with great uh, discernment, it comes with understanding that you are least in your own eyes, that someone else has to go ahead of you, somebody else, somebody else has to be put ahead of you. And like I say, these verses are difficult to apply doctrinally. I can give you, you know, uh, an understanding as I see it this morning. I can give you a quick breakdown of what these verses mean, but how you apply it in a physical sense is difficult. And that's why no two Christians will probably handle these verses the same way. But what they are saying, nevertheless, is to put someone else ahead of you, to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and be mindful of those around you. Like I said, that's not an easy thing to do literally, and it's not a very easy thing to do even in a, a hermeneutical sense. 25. Whatsoever sold in the shambles, markets, that eat, ask no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Yes, you have liberty. And I said this last time, to be a meat eater, if you choose to, or be a vegetarian, if you choose to. That's not really the issue. Everything that we have is from the Lord, and we've been separated from the Lord to worship him. And what we do 
in that sense, as far as the dietary uh, situation goes, is irrelevant to him. But a legalist will come along, a legalist will say, no, you've got to be careful what you do, you can't do this, you can't do that, and they will force you back under the law. And that's why you be so careful that you don't go back under the law, because if you go back under the law, you've fallen from grace, uh, Galatians chapter 5, and you've lost your fellowship with the Lord, not your salvation. And of course, the flip side of that is that you start to become self-righteous, you think that you're something special, and the Lord says, I can't use you. You've got to be humble, you've got to understand that uh, you're nothing in my eyes, and that salvation is completely of me. 27, if any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, that ye be disposed to go whatsoever set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. The King James puts the word to a feast in italics, which means it's not there in the original Greek, which means that you would probably just read, if any of them that believe not bid you, and ye be disposed to go whatsoever set before you eat, ask no question for conscience sake. That word feast has to be put in there, and that word feast or uh, a gathering, a meeting, is quite correct to be put in there to explain the meaning of the passage. You think, what does this mean? And am I expected to go to a feast? Am I expected to go to a meal? Why am I expected to go? Well, maybe Paul's got in mind some of the leaders here in Corinth who may have had good uh, relations with unsaved people. And we saw last time how he was all things to all, that he might win some to Christ. So therefore they would be expected they were reminded to go to a feast or a meal to preach the gospel to such people. That wasn't unheard of in the first century. In fact, the Lord's Supper, back in the Gospel of Matthew 26, involved sitting at a table and they had a proper meal. Not just, well, we're going to have uh, bread and juice. They had a full-blown meal, which is not what you find in most churches today. So this, this piece of scripture probably had been referenced to an elder, a brother, who's expected to go to this meeting place to have a meal to probably to win souls to the Lord Jesus Christ. But go back to 23 and 24 and weigh up the pros and cons of doing such a thing. 28, but if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? It's a good question. Why am I being judged for someone else's weak conscience? Because you are there as a servant of the Lord. You are bought with a price. You're not of your own. You are an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. And an ambassador is sent from his or her country to push the policy of their country. They're not there for their own health. They are there to represent their government. And they do it faithfully. Same sort of theme here. 30. For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of? For that for which I give thanks. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God, if you can. So ask yourself this question. Should I go to this meeting in the first place? Is it going to glorify the Lord? Is it going to be beneficial to me? Is it going to be beneficial to those present? Or will it bring dishonour on the Lord? Will it be dishonourable on the Lord? Will it cause me to lose my testimony? Like I said, I can give you the readings here. I can give you the understanding of these verses. I can execute these verses as, as simply as I can on this Lord's Day morning. But how you apply these verses in a literal sense, it's going to be down to you. Because you have liberty in the Lord. I have liberty in the Lord. I'm not going to stand here and give you a blanket condemnation. But at the same time, separation goes back to the previous few verses. Because if you're not careful, you get yoked up with unsaved people. You get yoked up with false religions. And before you know it, you've fallen from grace. 32. Give none offence. Neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profits, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. 
Jews, group number one. Gentiles, group number two. Church of God, group number three. You're one of those three people. If you're saved, you're in the church of God. If you're saved, you're neither a Jew nor a Gentile. Galatians chapter three. But if you're not in the church of God, you are, you are a Jew or you are a Gentile. And that goes back to chapter 10, verse one. How all our fathers, literal Jews, were under the cloud. But now they are, or now we are, spiritual Jews. And all passed through the sea and all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and so on and so forth. But 18, behold Israel after the flesh. Literal Israel, literal Jews. Are not they which eat of the sacrifice, partakers of the altar? Yes, they are. So give none offence. Don't be a troublesome individual. Don't cause Jews to stumble. The word of God says that the gospel is already a stumbling block to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, heathen outside of the Lord's remit, nor to the church of God. Don't use your liberty to cause your weak brother or sister to stumble. And like I said, that's pretty difficult because you have liberty in the Lord. I have liberty in the Lord. But if my liberty causes you to stumble... I have to forsake it, and vice versa. So 33 verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and there's always much material here to read and digest and to do so in a very simplistic manner, hopefully not too deep. Uh, but I will just make the final point from verse 1, how our fathers, written by Paul as a Jew, was clear in reference to Moses, Aaron, Joshua, but now they become our fathers. We are spiritual Jews. They remain physical Jews, of course. We don't hold to a placement theology. We don't hold to reformed theology. Because if you do, you do what the Catholic Church did to those Jews back in the, I think it was the 14th century or the 15th century. I, I read to you from Fox's Book of Martyrs. And the Calvinists do it as well. The Anglicans do it as well. They think they are Israel. They curse Israel because they take all the blessings from Israel. So for here and now in the church age, we are the people of God. Uh, we are the spiritual Israel. Ephesians chapter 6 for here and now, but we are not literal Israel. And once the rapture comes and we are taken out of the world, the Lord switches back to Israel and he deals with the Jews during the great tribulation. This rock that followed them, verse 4, is capital R in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I showed you that the church is built on the Lord Jesus Christ because when you sin against God, only God himself can forgive you. But the warning here from verse 5, but with many of them, unbelieving, apostate, rebellious Jews, God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. He killed them. And he can take a child of God out today if he chooses to. There is a sin unto death. We find it very clearly from scripture. But the chances are he would just take his peace from you. He'll take your joy from you. He will take your anointing from you, if you will, like he did with Samson. And you become barren. You become worthless. You go day to day, never knowing if you're coming or going. You have no power. You can't resist sin. You can't stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're like the walking dead. Six down to eight. These things happened as examples that we wouldn't do the same thing. And yet people never learn from history what has, has gone before them. Don't be idolaters. Seven. Don't commit fornication. Eight. Because if you do, judgment will fall on you. And the Lord could kill you. He killed Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5. Some of the Corinthians we saw last time had fallen through to their ungodliness. And that's offered very clearly in chapter 11, which we'll get to next time. I gave you the uh, explanation about the numbers, 23,000 or 24,000. And this does get cited by Bible objectors as a sort of discrepancy, a contradiction. But there's no discrepancy. There's no contradiction. As I say, Paul is focusing on the literal 24-hour period where the 
plague from the Lord came in reference to the apostate, uh, disobedient Jews in the wilderness, and he plagued them. 24,000 died ultimately, but in the first 24-hour period, it was 23,000. Don't tempt Christ. Nine. Don't murmur against him. Ten. These things happened. Eleven. As an example, that we wouldn't do the same thing. If you think there's something special, 12, humble yourself, lest you fall. 13, whatever you're going through, hang in there. It will come good. Nothing will come your way without the Lord knowing it. And whatever comes your way is come your way because the Lord's allowing it to happen. 14, down to 15, he's speaking to the elders of the church. He calls them dearly beloved and says, flee from idolatry. Which shows that you can commit idolatry if you're not careful. You can commit fornication and uh, you can deteriorate into even graver sins if you don't deal with your flesh. 16 down to 22 separation very much the context there and this two-tier system i suppose this current system running concurrence on the one hand they were worshiping the lord breaking bread every lord's day and yet on the other hand some of them were breaking bread to devils drinking uh blood and sacrificing blood and offering it to devils and he says that cannot be so that's treachery of course and it would be that's blasphemy in fact in the old testament if you did that you were put to death and he says, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? 22. Are we stronger than he? Of course not. Why would you want to do this anyway? If you're saved, why would you want to go to some pagan church and uh, take of the Eucharist or get caught up in foolishness? It's dangerous. And these devils, these demons will latch on to you. I don't think a saved man or woman can be demon possessed or devil possessed. I've never thought that. I've never taught that. But I do believe you can be oppressed by unclean spirits. All down to the permissive will of the Lord, because if you stray from him, what's he going to do? He's going to do what he can to bring you back to him. Look at the prodigal son in Luke 15. He moved heaven and earth to bring that man back to him. 23 down to probably, let's see, 26. Liberty, yes, but it's conditional liberty. It has to be very carefully weighed up in light of others and also in light of does it honour the Lord? How's it going to be seen in the light of unsaved people? Not just saved people. But unsaved people, whatever you eat, give glory to the Lord. But if it's offered via a feast or at a meal, 27. And if it's been offered to idols, 28, don't eat of it. But then ask yourself the question, what are you doing there in the first place? We get people coming up to us in the streets, talking to us. They say, you know, you're doing a great job here. Come around for a cup of coffee one day. Come around for a cup of tea one day. Come around for this, come around for that. We appreciate the offer. But the problem is, if we sit down with these people... They're not saved. They're not really interested in the word of God. They may be more intrigued by what we're doing. If we sit down with these people, we get yoked up with these people and they start to say something or they blaspheme or they, or they insinuate something or they suggest something which grieves our spirits. It's problematic. So we have to weigh up you know, the pros and cons. And yet if somebody said to me or Patrick, please come along for a cup of tea tonight and tell me about the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, fine. You know, we'd be in a, in a flash. But when it comes to being social... When it comes to just hanging around with people, you can't do it. That's why we are called out people. I mean, the word church in Greek is ecclesia. It means to be called out. It means to be separated. It goes back to what I said earlier, how the church, in a sense, is in the wilderness. We are in the wilderness. We are called out, of course, but we are in the wilderness in a sense. So you've got to be very careful what you do and how you do it. Because, as I say, if you're not careful, you can get caught up in being unequally yoked, getting caught up in people's politics. And I'm not referring to... Politics in the sense of Democrats or Republicans or Labour or Conservative. I mean, people's politics, everyday politics, politics of life. That's not what we are interested in. 28, going down to 
31, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God, if you can. But again, that's a difficult thing to do. It's also very difficult if you have, if you have unsaved family, if you have unsaved children, or if you work with unsaved people. And my philosophy has always been that I will sit down with anyone, anytime, anywhere, and share the gospel to them if they want me to preach to them. But I will not sit down in a social sense and have a cup of coffee or a latte or a cup of tea with somebody who's not saved and talk about the world, talk about sport, politics, entertainment. I'm not interested in that. Yes, I have the liberty to do so if I choose to, going back to 23. But if I do so, is it going to honour the Lord? No. Is it going to benefit me? Is it going to grow me as a Christian? No, of course it won't. And how are people going to see it? You know, How is it going to come across in people's eyes if I'm hanging around with unsaved people? But if they want me to preach to them, I'm in there like a flash, like I say. 32, going down to 33. Don't give offence. Don't become obnoxious. Uh, neither to the Jews nor the Gentiles nor the church of God. That's a tall order, I know, because we want to save people. We want to reach out to people in a false religion and get them out. And yet at the same time, we don't want to cause offence. We don't want to add affliction to affliction because the gospel to the Jews is a stumbling block and to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. And I see that every day of the week when I preach, when we give out tracts, people stopping, mocking, sneering, jeering. And yet, on the other hand, people say, thank you. We appreciate what you're doing. Keep up the good work. It's a paradox. Of course, it's a paradox. 33, one final time. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. That's typical Paul. I'm all things to all men that I might win some. The Lord Jesus Christ spent hours preaching to everyday people. He put himself out to reach unsaved people, which is what we should do as saved people when it comes to winning others to the Lord. And on top of that, building up. Brethren that have stumbled, brethren that are weak, brethren that are not necessarily strong in their faith to bring them closer to Lord Jesus Christ. So service, service and service. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. That's a tall order. If I was to say to you, follow me as I follow Christ, that's a pretty bold statement to make and yet the Lord Jesus Christ as I said last time chose 12 apostles to follow him and Paul wasn't one of them Paul got uh, called for service Acts chapter 9 and the Catholics say well Peter was the prince of the apostles well I'm not sure I think probably more likely to be Paul but ultimately the prince of the apostles is the Lord Jesus Christ be followers be imitators of me even as I also am of Christ. Like I said, it's a tall order, and yet we all need to have someone to follow, especially if we are new in the faith. We can't just arrive, get saved, not know really what to do. We have to have someone to follow. So Paul is a great example. That's why he was chosen to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he had two natures. He was a Jew, and he was also a Roman, which almost mirrors the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God and man, and yet, as I say, to follow Paul meant something. He lived the life that we probably will never live and what he forgot. We will never remember. We will never know because, as I say, he really set the bar. He was something else, but he wasn't Superman. He had his own faults and failures. We saw that from Romans 7. He would uh, he would, uh, very much be at grief at times that he couldn't be victorious all of the time. And from Philippians 3, he would say that, he hadn't yet reached perfection. So you can follow Paul. You can read the Pauline epistles. You can examine him in light of scripture. 
But uh, if you want to find somebody today to follow, that's going to be a different kettle of fish altogether. Verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. Ordinance would be translated in most Bibles to be traditions, or if you are a Catholic, sacraments. Now there's no sacrament for the born-again Bible-believing Christian, but the ordinance or the tradition would be baptism for the new believer, total immersion, if possible, and then the breaking of bread each and every possible opportunity. We break bread every Sunday. Some churches break bread every month. And if you are Jehovah's Witness, you break bread once a year. But I'll come back to that later. And he says here, Now I praise you, brethren, brothers, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. Paul set the foundation, like I say, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And what he set up pretty much from the moment he was called has lasted to this present time. Baptism, as I say, breaking of bread as and when you can. And if you are on your own, you can break bread on your own. You don't have to be with a group of others to break bread. And I got an email about a week ago from a brother in the UK who wants to be baptised. And I said to him that off the top of my head, I couldn't think of a church that would baptise him without requesting him to become a, a member. And I said to him, you have two options, my friend. You can either baptise yourself or do more street work and wait for somebody to come along and baptise you. But on top of that, he can break bread on his own if he needs to. But obviously it's always better, it's always nicer to, to break bread with a group of other Bible believers. But uh, like I say, you can do it on your own if you have to. And you can baptise yourself on your own if you have to. But the preference should be to find somebody to baptise you by total immersion. And to break bread with as and when possible. Verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. The context pretty much for this piece of scripture is for church fellowship. Chapter 11 is about church meetings for uh, Jew and Gentile. And if you were a Jew that got saved in the first century, the chances are your synagogue would become a church. The word church, of course, is ecclesia, meaning the called out. But if you were a Gentile in the first century, the chances are you'd meet in someone's house. It could be Aquila and Priscilla, found very much in the book of Acts, uh, and also the household of Stephanus and Chloe, but I think also in Ephesus and other parts of the Roman Empire, churches would have been built, or very small churches, not like you find today, to break bread and to remember what the Lord did in the cross for us. Let's break down verse 3 a little more carefully if we may. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, if you're born again. And the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Christ isn't below God in the sense of being inferior to him, and Christ obviously being Messiah, Christos, anointed in submission to God, but he's not below God. We know from Philippians 2 that the Lord Jesus Christ emptied himself of his deity and took upon himself the nature of a servant. So the head of every man is Christ, if he's born again, and the head of the woman is the man, again, in the sense of the man being saved, in the sense of the woman being under the man, if she's saved as well, and the head of Christ is God. I'll come back to verse 3 a little later. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoureth his head. His head is Christ from verse 3, and please remember one more time, this is in reference to a church service, like this morning. If I was to stand this morning wearing a cap or a hat, According to this piece of scripture, I would be disobeying or dishonouring my head. 
The context here is not having a blanket prohibition to wearing a hat or a covering, but only when the church gather to worship the Lord should a man or a brother not have his head covered. Also praying, prophesying. There's two meanings for prophesying, and I'll get to that in more detail when we get to chapter 12. But the main theme of prophesying, or the main understanding of prophesying, is to praise the Lord. It's not to foretell the future. Now, it's true that some of the early church leaders could predict the future, like Agabus uh, and the apostles, of course. But this is written about 59, 60 AD. And by this time of Paul's writing, most of the apostolic sign gifts had ceased. So every man praying or prophesying, worshipping the Lord in a local church assembly, having his head covered, dishonoureth his head. And also it would look rather strange if I was to stand up here this morning with a cap, baseball cap, or a cowboy hat, or a snap brim. It would look slightly bizarre. And yet Catholic priests, bishops wear a mitre during their service, which according to this piece of scripture dishonours their head. And as I say, the head of the man is Christ. And this also goes back to submission but I'll get back to that a little later as we move through this piece of scripture. Verse 5. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoureth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. He's saying that a woman that prays or prophesies during a typical Lord's Day service. And again, prophesying not necessarily in reference to foretelling the future. But praising the Lord, worshipping the Lord, singing to the Lord, so on and so forth. Dishonours her head. And I think of... One very well-known Irish singer who I shan't name, who shaved her hair very short about 20 years ago. And as far as the Lord is concerned, that is a great dishonour. And she also offers herself as a Christian, so-called. And yet I read about five or six years ago that she was ordained a Catholic priest. So make of that what you will. But a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, no covering per se, dishonours her head. In fact, if you were to go back to the 1950s, going into the 1960s, every church denomination, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Brethren, Presbyterian, Methodist, Salvation Army, so on and so forth, would have expected their women to wear a head covering during that service. Both my grandmothers were Catholic, and up until the Second Vatican Council, they would go to Mass and they would cover their heads with a covering. It also pictures submission not only to the Lord, but also in reference to their husbands. And yet feminists today abhor this piece of scripture. Feminists today will say, there you are, see Paul as a misogynist, chauvinist individual. But what does scripture say? Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof and correction. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped unto all good works. Nobody wrote the word of God for their own interpretation off their own back. They wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to critique Paul, if you are a feminist, you need to critique the Lord God of the Bible because he inspired Paul to write the word of God. Six, for if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Shorn, Old English, for shear. And you think of shearing a sheep. This is quite graphic. He's saying that a woman that prays the Lord without covering her head may just as well shave her head, like this very famous Irish singer. Most people say, well, this is Paul speaking to first century Christians. It's not applicable for today. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not dogmatic about this, but Paul's going to take, what, the next 16 verses to 
lay his feelings on this whole theme of people meeting to worship the Lord. So don't be too quick to spiritualize this or to say, well, this was just for the first century. Seven, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. Oh, they love that. Man was made first in the image of God and from man's rib, Eve was created. And in Genesis 5, she's called Mrs. Adam. If you are a woman, before you got married, you took your father's name. When you got married, you took your husband's name. If you have children, your children take their father's name. There's no equality in the word of God. But saying that, I will say this, there's no inequality either. You don't treat women with contempt. You don't disrespect them. But the whole theme here is that the man was made in the image of God. And the woman was made for the man. I'll make her help meet. From the book of Genesis 8. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. One more time. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. The two are inseparable. Yes, man was made first, and woman came for man. But the woman gives life, not the man. You put two men together, you get nothing. You put two women together, you get nothing. And we have this gay pride March that takes place every year in the UK and it's very well attended. The government push it very hard and they fund it. And yet I've asked myself over the years, what are they marching for? Two men can't produce a child. Two women cannot produce a child. But a man and a woman can produce a child and that's something to march for. But of course we live in a generation now where it's politically incorrect for me to say that. In fact, for me to say that, I'd be considered to be a hate monger. But what does the scripture say? Let God be true and every man a liar. 10. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Power, authority. Some people say, well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 6, you find these fallen angels having intercourse with the daughters of men. And they produce this half-breed of human slash angelic beings, the giants, the Nephilims. And the Lord sent a flood to destroy the whole world. Some people say that the angels are very interested in the church, and that's true. Godly angels and also fallen angels, and Satan is very interested in the body of Christ. But uh, let's look at this one more time. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Also the angels from the gospel, I think it's Matthew 18 and Mark 9, behold the Father's face in heaven. Which goes back to the notion that we have a guardian angel who's not necessarily on the earth, but our guardian angel is in heaven, always beholding the face of the Father. The woman here also would be in reference to the weaker vessel, hence why she is to have power on her head because of the angels. I won't go beyond that. I know some people think that it's possible for fallen angels to have uh, inappropriate relations with saved women. I don't accept that. That's stretching it too far. But go back to Genesis chapter 6 and you find the fallen angels having inappropriate relations with the women and producing this half-bred angelic human form this offspring as i say which result in the lord to destroy on the earth but i have to say this because it is a fact that the woman in scripture is always presented as the weaker vessel she's more emotional than a typical man would be hence why women are not called to be in positions of authority they can't teach the bible they can't be pastors they can't be elders they can't even be deacons but they can pray for those of us which are in the front line. They can support us in other ways, but they cannot take the position of authority per se because they are problematic. And go back to, or that's problematic, I should say, and go back to the book of Genesis. The word of God tells us how the devil approached Eve, 
seduced Eve, she fell, and through her fall, the whole of the human race fell along with her. But read it carefully, Adam was standing next to her, which suggests to me that Eve wore the trousers, as they say, which is something else that the Lord abhors when you have a saved woman wearing the trousers. If you are a man of God, if you are born again, you should wear the trousers in your house. I know it's a pretty uh, well-used expression, but it's very valid. 11. Nevertheless, neither is a man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. That's very true. Woman came from man, but without the woman, there would be no man, there would be no human race. As I say, that's something to celebrate. And this term, in the Lord, he's speaking to saved people here. If you're a saved woman married to an unsaved man, although your marriage is sanctified, although your marriage is given a blessing, according to chapter 7 of this great epistle, you still are in submission to your husband, but that is limited, of course, and you're not expected to do something or anything which is sinful or which would be anti-scriptural. And the same is true of those of us which are saved and not necessarily married, but we know from Acts chapter 5 that if we are told to do something which is anti-scriptural, we're to obey the Lord God of the Bible. But that's another theme for another day. Verse 12, for as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Goes back to creation again, or procreation. Goes back to the book of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So the theme here is still married couples, meeting in a church, fellowship, could be a synagogue now turned into a church, or it could be a house uh, fellowship, which meets to worship the Lord. But you can't get around it, for as a woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. If you want to celebrate something, celebrate marriage. Celebrate a man and a woman producing a child. Something two men cannot do, something two women cannot do. Verse 13. Judging yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Is it right? Is it appropriate for a woman to pray in a church service unto the Lord or to the Lord uncovered? He doesn't think so. He says, no, if you don't cover up, that is a disgrace. And yet some people say, well, this was just for the first century. We have liberty in the Lord. Yes, you do. But let's read on, please. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. He's now switching it to a man. Paul's going to be fair here. On the one hand, he's going to criticize men that have long hair, effeminate men. We saw that from chapter six. And he says, that's a disgrace. That's a shame. And on the other hand, he's saying for a woman who doesn't cover up during a Lord's Day service, that is a disgrace. And there's two ways to deal with this piece of scripture. And I think verse 15 is going to help us out here. But if the woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given her for a covering. If you've got long hair, that's partly your covering. And if you haven't got long hair, maybe you want to grow out your hair. Because the Lord here is saying that is given to you as a covering to glorify the Lord God of the Bible. There's something about women that have long hair which... Is found in scripture to be pleasing to the Lord. Whereas a woman who has short hair like this famous Irish rock star who I keep quoting, but I think it's valid, is somehow a dishonor to the Lord. I think also it kind of portrays the woman as being butch, can I say, being effeminate, being a lesbian. And I know these verses aren't necessarily popular with certain groups of the church. I appreciate that. But, uh, you know, I didn't write the Bible. I'm just reading it this morning. I'm just teaching it as well as I can and as faithfully as I can. 16. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. One more time. But if any man seem to be contentious, argumentative, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. 
If you are a brother in the Lord, you have long hair down to your shoulders. He's saying, cut your hair because you are going to appear to be effeminate. You're going to bring dishonor to the Lord. And that's not the main theme of scripture. He wants you to be disciplined. He wants your outward appearance to reflect your inward appearance. If your heart's right, you will dress and act and behave appropriately. But if you are rebellious, if you are one of those people that is very much into tattoos and has long hair and dresses inappropriately, you're bringing dishonor to the Lord. And yes, you have liberty in the Lord. I said that last time. That liberty is limited to what's appropriate during a typical Lord's Day service. And also he says a woman doesn't cover up when she prays or prophesies. It's just the equivalent to shaving her hair like a skinhead. This is how Paul's going to deal with this piece of scripture. And it goes back, as I say, to angels observing a typical church meeting. And we know from scripture that the angels are very interested in this type of situation that is occurring today. And they would have been very interested in the first century church. And they are always going to be interested in how a church service should meet. So two things I would say to tie these verses up together. First of all, if you are a woman, long hair would be preferred. On top of that, to avoid any problems, to avoid any situations occurring, put a covering over your head. But if you don't do that, it's problematic, as I say, because the angels are going to take a look at you. You're going to be dishonoring your head and also be dishonoring your husband. On top of that, a man who has long hair, is effeminate, cut your hair, and a man who wears a hat or covering during a typical Lord's Day service, dishonors his head as well. And his head, of course, is Christ. 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For some of these people gathering for the Lord's Day service, which we're going to find over the next several verses, was like a party. It was like a feast. Coming together to have a great social event. And they forgot that they were coming to remember what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross for our sins. Verse 18, but first of all, when ye come together into the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Divisions, schisms, sects arising, and he said, I partly believe it. And here we are 2,000 years later, the same sects, schisms, and uh, disagreements are still very much prevalent today. But we have the word of God, which we can go to to check to see whether things are so or not. 19, for there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. They, in reference to elders, not a one-man pastor, and these godly men should be able to spot heresies, plural, when they arrive on the scene. He doesn't say put up with it. He says deal with it. Otherwise, little leaven leavens the whole lump. 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. When you come together, therefore, into one place, could be a synagogue turned into a church, or it could be someone's home. This is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. How could it be these people were drinking, getting drunk, eating too much food, and dishonouring the Lord's Supper? The fruit of the vine, which we'll get to a little later, was new wine, and it was also grape juice. If you go back to the first century in Israel, you find very clearly that the Jews would obviously have wedding services, you know, ceremonies, they'd have feasts, as we're going to read now. And because their water supply wasn't as pure as it is today in most of the world, they would mix it with wine. So it'd be about, I think, 60% wine, 40% water. 
they would mix it up to a avoid to avoid becoming drunk and b also to drink it not give yourself a sick feeling not to get some kind of infection what have you because the water like i say wasn't pure so here these people arrived at the judgment these people arrived excuse me at the lord's day service eating too much drinking too much and getting drunk it can happen just because you're saved doesn't mean you're going to be somehow exempt from falling into all sorts of sins but Paul's going to take the next several verses out to deal with these people. Verse 22. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God? And shame them that have not. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Say people that don't have homes to live in. Homeless Christians, could it be? And yet most charismatics will say that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy the wealthiest man or woman in your town. And if you're not wealthy, if you're not prosperous, there's something wrong with you. Paul lived hand to mouth. I've already shown you that. These apostles didn't own the bank of Nazareth. They really did struggle until the day that they would all die. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He told us the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. And yet today's prosperity preachers have their own boats, homes, and even their own aeroplanes. 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. For I have received of the Lord. That's direct revelation. Not from Pope Peter, not from the Queen of Heaven, but from the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably when he went up to the third heaven, which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. Leavened bread. And when he had given thanks he brake it and said take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And we're going to do this very shortly. We're going to break bread to remember what he did for us on the cross. And yet I was watching a documentary last night about the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they will meet once a year every Easter or Passover and they will only allow their anointed, around 9,000 of their super-duper holy-now individuals, to break bread. The rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses cannot break bread. So you are a typical JW working 30 hours a week, going door-to-door, going to meetings five nights a week. According to you, according to your system, you're not applicable, you're not allowed to break bread. But my Bible says that we can do it once a week, once a month. Or once every other month. We do it every day if you wanted to. Just read Romans 14. So it's very tragic that the JWs are not permitted to break with the bread. And the flip side to that, or the other extreme to that, would be the Roman Catholics who make a big song and dance about the Eucharist. They can have it every day of the week if they choose to. And when they offer the wafer, the priest will say the body of Christ. And down they go on their knees. And he holds up the chalice and he says, the blood of Christ. And down they go on their knees, which is idolatry. And I showed you from chapter 8 how meat doesn't commend us to the Lord. We can't be commended to the Lord by anything apart from grace. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 25. After the same manner, also took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. This cup, not a chalice, is a new testament, the new covenant in my blood. This do ye, all of you, 
not just the 9,000 JWs, all of you without exception, as oft, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As far as I'm concerned, the breaking of bread is a great privilege to do. It's something that I couldn't imagine not doing. And like I said earlier on, if you are on your own, break bread on your own if you need to. Just get some ordinary bread, get some fruit juice, some Ribena if you want, and have a sip or two of the juice and a mouth, you know, uh, just a bit of bread to eat. Not a whole slice of bread, I don't think. Maybe just a tiny piece, break it off and eat it in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's more preferred if you could do it with others, of course, but if you can't do it with others, do it on your own. 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I got an email from a Catholic asking me to explain this piece of scripture. And he said to me, well, you know, you don't hold to the Eucharist being the literal blood of the Lord or the wafer being the literal body of the Lord. I said, that's true, I don't. And he said to me, well, why does it say here that if you eat or drink unworthily, you are guilty of the body of the Lord? Go back to chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's try and tie these verses up together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's start, if we may, in verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Judgment seat. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Works not a man's soul. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward, a crown. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Judgment seat again, not purgatory. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. The Holy Spirit lives within you, and your body is a temple of God. Know it's your temple, he lives within you. But watch it, 17. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Acts chapter 5, Ananiah and Sapphira are clear examples of what happens when two saved people defile their temple, the Lord kills them. Chapter 5, verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Put him or her out of the church in order for them to repent and come back into fellowship. Why? So that their spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 6, 18. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Same theme. Your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. When you sin against your body, you sin against God. Keep that in mind. 19. What? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not of your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. So chapter 11, one more time, chapter eleven, twenty-nine. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily with sin in his life, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 6, Eateth and drinketh damnation, judgment, to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Worst case scenario, Acts chapter 5, the Lord will kill you. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. If you are saved, brother or sister, and you are weak and sickly, 
Examine yourself. It might be that there is sin in your life, unconfessed sin, but it may not be. It may just be that you are unwell, run down, sick, what have you. Maybe you've been afflicted by the devil, but just examine yourself, just be on the safe side. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. If we don't confess our sins, if we don't examine ourselves before we break with the bread, we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. He wants to present his church spotless, blameless, at the judgment seats of the Lord. And yet, Christians around this time, 59, 60, 61 AD, were indulging in sin. They weren't dealing with their sins. They were coming to the Lord's table with gross sin in their life. And God said, no, what? That's not going to happen. I'm not going to accept that. This is an early church. I'm going to put some of your people to death. Verse 33. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that he come not together under condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. So please understand one thing, if nothing else, from this message this morning, that the breaking of the bread, the Lord's table, is sacred. And if you come to the Lord's table with sin in your life, you are dishonouring the Lord. You're giving the devil an opportunity to blaspheme you. And you're going to become weak and sickly and even sleep. Verse 30, a metaphor for dying. So 34 verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as always, much material to look at. He starts off by saying to follow him even as he followed Christ. In John 21, the Lord said to Peter, follow thou me. He didn't say follow the church of Rome. He didn't say follow the church of Canterbury. He didn't say follow the Methodists or the Baptists or the Presbyterians or the Salvation Army. He said, follow thou me. If you're born again, you should follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're fortunate enough to have godly brothers in the Lord, not sisters, but brothers in the Lord, you can follow, follow. But don't hold them up on a pedestal. They're not perfect. You won't find perfect brothers everyone's got their own achilles heel everyone's got their own problem no one's going to be perfect so don't idolize your pastor or your elder or those that you consider to be something special as i say no one's going to be perfect as i said paul lamented over his two natures from romans 7 and philippians chapter 3 but if you are a new christian and you can find somebody a good brother to follow to get you on your feet go for it but check him out carefully in light of Holy Scripture. 2 down to 16. How do you address? How do you behave when you come together to worship the Lord? Well, first of all, the ordinances have to be observed. Baptism by total immersion for the new Christian and the breaking of bread each and every Lord's Day service. That's what I would offer that to mean. And no more than that. There's no sacraments in the Scriptures. There's just ordinances. Breaking of bread and total baptism for the new Bible believing Christian. 4 down to 16, building on that, a woman has to cover up during a typical breaking of bread, a typical Lord's Day service. And up until 1965, all of the churches, almost all of the churches, without exception, would have expected their women to cover their heads when they went to church. It could be a hat for a woman. It could be a simple, modest covering. But what they would never expect is men to wear a hat or a cap during a typical church service in fact if you see a typical church service even an apostate church service 
today where men are wearing hats. It looks slightly odd and it is odd because it's not acceptable because as I say the man's head is the Lord. He is in submission to his Lord and the woman's head is the man. It could be her husband, it could be her father if her father is saved but if she doesn't have a saved husband, if she doesn't have a saved father then her covering will be not just the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, he's her, he would be her ultimate covering, but it may be her pastor or it could be an elder or a brother that she trusts. And he builds on every man who prays or prophesying with his head covered dishonors his head. I will look at the term to prophesy in much greater detail from chapter 12 next time. But here I think he's really speaking about those that proclaim the Lord, those that worship the Lord. They can praise the Lord. And that's a pretty unique gift. You know, I don't claim to be a great prophesier or one that can prophesy. I do pray, of course, but to really praise the Lord, to almost sing psalms to the Lord, to almost worship the Lord like a an ongoing organist, if you will. That's something I don't particularly understand, but I know what he's referring to. Uh, but I can pray, but to prophesy, to praise the Lord, I think comes with time. It comes with maturity. Five, every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Go back to what I just said in reference to the Lord being over her along with her husband, if he's saved, or her father, if he's saved, or if her husband's not saved, if her father's not saved, then it would be a faithful brother in the Lord, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. It's pretty extreme. If you don't cover up, he's saying you might as well shave your hair off. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn, but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. It would be pretty awful to have your head shaved or sheared, in fact, during the Second World War, you had women in France who were collaborators with German officers. And after the war, as a sign of their sin, of their compromise, they had their heads shaved. They were stigmatized and people said to themselves, look at these women over here. They were collaborators and they were singled out to be reprimanded for collaborating with the Germans. And here, the theme is still very much on the fact that woman has to Worship the Lord in a particular way. The Lord is very pernickety how people should worship him. If you go back to the Old Testament, you find one chapter for Genesis in reference to the creation. Maybe two chapters if you are lucky. Followed by 25, 30 chapters on the creation of Israel. Followed by an entire book, Leviticus, on worship. Following Exodus, of course. So two chapters on creation. One entire book on worship. That tells you something about what the Lord wants you to do for him. Seven, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head during a typical church service for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. I'm sorry, but it's a fact. If you are a woman saved, you had your father's name before you were married. And now you are married, you have your husband's name and your children have their father's name. Go back to Genesis chapter five. If you don't believe me, it says Adam's wife was called Mrs. Adam. Yes, she's called Eve, but she's ultimately referred to as Mrs. Adam. And to the best of my knowledge, as I stand here this morning, I can't find any verse in the Old Testament where it tells me that Eve ever died, let alone how old she was. There's some kind of stigma there, perhaps in reference to the fall of Eve, which, as I say, goes back to Satan approaching her. And because Adam was weak, she listened to the devil. She fell along with Adam. Hence why the man should wear the trousers in the house. Eight, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. That's true. And yet at the same time, they can't live without each other. In other words, a man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Still very much the same theme. For this cause, for this reason, ought the woman to have power or authority 
on her head because of the angels. Godly angels, on the one hand, observing what goes on throughout the body of Christ, and also, without stretching it too much, ungodly angels also observing saved women and how they conduct their selves in the light of the Lord and in light of the church. Nevertheless, neither is a man without the woman, neither woman without the man in the Lord. It's the married, saved couple. For the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. You can't miss it, it's still very much the same theme here. And 13 down to 16, judging yourselves, is it right, is it acceptable if a woman prays to the Lord during a typical church day service with her head uncovered? He says no. In fact, he, said, he says uh, not even nature itself would uh, uphold this. And on top of that, it is a shame, it is a disgrace for man if he has long hair. So if you are a brother in the Lord, cut your hair. And if you are a brother in the Lord who has tattoos, I might just quickly add, cover them up. And I'll say the same thing to women. I know some women have had tattoos before they got saved. Cover them up if you can. I know you're saved by grace and having tattoos isn't going to send you to hell. And having long hair if you're a man isn't going to send you to hell. And having short hair if you are a woman isn't going to send you to hell. But for proper service to honour the Lord, all things must be done uh, in order for his name's sake and for his glory. And 16, one last time, if you are contentious, if you are argumentative, if you are... The sort of guy who thinks it's okay to have long hair, he says, listen, we have no such custom, nor here, nor in the churches of God. All our churches, he's saying, follow a particular theme. 17 down to 21, he's going to take time to deal with the Lord's table. And he doesn't want these people arriving hungry and eating all of the food and drinking too much of the fruit of the vine, which, yes, it was partly wine and grape juice diluted with water, as I say. He wants people to arrive at the Lord's table with plenty of time, not overly hungry. He says, eat at home. Don't arrive to break bread hungry and end up having this great uh, overeating, causing dishonour and people coming to the church. And then what's going on here? It's like these people are starving. It dishonours the Lord and go back to the early church, take the time to look at a typical Jewish service. They would spend maybe two or three hours having a full-blown meal. In fact, go back to the early church, the first three centuries, every Lord's Day service, they would meet on hills, all over the Roman Empire, pre-dawn. And they would wait for the sun to come up. And they would sing praises. They would worship the Lord. may have a reading of the word of God. And after two or three hours, they'd go to their local homes, synagogues, church buildings, and then have a breaking of bread service. Today's churches are very different. Most Protestant, evangelical, Bible-believing churches will spend maybe 90 minutes at that, breaking bread, having a reading of the word of God, perhaps sing a few hymns or psalms and then go home. And if you're lucky, you might get a Sunday night service where only a, maybe a third will turn up compared to what turned up or those who turned up during the Sunday morning service. The early church, very much cherished, coming together on a Sunday morning, pre-dawn, as I say, to worship the Lord, to remember what he did for us. Because for many of them, they'd been ostracized. For many of them, they'd been driven out from their families. They had nothing. So for them, brethren was everything. Whereas today, we're spots. Most towns in the West especially have a church in every street corner. And although there may be apostates, they are still church buildings. And people who want to go to a church building, literal church system, if you will, can flick a coin. But always remember that the church is the people, not the building. And where two or three gather, Christ is there in the midst of such people. 23 down to probably, let's see now, 28, 29. Paul tells you that he received from the Lord directly exactly what happened pre the crucifixion. He didn't get it from Peter or James or John or Mary. 
He got it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. So you could say that Paul, on the one hand, was the prince of the apostles, but ultimately from, I think it's Hebrews chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ is called our apostle with a capital A. So the Lord Jesus Christ is really the, uh, the, uh, the prince of the apostles, but Paul said he got it from the Lord in reference to what happened pre the crucifixion, which reaffirms, as far as I'm concerned, Paul's credentials for being an apostle. And you were told in 24 to break the bread and do it in remembrance of him. Literal bread, not a wafer, which you find in a, in a, in a typical uh, Catholic service. And juice, fruit of the vine, not literal red wine or white wine, which you would find in a typical Catholic service. And you were told to do it in remembrance to remember him. You can't get saved doing this. I'm sorry, but if you are a Catholic, taking up the Eucharist every week, every Sunday, or every day of the week, if you really are a super-duper Catholic, that won't save you. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. But if you are saved, then breaking of the bread is something which you should do to cleanse yourself, to bring you closer to your Saviour. Confess your sins before you arrive, otherwise you're going to bring damnation, judgment to you, 30, and become weak physically and also spiritually weak. You'll become dry, you won't be able to read your Bible, you won't be able to understand the word of God, and you'll become sick, probably physically, and then sleep, die in the Lord. But if we judge ourselves, 31, we should not be judged. Examine yourself, just take a few minutes out every day, check yourself out. Are you still hungry for the Lord? Do you still read the word of God? Are you able to witness to people as and when you can? Are you growing in holiness or are you still battling the same old sins? You won't be perfect. You won't be sinless. Read Romans 7 if you get a chance. Paul says that. What I wanted to do, I don't do. And that, what I don't want to do, I do. In Philippians chapter 3, he tells us he hasn't yet reached perfection. But if you are saved, there should be a picture of spiritual growth. You should be growing if you have been saved for 5 years or 10 years or 15 years. There should be an increase in holiness and a decrease in sin. But if you won't judge yourselves, the Lord will judge you. He will chasten you, 32, to avoid you being condemned with the world, to avoid you being sent to hell with the world. And that goes back to chapter 5. Put him out of the fellowship, excommunicate him so that he will learn not to blaspheme and then bring him back into the church fellowship, into the fold. 33 down to 34. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that he come not together unto condemnation, judgment. And the rest, well, I said in order when I come. You can't miss it. Just follow the, the Apostle Paul. Follow his clear words here of holiness, righteous service, righteous worship, correct worship. You can worship the Lord incorrectly. He wants you to worship him correctly and do everything for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So examine yourself, confess your sins. Make sure that when you meet for corporate fellowship, if you do meet for corporate fellowship, that you dress appropriately. And I'll say one final time, men, lose your hats or head coverings. Cut your hair if it's too long. And women, grow your hair long if you can. And on top of that, just be on the safe side, maybe put a covering on your head. Don't allow the devil to blaspheme you. Don't allow the devil to get one over on you. We know from Revelation how he accuses us day and night before the throne of glory. He attacks us. Don't allow him to do that. And don't allow others to criticise you either. As I say, pre-1965, all of the churches, all the apostate churches, expect their women to cover their heads during a typical church service. All of them. And yet today, most don't even bother. Most churches today don't expect their women to cover their heads 
far and few between do. And yet I've seen saved gypsies, saved gypsy women of all people who dress more conservatively than some Orthodox women do, who've come from Reformed backgrounds, Anglican backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds. So that's something to think about, isn't it? So 34 verses. Um, I think we've covered probably the main points here as well as I can without spending too long going through every single verse. But uh, please keep in mind that you can break bread on your own if you need to. And you should be able to break bread at least once a week. I think it's tragic that the JWs don't allow themselves to break bread unless they are one of the 9,000 anointed. Which again is ridiculous. It's, you know, it's a ridiculous man-made teaching. If you're born again, and they're not born again of course. Don't misunderstand me. They are not born again. But they will tell you that they are Christians. They will tell you that they are following the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they are excluding themselves from the Lord's table. But if you're born again... You can break bread on your own, get some bread, get some juice, say eat it in moderation, drink it in moderation. And before you do so, just confess your sins to the Lord, ask him to cleanse you, ask him to forgive you of your sins from the last Sunday service that you had. And then break the bread if you need to, take up the juice if you need to. But do so, as I say, with the mindset that the angels are watching you, godly angels, because you have a guardian angel quite possibly who's in heaven, not on the earth, who's always beholding the Father's face. And yet to be, as I say, on the safe side, you know, this theme doesn't escape me of ungodly angels perhaps taking too much of an interest in saved women. They could be married women, they could be single women, but because the woman is found in scripture to be the weaker vessel, these angels are looking to exploit such women. So cover up, and if you're a brother, get the scissors out and uh, have a haircut. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Gifts, plural, and every charismatic and Pentecostal will quote this piece of scripture until they are blue in the face, along with chapter 14, which we'll get to next time. And gifts here are found in the plural, and these are supernatural gifts, which the Holy Spirit gives to each and every one of us as he chooses. It's a a sovereign uh, issue for him. You can't request gift A, B, or C. He bestows upon each of us whatever gift he wishes to. Also keep in mind, please, that around this time from 1 Corinthians, the Jewish apostolic sign gifts are still very much in evidence. This is during the testimonial period from law to grace. And if you think Corinthians 12 would be around probably, let's see now, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11. Go back and read Acts chapter 10, please. Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 12. And you get an idea as to where we are as far as God's uh, prophetic time clock is concerned. But he says here, I wouldn't have you ignorant, and yet they were ignorant. They were a carnal church. And most groups stay around the world, charismatic, Pentecostal, even Calvinists are now getting involved with the sign gifts, are ignorant. And the word of God says, my people perish through lack of knowledge. Verse 2, you know that you were Gentiles, carried away under these dumb idols, even as you were led. Modern English, you know that when you were Gentiles, before you were saved, you were carried away under these Dumb, dead, ridiculous idols, even as you are led. The Corinthians were a kind of bunch of people, and I've said this repeatedly, that they came from a part of Greece which was steeped in superstitious pagan worship. Every imaginable cult and sect was evident around the first century. Never mind the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Moonies or the Masons today. They had it all then. So they were carried away. They were enslaved by these false religions pre their new birth. The next verse is very alarming and it's very concerning verse 3 wherefore i give you to understand that no man speaking by the spirit of god calleth jesus accursed and that no man can say that jesus is the lord but by the holy ghost 
What a strange and also striking piece of scripture. Look at chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. You might think to yourself, why is Paul saying that? If anyone doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be cursed, maranatha, meaning come Lord Jesus. Go back to chapter 12. Look at it again. Chapter 12, verse 3. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that some of you Corinthians were speaking in tongues, and as you were speaking in tongues, it was gibberish. It wasn't the sort of tongues you find in Acts chapter 2, which we'll get to from chapter 14, but it was gibberish. It was learned behavior. And I'll tell you this, that the Mormons speak in tongues, the Red Indians or the Native Americans, as they are now called, speak in tongues. Satanists speak in tongues. And these Corinthians were cursing the Lord Jesus Christ as they were speaking in tongues. Can you imagine that? This was a carnal group of people, and yet somehow, in a way that I don't quite understand, they were coming to the Lord's table, not only drunk, and we saw that from chapter 11, but they were speaking in tongues, gibberish, learned behavior, and they were cursing the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to stand this morning and say every charismatic, every Pentecostal around the world that speaks in tongues is cursing the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to say that every Pentecostal and charismatic is being led by unclean spirits, but it's pretty clear to me that the Corinthians were, to some extent. I'll be more reserved and say that probably most of the Corinthians found in Scripture along with charismatics and Pentecostals today are doing what we call mimicking or speaking with a sense of a learned behaviour. You can pick up tongues very easily if you are around charismatics a lot. You hear them speaking all sorts of strange sounds and you can pick it up very quickly. There was a story a while ago of a woman who was saved and she was putting her washing out one day and her next door neighbour was putting her washing out and she could hear this woman next door walking up and down the garden speaking in gibberish and she put her head over the fence and she said, "Uh, what are you doing there, Mr. Such and Such? And she said, I'm practicing my tongues because you can lose it if you don't practice it. Can you believe it? What a ridiculous statement. The Holy Spirit will give gifts as he sees fit and if he gives you the gift of tongues, which is very clearly defined in Acts chapter 2, to be a known language, not gibberish. This is a very messed up church. And when you come across people that speak about tongues, 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 you're dealing with carnal people. In fact, the last verse but one, tongues is listed right at the end of this chapter. So he says, wherefore, I give you to understand that no man, note that, doesn't say woman, that no man speaking by the Spirit of God, filled with the Holy Ghost, calleth Jesus accursed. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, meaning God, but by the Holy Ghost. That's true. If you're born again, The Holy Spirit will lead you to worship him in truth and in spirit. You will praise him. You will give him his glory. You won't take him down to just a mere prophet as the Mormons and the JWs do, but you will hold him up as Lord God Almighty and you won't say he is accursed. It's quite incredulous. I know that such a church could do this. Such a church could be worshipping the Lord during a regular Sunday service morning like today and yet they were blaspheming him. That's frightening to speak in tongues if you are around in the first century or to speak in tongues if you are in a system today which practices this, maybe you are blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ. I went to a meeting years ago when I first got saved and uh, this guy was speaking in tongues next to me and I said to him, what are you saying? And he said to me, I don't know what I'm saying and I don't care either. I thought, that's pretty shocking because from chapter 14 it says, if anyone speaks in an unknown tongue, let somebody interpret. But we'll get to that a little later. Verse 4, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Diversities, different gifts, but the same spirit. 
No two people will ever get the same gift. No two people will ever get the same type of ministry. If you're fortunate, you might be a jack of all trades, as I am and Patrick is. But most people or most ministries don't get the same type of blessing, the same type of endowment by the Holy Ghost. One more time. Now, there are diversities of gifts, plural, but the same spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. Different types of ministries, I would say this is probably in reference to, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. We're not all the same. When you come across people that speak the same way, that dress the same way, that operate the same way, that's slightly unusual. David wasn't the same as Solomon. Paul wasn't the same as Peter. John wasn't the same as James. Their writings differ considerably. Go back to the Old Testament, read uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. They wrote very differently to how Samuel wrote or how David wrote in the Psalms. Verse 7, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. All of us will have at least one spiritual, supernatural gift. But again, these verses are still very much in reference to this inter-testimonial period. And this point of writing, maybe only a third, if that, of the New Testament had been written. The early church were very much led by prophets like Agabus, not like Ezekiel, Jeremiah or Isaiah. We know from Matthew chapter 11 how all the law and the prophets ended with John the Baptist. So please be careful when you read these verses not to take from here what is not there. Verse 8. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and self same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Verse 9, faith, not faith to believe the Lord Jesus Christ, but faith to perhaps be a missionary, faith to perhaps die for the Lord Jesus Christ overseas. I saw a documentary a few nights ago of churches in Africa, and they meet every Sunday for 12 hours on their feet in over 100 degrees heat. You can't imagine it. They get up at 4.30 every morning, they pray for two to three hours before the sun comes up, which is what the early church used to do, I should just remind you. And I heard of an American missionary who went to one church in Africa two or three years ago. And he got up and he started to preach to them. And he preached for two hours. And they said to him, keep going. And he preached for four hours. And they said, keep going. And he preached for six hours. And they said, keep going. And he said to them, when do you take a break? And they said to him, we don't take a break. And he preached for 12 hours on his feet. Went home, exhausted. And they said to him, "Uh, would it be presumptuous if you were to come back and do it all again tomorrow? So he went back the following day and did it all over again and he collapsed. Second day, went home and they said to him, would it be presumptuous if you were to come back and do it all over again the next day? For three days, this American missionary preached for 30 hours. Can you imagine that? He had this gift of faith. But go back to verse 8. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. Wisdom, for now anyway, is defined in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wisdom is found in the word of God. But please remember what I just said to that. When Paul wrote this piece of scripture, the word of God wasn't finished. They were still living day to day by faith, very much uh, the mercy of their prophets. And he goes on to say, to another, the word of knowledge by the same spirit. Maybe you can see quite clearly, I hope anyway, that this piece of scripture doesn't really have direct reference today. And yet, in some ways it does, because 
9, one more time, to another faith by the same spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same spirit. Now these are supernatural gifts of healing, not sort of thing you see at a typical Benny Hinn or Joyce Mayer or T.D. Jakes meeting where they lay hands on somebody who claims to have come from a background where they couldn't see or they couldn't walk or they couldn't use their left arm or the right arm. Many of those people are simply either actors or they are very much going through the placebo effect. But I won't dismiss all those people completely. There may be some people that have been saved. You know, I'm not going to say that the Lord doesn't save. He does still save, but he doesn't save people and heal people the same way I might add. Some of these meetings, people do get healed, but far and few between. You won't find people going to a meeting that are totally blind or they've lost an arm or a complete leg's been lost through amputation and then walk out with that leg restored. I'm happy to stand here this morning and be corrected, but most people that go to these meetings are going with psychological problems. So this term, the gifts of healing by the same spirit, go back to Acts and you see the apostles healing people left, right and centre. Nobody came back the following day or the following week to be healed again. It was, you're healed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And the Lord Jesus Christ had the same sort of healings. To another, the working of miracles, same as nine. To another, prophecy. Now prophecy, again, can be to foretell the future, like Agabus and also John was a prophet. Read the book of Revelation, that is loaded with prophecy of, of events still to occur. Paul was a prophet. Read Second Thessalonians 1 and 2. He was prophesying about the Antichrist coming at the end of time. But ultimately this term for prophecy would be in reference to somebody who can be a truth teller. He can read the word of God and he can preach from the word of God and give you truth from the word of God. But again, I have to keep saying this because it's relevant. When Paul wrote this, most of the New Testament was not written. They were still very much in need of their prophets to guide them through each and every service to another discerning of spirits are you of the lord or are you of the antichrist to another diverse kinds of tongues different types of tongues different languages acts to but all these worketh that one and self same spirit dividing to every man severally as he will this comes from the holy ghost like i said at the beginning of chapter 12 you can't pray for the lord to give you the gift of tongues or healing or prophecy or wisdom or so on and so forth but you can ask for wisdom but james mentions wisdom from the epistle of James but again he's writing around 40 AD which is back in Acts chapter 10 11 or 12 go to the end of Acts chapter 21 22 23 the sign gifts are starting to cease up the apostles are living by faith Paul was sick he couldn't heal himself and he was very much in need of being healed along with Timothy and Trophimus 12 for as the body is one and hath many members and all the members of that one body being many are one body so also is Christ. Many churches, many denominations, many groups within groups, but ultimately there's only one Lord Jesus Christ. He gives you the right, he gives you the ability to worship him as you choose to. There's no headquarters, like, like I said last time, so don't feel pushed or uh, coerced to join a church which claims to have the keys, which claims to be a cut above the rest. We are all the same in the Lord, and we can all worship him in different ways as we choose to do so. And also, this term for the body simply means in reference to the church. Not a local church building, but the supernatural living organism known as the body of Christ, which is invisible to the human eye. 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For by one spirit, the Holy Ghost, are we all baptized into one body, the church, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be free or bond, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. You weren't put into the body of Christ through being baptized by water. 
You weren't put into the body of Christ by joining a church and being confirmed. You were put into the body of Christ by believing. The just shall live by faith. Not the faith found from verse 9, as I say, that is more in reference to a missionary being sent overseas to serve the Lord and perhaps even die for the Lord. But this faith is simply to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, which puts you into the body of Christ. And we know from Ephesians 2, how for by grace are we saved by faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 14, for the body is not one member, but many. Diversity. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? No snobbery allowed. Don't look down on Christians in third world countries. And if you are some big wheel, earning a six-figure salary as a pastor, don't think you are something special or that you are any more important to somebody less than you. 16. And if the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Rich or poor, it makes no difference to the Lord Jesus Christ. 17. If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. We all need one another. And I sometimes wonder when we go through dark days and we struggle with anxiety, perhaps, or a feeling of deadness or indifference or depression, if we are somehow suffering or being allowed to experience someone else's suffering around the world. We get odd days as Christians. Some days we can't really motivate ourselves. Some days we can't really understand what we go through. And I just wonder sometimes if the Lord is allowing us to experience something that we don't really understand and we are suffering with others in the body of Christ and not necessarily aware of it and also rejoicing with others in the body of Christ and not necessarily understanding it. We are a family, you see. When the head suffers, the Lord Jesus Christ, we all suffer. And when the head rejoices, we all rejoice with him. 19. And if they were all one members, where were the body? But now are they many members yet but one body? There's no one true church. Like I say, diversity is the key to understanding these verses. But at the same time, the one true church would be the body of Christ. As I say, made up of a living organism consisting of Jews and Gentiles, men and women. Verse 21. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. That's true. We all need each other. And I've seen people on the streets in Manchester that I thought were doing a great job. And I've met people in the streets in Manchester that I didn't even know existed. And they too were doing a great job. And I've known people that I thought were doing a great job, which were not doing a great job. But the point is we all need each other. Whether you're great or small, whether you're bond or free, whether you are Jew or Gentile, we all need one another. 22. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble unnecessary and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable upon these we bestow more abundant honor and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness i gave you a story some weeks ago of a man in romania who'd been a surgeon and he hit rock bottom one of his patients died on the operating table and he took it very badly and he went from being a respected surgeon in bucharest to working in a car park where they produced braille uh, publications and overnight that man went from probably being on a six-figure salary to maybe just making a living hand-to-mouth. And he would have been considered uh, to be almost inferior to most people living in Romania. But he loves the Lord. He's saved. But due to reasons only he could explain to you, he didn't feel it was appropriate to remain in that medical profession. So don't judge a book by its cover. Like I say, if you come across somebody who appears to be inferior, if you come across somebody who seems to have a very 
a simple ministry, perhaps. They need us and we need them. And uh, as I say, if you get puffed up, the Lord will chastise you. 24, for our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honour to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. Schism, sect, divisions. Go back to chapter 3. Chloe's household were complaining about these divisions. Some say they were of Paul. Some say they were of Apollos. Some say they were of Peter. And he says, listen, these men didn't die for you. The Lord Jesus Christ died for you. Not much has changed. People say, well, I'm a Catholic. I'm a Protestant. I'm a Calvinist. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. It's the same sort of sectarianism, tribalism, and it dishonors the Lord. 26. And whether one member suffer or the members suffer with it, or one member be honoured, or the members rejoice with it. Like I said, I think it's quite possible when we go through difficult times that the Lord is allowing us to feel some of the pain of our brethren in North Korea, perhaps, or China, or Africa. For those of us which live in the West, we are incredibly blessed. We are incredibly blessed. But for those of us which live in second world countries or third world countries, they really go through it. And like I say, when they suffer, we suffer with them. And when they rejoice, we rejoice with them as well. 27. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church first, apostles, secondly prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversity of tongues. Break this down. Apostles, that first group of men which the Lord chose, all eyewitnesses to his ministry. Then it was prophets, probably Agabus. Then it was teachers. Of course, an apostle would be a teacher as well, but... For today's world, somebody like myself, I know I'd say I was a teacher. I'm not a prophet. I'm not an apostle. Then miracles. Go back to the first century, laying hands on sick people, healing them of you know illnesses. Stephen probably did it. Philip probably did it. Maybe Apollos did it as well. We know that uh, Peter, James and John certainly healed people left, right and centre. Helps and governments, probably in reference to a lo- local church meeting. Diversity of tongues, Acts chapter 2, known languages. And we know from 1 Corinthians how the Jews require a sign. Tongues are for a sign to those that do not believe. Whereas prophecy is for those that believe. But more than that, we get to chapter 14. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Of course not. An apostle was an eyewitness to the Lord's ministry. Did they all prophesy? Of course not. Most didn't prophesy. In fact, go back to the Old Testament. Most of the people in the Old Testament didn't prophesy. Ezra wasn't a prophet in the sense that Ezekiel was. Nehemiah wasn't a prophet in the sense that Jeremiah was. Have all the gifts of healing. Do all speak with tongues. Do all interpret. Could you imagine going to a church in the first century and 500 people standing up and all speaking in tongues at the same time? And some unsaved person comes and thinks this is a madhouse. And yet, look at Kenneth Hagen. Look at Kenneth Copeland. Look at Joyce Mayer. Look at Benny Heen. All those meetings are loaded with people standing up, speaking in tongues at the same time, probably cursing Christ from verse 3. 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts and yet show unto you a more excellent way. Covet earnestly the best gifts, plural. 13 will be in reference to loving one another and 14 in reference to doing everything in order, not causing mayhem. And 30, tongues is found right at the end of this chapter. Tongues was a sign to unbelieving Israel. And these people that speak the most about tongues today are carnal, ignorant, fleshly people. But covet earnestly the best gifts 
and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Chapter 13, and we love, 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 but not a mushy love, a true love, a true sacrificial love, a love which will result in people laying their lives down for the Lord. Probably found back in verse 9, this term, to another faith by the same spirit. And I've read many books over the years of Christians that were sent to mission fields all over the world, and they left Britain, England, Australia, and Canada, and did not return home. They died overseas, and some of those men didn't even produce one convert. So 31 verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and this term spiritual gifts, plural, was certainly relevant for this first century church, but the theme here, the concern that Paul had was that some of these Corinthians were cursing the Lord Jesus Christ as they were speaking in tongues. So if it was possible for the church of Corinthians or the church of Corinth to do this, how much more possible and likely could it be for those living today to do the same? And he says that no man speaking by the Holy Ghost or the Spirit of God can call Jesus accursed. Of course not. And I would say this is almost bordering the unpardonable sin as well. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. And that word man means man. It doesn't mean woman. To the best of my knowledge, I couldn't find any woman in scripture when I first looked at this subject about 10 years ago that ever spoke in tongues. People that spoke in tongues in the New Testament were men speaking to men. And like I say, when we get to chapter 14, I will show you that a little more clearly. Four down to probably 11 during this intertestimonial period, pre the completion of the New Testament canon, some men were raised up in the church of Corinth and probably Ephesus and Galatia with the gifts of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healings, prophecy, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. But with the completion of scripture, we read back into scripture with a better understanding of what Paul is speaking about here. 11. But all these worketh that one and self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. This came from the Lord, God the Holy Spirit, upon the church of Corinth, as I say, to give them the ability to know right from wrong. Paul wasn't with them every day of the week. Paul may have got to Corinth maybe two or three, four or five times in his entire lifetime. This church would meet every day, pre-dawn, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would, they would have needed prophets, teachers, to keep them on the right side of the Lord. Now we go to the word of God. And the scripture says, How all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, or for doctrine of proof and correction, that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped unto all good works. If you have the word of God in your hand today, you are blessed more than the Corinthians were. The Corinthians were living by faith for the most part, whereas we have the word of God to go to, to ultimately understand what is right and what is wrong. 12 down to probably 23 or 25 makes it very clear how there is great diversity in the body of Christ, how no snobbery should be permitted. Whether you're rich or poor, we're all the same. There isn't one church and how we all need one another. And he gives the analogy, of course, of a body, eyes, feet, head, hearing, smelling, so on and so forth, to really underscore this importance. 23 down to probably 26. Don't judge a book by its cover. As I said, I've seen people in the streets that I thought perhaps were very insignificant, a very foolish assumption on my part. And yet the Lord says here, don't you know, puff yourself up because that person who appears to you to be insignificant is doing a mighty work. And we all do this. We all make this mistake of judging a book by its cover. Don't do it because we know from the word of God how the Lord will choose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the base things of the world to confound those which are puffed up, those which are well to do. And we saw that last time, didn't we? But going back to the start of the church, 
First of all, the church were given apostles, Jewish men who did signs and wonders, miracles, who wrote the entire New Testament, then prophets, Agabus, perhaps, as I say, Stephen, Apollos and others, teachers along the lines of those that were able to teach probably the Old Testament at this point in time. The New Testament wasn't yet written, although we had probably Mark or Matthew, perhaps, then Mark, although I'm not sure which came first. It could be Mark, it could be Matthew. You had James around 40 AD, perhaps Galatians around 50-something AD, but no way did you have the entire New Testament by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, hence why he needed teachers to go back to the Old Testament and teach the Corinthians and the Ephesians and the Galatians the Word of God, and also he was led, or they would have been led, by the Holy Spirit to offer more information, which was given orally, as I say, via the teachers and prophets, and then written down later by the apostles. 27 Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. Very true. And the breakdown continues from 28. Miracles, gifts of healings. Still very much in reference to what you would find in the book of Acts. Probably 10, 11, 12, 13 onwards. But the latter part of Acts, Paul is in jail or house arrest. He can't release himself. And he says to Timothy to take a little wine for your stomach's sake. And also he couldn't help his good friend Trophimus. So you see the gifts are drying up during Paul's lifetime because the just shall live by faith and because the New Testament was almost written and the apostles had almost died away. Helps, governments, diversity of tongues. Also diversity of tongues. You can't get around the fact that the apostles went out to the Roman Empire. They would have spoken to people that didn't necessarily speak Greek. Greek was the English of the first century and Paul spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, but they were Jewish languages. So they would have been given the gift of tongues, as you find some missionaries today have. Although most of the people in the first century would have spoken Greek. But I'm not going to rule out the possibility that some of these people in Corinth and Ephesus and Galatia may have been equipped to speak with tongues, plural, to reach people in their part of the world, like French, German, Spanish, Italian, so on and so forth. 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts. You can covet something. This is a good sense of coveting, not a carnal sense of coveting. And yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And 13 will lay it out very clearly how it's all about love, love, love. Not a mushy love, but a true, sincere love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So one final wrap up from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Examine yourself. If you are of that group in Christendom, which holds to these Jewish apostolic sign gifts still being relevant for today. And if you speak in tongues, if you are a man or woman, just examine yourself. And make sure that your tongues are known languages. Because one final time, wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. You could be blaspheming Lord Jesus Christ when you speak in tongues and are not even aware of it. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. You can give him lip service. But a true Bible-believing Christian will worship him in truth and in spirit. And a true Bible-believing Christian will give him his deity and never once curse him. 16.22 If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. So you can speak in tongues, and these tongues are not necessarily from the Lord. I remember years ago watching an old Hollywood movie, which I uh, watched before I was saved. And there was a scene in this Hollywood movie where this very well-known A-star actor speaks in tongues. And I thought, wow, that's pretty, uh, pretty eerie. And uh, he was offering himself in this movie as a Pentecostal. He had all tattoos down him. And uh, I think he was playing with snakes in this movie. And he was able to speak in tongues. You can learn it, you see. You can teach yourself how to speak in tongues, like that woman did. But 
true tongues in the sense of the New Testament, true tongues in the sense of Acts chapter 2 were known languages. So I am concerned, as I say, when people speak in tongues, they, they offer it today as being still relevance. Really? I'm not sure. I think a lot of it is gibberish. A lot of it is learned behavior. But I won't rule out that some of it could be demonically inspired. It could be as a result of unclean spirits, devils offering themselves up as coming from the Lord God of the Bible. I won't go any further and say that Christians can be demon-possessed or devil-possessed. I don't believe that. But I think some Christians, if they are carnal, some Christians, if they are out of fellowship with the Lord, probably most of the Corinthians were, can be given over to a debased mind. And the devil can get a hold of those people and destroy those people. He can't possess them, take them over completely, but he can speak through them. And you find that back in Matthew 16, when Peter said to the Lord, you know, you won't go up to the cross, you won't be crucified. And the Lord turned around and said, uh, get thee behind me, Satan. So you find there are scriptures which you can go to to find that Christians can, if they're not careful, come out with expressions and do things which are not from the Holy Ghost, but from an unholy ghost, from the devil himself. So the devil was constantly attacking this church in Corinth, Right from the beginning, because they were a carnal church, they were a very fleshly church, they were a primitive church, and yet they were greatly beloved by the Apostle Paul. It's Satan's job to attack you, to attack me, to attack all of us, and to destroy us. That's what he is in the business of doing. So examine yourself, make sure that you're not making the mistake that the Corinthians are doing, and if you do hold to this gift of tongues, question mark, if you do, then you need to go to Acts 2, make sure they are known languages, and you need to go to Corinthians 14, and make sure that when you speak in tongues, you have an interpreter. And finally, when you speak in tongues, no more than two or three, always men, and always with an interpreter present, and never when unsaved people are present. But more on that when I get to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, and become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Paul was a linguist, and Paul went to the third heaven. But please keep in mind that the next several verses, he's speaking in a rhetorical sense. He's speaking in a sort of suggestive sense. He's not literally speaking in the sense of having this great knowledge of everything. It's hypothetical speaking, I should say. One more time from verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men, and he did, and of angels, and he did, and have not charity... Old English, for love, I'm become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Without love, I'm like a piano out of tune. Two, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Did Paul have the gift of prophecy? Yes, he did. Did he have blessing of having all mysteries? Yes, he did. All knowledge? All faith? Not necessarily. Let's break this down. And though I have the gift of prophecy, yes he did, and understand all mysteries, not necessarily, not with all that exception, and all knowledge, in a sense he did, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, meaning kingdoms, and have not charity, love, I am nothing. Like I say, these verses are primarily dealing with Paul speaking from the sense of, if he had all these things. If he was totally equipped to achieve all of these things and he came pretty near, without love, he is nothing. And it's pretty difficult to really understand these verses because I think many times when we've gone out to do outreach, when we've done teaching videos or written articles or spoken to people, without love, it really is irrelevant. Three, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor 
and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. To give my body to be burned would be probably cross-reference to Romans chapter 12, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. You can't miss it really, can you? Paul could have been the greatest of all men, and he probably was, and yet he had more knowledge of the supernatural than probably Peter, James and John put together, and yet without love he was nothing. And the same is true of us today. We can put 100% of ourselves into ministry work, but if it doesn't uh, have love behind it, if it's not love defined, it's worthless. Verse 4, charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. That's profound. Love, verse 4, suffers long. The long-suffering of the Lord causes us to be saved. His long-suffering, his long patience has resulted in us being saved. Love is kind. It doesn't envy anyone or anything. It doesn't vaunt itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave itself unseemly. It doesn't seek its own will. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, hates its sin, loves righteousness, rejoices in the truth, being the Lord Jesus Christ, and probably the written word of God, beareth all things, puts up with everything, doesn't complain all the time, believes all things, doesn't question the word of God, hopes all things, endures all things, sees the best in people. 8. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Let's break this down. Whether there be prophecies in reference to foretelling the future, these will cease. Why? Because the word of God is our foundation. Whether there be tongues, no languages, Acts chapter 2, they shall cease. When? Probably by the end of the New Testament era. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. What sort of knowledge are we talking about? Well, James says, if any man lacks knowledge, let him ask of God. But we have the word of God. We know from Psalm 138 that God has put his word above his name. Go back to chapter one of this great epistle. Chapter one, verse four. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ. That's a gift. And grace is what puts you into the body of Christ. That in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and all knowledge. You're perfect already. You've got all that you need. You've got all utterance and all knowledge, even as a testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, singular, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, probably the second advent, who shall also confirm you unto the end of your life, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, probably in reference to the judgment seat of Christ. So verse 5, you are enriched totally and unequivocally in all utterance and in all knowledge. But what did I say last time during this period of 1 Corinthians? Prophets were raised up to preach and teach the word of God because most of the New Testament wasn't yet written. But bit by bit, the prophets died out, the apostles died out, and the New Testament was written and passed around. Go back to chapter 13, please. Let's break this down a little more. Verse 8. 
Charity love never fails, that's true. But whether there be prophecies, foretelling of the future, they shall fail. And I would say probably around this time they've already failed. Whether there be tongues, known languages, they shall cease. We know from chapter 1 of this chapter that the Jews are entitled to a sign. They seek after a sign. And that sign, of course, was to rebuke unbelieving Israel due to their unbelief. It was to cause the Jews to repent, to turn to their Messiah and be saved. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. This term for knowledge, I've already shown you from chapter 1, was given to the early church. And James says one more time, if any man lacks knowledge, let him ask of God. But I think this knowledge here is apostolic knowledge. Please turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And take a look at verse 7. Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? Paul's writing to a church which was legalistic. A church which wanted to keep the law. A church which thought it was something special. And he says, you did well. You started out well with the Lord Jesus Christ. Who did hinder you? He doesn't know who this person is. That you should not obey the truth. Look at chapter 3 verse 1 of Galatians. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? He doesn't know who these false teachers are. And yet from First Timothy, he names at least two individuals who have been deceived, who have been passed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So they would learn not to blaspheme. Go to Acts chapter 5. Scripture with scripture. Acts chapter 5. This is around probably 31 AD. Thereabouts the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross 30 AD. So this is very soon after the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Let's pick it up from verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira his wife sold a possession. And kept back part of the price. His wife also being privy to it. And bought a certain part, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. First of all, the Holy Spirit is referred to here as being God. But secondly, Peter knows what this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, have plotted to do. They chose to sell their piece of land, which was very commendable, but they kept back part of that money for themselves. Peter knew, around 30 AD, what was going on. He had apostolic knowledge. But Galatians 5, some 30 years later, Paul doesn't know what's going on. He's questioning who this false teacher was, where this heresy was coming from. But here, apostolic knowledge is still very much in evidence. Go back to 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 13 verse 8. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now the question is when, to be precise, do these things occur? Let's move on and see what the scripture says. Verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. We're still very much between two covenants here. Old covenant and new covenant. Law and grace. This testimonial period from the prophets like Agabus, Stephen, Apollos perhaps, that were raised up to teach the early church, to edify the early church, to affirm the apostles of the early church. And yet they're still very much in a halfway house. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. 
Most people say, well, this term for perfect would be in reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Quite possibly, others say this term for perfect is in reference to the completion of the scripture. Quite possible as well. But let's move on. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. When I was a child under the old covenant, I spake as a child under the old covenant. I understood as a child under the old covenant. I thought as a child under the old covenant. But when I became a man, new covenant, I put away childish things. Go back to the Old Testament types and shadows, left, right and centre. Moses was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. David is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whereas Pharaoh, Herod the Great and some of the other wicked kings like Manasseh were types of the Antichrist. Twelve. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. We see through a glass darkly, probably old covenant, but then face to face, new covenant. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, second advent, I believe, then that which is in part shall be done away. Also the term that is new to, some people say it can't be in reference to the Lord because the Lord wouldn't be found in the neuter. Well, not necessarily so. He is referred to in the neuter in Luke uh, chapter one, that holy thing which will be conceived in thy womb in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And also from Romans eight, the Holy Ghost is referred to the neuter. So it can be in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's move on. Verse 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Of course, without love, you're nothing. Without love, nothing means anything. So let's try and pull all these verses together. And as you know, this is probably the shortest chapter in First Corinthians, and yet probably one of the most difficult chapters to understand. He starts this chapter, Though I speak with the tongues of men, he was a linguist. He travelled land and sea to preach the gospel, to win souls to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of angels, he went to the third heaven, he saw things which were not lawful to utter, and have not love, charity, and become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Without love, true love, I'm like an out-of-tune piano. Sounds horrendous. Or a guitar which hasn't been finely tuned. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and he did to some extent, and understand all mysteries, yes, he did to some extent, and all knowledge, to some extent, that's true. And though I have all faith, to some extent, that's true as well, so that I could remove mountains, meaning kingdoms, and he was sent to pull down Satan's kingdom and present the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom to those that were bound in darkness, and have not charity or love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I'm sure he did, and though I give my body to be burned, I'm sure his body was a living sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ, and on top of that, I'm sure he was prepared to be burnt to death like you find back in the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar puts Daniel into the oven, and the Lord, of course, delivers him. And pre that awful event, he put Daniel's three colleagues into the oven, and the Lord also delivered them. And have not love, charity, it profiteth me nothing. This is a very simple piece of scripture, and yet, on the other hand, it's very profound, it's very deep. Because like I say, you can do all sorts of things for the Lord, you can give yourself to ministry, you can give yourself to service, but if it's not love... 
if it's not led by the Holy Spirit, is worthless. And I think these verses 1 to 3, he's not speaking in a literal sense. As I say, he had limited knowledge. He wasn't perfect. Only the Lord Jesus Christ had all knowledge and all faith and all prophecy. So really he's saying, if I had all these things in a hypothetical sense, without love, I am nothing. And it would profit you nothing as well. This lovely run from verse 4 down to 7. Let's read it one more time. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. If you want to study what love is, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a personification of love. Paul, to some extent, can show you love. Peter, to some extent, can show you love. James and John, to some extent, can show you love. But if you want to really examine love with a capital L, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, charity never fails. Love never fails. Love will never let you down. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Why? Because the apostles are dying out. The New Testament is about to be written. And on top of that, what more do you need to know? I say to Muslims, we don't need Muhammad. We know from Hebrews chapter 1 that the Lord Jesus Christ is God's final messenger to the world. What more can Muhammad add to what the Lord Jesus Christ has already told us? Whether there be tongues, known languages, they shall cease. Why? Because the Jews, by this point in the history of the church, have corporately turned from their Messiah, rejected him, and gone back to the law. John 6.6.6 And many of his disciples walked no more with him. 1 John chapter 2 They went out from us because they were not of us. Therefore, why continue to preach in tongues to a generation that has rejected their Messiah? And they will continue to reject him until the great tribulation. Whether there be knowledge, apostolic knowledge, it shall vanish away. Galatians chapter 5, Paul said to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Who are these people? In fact, he even says in Galatians, he wished they were cut off. That's how serious he took false teaching. He said, I wish these people were cut off, put to death for teaching heresy. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Old covenant, new covenant, transitional period from law to grace. Very much during the period found here in the book of Corinthians. Hence why these prophets and teachers were raised up, as I say, to build the early church. And on top of that, the early church was still very much in need of the Old Testament, the Jewish Tanakh. Around 60 AD, maybe only a third of the New Testament books were written. But when that which is perfect is come, second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now the problem with this argument, and I will put it to you, is that if we say that which is perfect is in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, then people say, well, then tongues are still for today, prophecies are still for today, and absolute knowledge is still for today. Well, we know that the apostles have all died, So we can deal with that. And I've shown you from Galatians 3 and 5 how Paul didn't know what was going on. Whereas in Acts 5, Peter knew exactly what was going on. And it says Ananias and Sapphira were cut down by the Holy Ghost. They lied to the Lord, God of the Bible, being the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, he cut them down. When I was a child under the old covenant, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. Limited knowledge. Children live by faith. Children are very susceptible to the supernatural children are very open to the supernatural and if you get a child from a young age who loves the lord they will do what they can they will comprehend 
what they can of the Lord. But when I became a man, new covenant, a man that came of age, when I became old enough to be under the law, when I was old enough to understand the law, when I was old enough to be guilty of sin, when I came to myself, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, we're not quite there yet, but then face to face. Why? Because we live under grace. The just shall live by faith. We're still very much limited by what we understand. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Limited knowledge. The just shall live by faith. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. So I would say it's very difficult to really pull all these verses together. And normally 13 is a, a very ominous number. It's a superstitious number. It's normally loaded with satanic connotation. But here it's very much found in a godly sense because the greatest of these is love so in summing up these verses as well as i can this morning on this lord's day obviously love will continue love is eternal love has no beginning or end prophecy has had its day if you will but prophecy in the sense of proclaiming the lord's truth prophecy in the sense of worshiping the lord prophecy in the sense of being able to articulate the lord's word is still relevant for today. But prophecy in the sense of what Jeremiah did, and Ezekiel did, and Isaiah did, has finished. Go back to Matthew chapter 11. All the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. Paul was a prophet. John the Apostle was a prophet. Even Peter was a prophet. But they're dying out around the end of the first century. And also keep in mind, please, that if you believe in tongues, you have to believe in prophecies. And if you believe in prophecies, you have to believe in visions. And if you believe in visions, you have to believe in healings. Why? Because they all go together. They're a package. Paul was almost blind before he died. He was found under house arrest. And Timothy, his good friend, had a stomach ulcer. And he says, take a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Paul couldn't heal Timothy. Timothy couldn't heal Paul. And one of Paul's great friends, Trophimus, was sick. Paul couldn't heal Trophimus. Timothy couldn't heal Trophimus. Peter couldn't heal Trophimus. These great men of God are suffering with ailments. They're sick, awaiting death, which is evidence in itself that the gifts have started to cease. We're now living under grace. The just shall live by faith. So I think on the one hand, you could say when that which is perfect is come, New Testament, then that which is in part shall be done away. I'm okay with that. But on the other hand, I'm going to keep open the option that when that which is perfect is come, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then that which is in part shall be done away. I'm going to have both views left open i'm not going to commit myself because i just don't know uh which is the best way to deal with this particular verse but i know that prophecies have ceased tongues have ceased and absolute knowledge has ceased as well but the main theme from first corinthians 13 is love or found here to be charity that's the greatest of all gifts but i showed you from the earlier parts of first corinthians chapter one how you've got all knowledge and all utterance and how you are totally equipped and have been preserved blameless with an imputed righteousness as the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So like I say, it's not easy to get these verses clear and pull them together. But I think, as I say, when you take the time to read the, the entire New Testament and when you take the time to look at church history in general, you can see very clearly how the Jewish apostolic sign gifts have ceased because the Jews were entitled to a sign, but the Jews rejected the Messiah. And Paul says in the book of Acts, we're going to turn from the Jew to the Gentiles and take the gospel to them. So now the Jews are in darkness. Second Corinthians chapter 4. They have been spiritually blinded by the devil. But you were told in the book of Romans chapter 11. How they are beloved for their father's sakes. 
So therefore you are to pray for the Jews. And if you are able to witness to a Jew, do so. And if you can bring a Jew to the Lord, even better. But the Jews are outside of God's remit for now. We are the people of God for now. Those of us which are saved in the church age. But when the rapture comes, the apasio, the great catching away, then the Lord will return to Israel and start to work with them. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. We're limited as to what we can say or do. But when that which is perfect has come, could be the New Testament, it could be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that which is in part shall be done away. No more need for faith. No more need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ for anything because he's going to be here on the earth in a physical sense. And we are going to be very much ruling and reigning with him from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. 11 and 12, I think, is probably an analogy of Paul under the law. Paul under the old covenant as a child, very much limited as to what he would know, what he would understand. But when he became a man, he put away childish things. He's now born again. He's under the new covenant. And also he has become aware of law. He has become aware of sin. And we know from Romans 7, when that occurred, he died in the sense of he was now in need of redemption. And he goes and says, I put away childish things, not in the sense of the Bible being childish, but in the sense of the Bible being limited as far as a child is concerned. Verse 13, one final time. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These things continue. The word abideth means to continue. These three. But the greatest of these is charity, being love, of course. So I won't go any further than that. But when I get to chapter 14, I will take a lot more time to look at this breakdown of tongues and prophecy to really understand what we are dealing with. But as I say one final time, it's difficult to know when that which is perfect has come, whether it refers to the close of canon, the New Testament, or whether or not it, it refers to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord willing, when I get to chapter 14, I'll be able to offer a bit more light to this wonderful piece of scripture. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. Charity, once again, Old English for love. And I think off the top of my head, it is agape in Greek. And agape is the strongest word for, uh, the strongest Greek word for love. And he says, follow love and desire spiritual gifts, plural, but rather that you may prophesy or prophecy. Now, prophecy, like I said last time, can be in reference to foretelling the future, like Jeremiah, Isaiah and Ezekiel. But it can also be in reference to proclaiming the Lord, praising the Lord, like Jude. Jude has a lovely benediction at the end of his epistle. And also Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, along with her husband, when they were told that John was going to be born to them in later years. So you can prophesy in the sense of proclaiming the Lord's truth, worshipping the Lord. But it's more problematic when you come to the conclusion that prophecy in the sense of foretelling the future is still relevant for today. And like I said last time, from Matthew chapter 11, all the prophets and the law were until John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the end of the Old Testament. He's the end of all the prophets foretelling the future. And yet we do find some prophets with a small P in the book of Acts who are there for the transitional period. So when it says here to follow after love and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy, you know what Paul is referring to. Verse two, for he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. He, in reference to a man, 
And yes, I know this is probably uh, from the Greek, Anthropos, which can be mankind. But when I get to Acts chapter 2, if I have time this morning, I will show you that men were the recipients of speaking in tongues. And it says here one more time, For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue, a different language, speaketh not unto men, but unto God. And yet from Acts chapter 2, when the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, they went out from the upper room and preached in the streets. They proclaimed the Lord's truth in different tongues. And I get to that shortly. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. Hence why you need an interpreter. If I was to stand here this morning and speak in Indonesian or Chinese or Japanese, the chances are you would need an interpreter. Unless, of course, you understood those languages, unless, of course, you were from such a country. And this term, the spirit, is lowercase s in your King James Bible. And this has caused some confusion over the years. Is this in reference to the Holy Spirit or is this in reference to the spirit of man? Because it's lowercase s, I will leave it as it is and simply hold to the belief or the understanding that a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit in the first century would be speaking in tongues via his own spirit. But the point is nobody could understand him, hence why he needed an interpreter. Verse 3, But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that prophesies speaks unto men, the church, to edify, to exhort and comfort. Prophesying, as I say, in the sense of proclaiming the Lord's truth, giving a word of knowledge, sharing the scripture, almost being a teacher, if you will, is going to edify the church. But speaking in tongues isn't going to edify anyone, unless, of course, you understand the language that such a person is speaking. Verse 4, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. The context here is church. Tongues can be mimicked. Tongues can be learned. Tongues can be counterfeited. Catholics speak in tongues. Mormons speak in tongues. Red Indians speak in tongues. Hollywood stars speak in tongues. But if you can prophesy, if you can stand up on a Lord's Day morning such as today and read the word of God and proclaim the word of God and worship the Lord God of the Bible, you're going to edify the church. This is primitive stuff. And yet Paul, time after time, had to drill this into the heads of the Corinthians because they were carnal, whereas the Galatians were legalistic. But nevertheless, it was a flesh problem. This is the old nature that all Christians are prone uh, to have to deal with. Verse 5. I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. It's almost impossible to think that Paul was wanting all of the church to speak in tongues. I showed you from chapter 12 a couple of studies ago how the Holy Spirit will dispense sovereignly gifts to individuals as he sees fit so Paul can't be now turning around and telling us two chapters later that the Holy Spirit wants all of us to speak in tongues no he wants them to move beyond this almost carnal gift this uh, abused gift this gift which could be mimicked as I say and counterfeit he wants to move on from speaking in tongues to prophesying and prophesying isn't easy to stand up and teach the word of God to proclaim the word of God to worship the Lord God in truth and in spirit is not easy. Speaking in tongues is easy. I mean, anybody can speak in tongues. You can mimic tongues. And like I say, all the cults do it. The false religions do it. And yet it is a dishonor. It's a disgrace to the Lord. Verse six. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine, of course. But we saw from chapter 13 how Paul spoke with the tongues of men. Paul was a linguist and how he spoke with the tongues of angels. He went to the third heaven 
But he says, that's not going to profit you unless somebody is around to interpret. But if I come to you with revelation, and Paul was a prophet, if I come to you by knowledge, and he certainly knew a lot about the word of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ, and if I come to you by prophesying, which goes back to revelation, it's going to benefit you much more, but ultimately by doctrine. Why? Because the word of God was written for doctrine. All scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine. First of all, for doctrine. Without doctrine, you're never going to get anything straight. You're going to be slipping and sliding. You're going to be constantly unsure of yourself, uncertain about what's genuine and what's not. But with doctrine, sound doctrine, I might add, you're going to be fine. You're going to be firm. Verse 7, And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how should it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise ye accept ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood. How should it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. Go back to the first century. The whole point of tongues we know from Acts 2. I'll get to Acts 2 a little later if I have time. Was for the believing Jews to rebuke the unbelieving Israelites. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. They are sitting waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And it comes and they start to speak in tongues. There was no doubt whatsoever that those present on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 knew exactly what the 12 apostles were doing. And by that time, Matthias had replaced Judas. So they were 12 strong, 12 Jewish men speaking in tongues, proclaiming the Lord's glory, the Lord's truth. Thus saith the Lord, uh, the Lord mighty, the Lord magnificent. Perhaps they were even prophesying or speaking in tongues Citing the Psalms, perhaps. No languages, without any doubt. But they weren't blabbering. They weren't uh, speaking in a sort of tongue which nobody could understand, which is what most charismatics do today. These were known languages. And also, on top of that, these men, these apostles, including the Apostle Paul, were going to go around the world preaching to unsaved people. Yes, the language of Greek was uh, the main language of the first century, as English is today. But some of these people didn't speak Greek as well as they perhaps could have done. Hence why the apostles are given the gift of speaking in tongues. And I read years ago a great book by David Brainard, American, who went to the Red Indians or Native Americans, as they're now called, in the 18th century from Pennsylvania. And he died a very young man. He wasn't even 30 when he died. And he says in his uh, diary, and I have it on my table now, that the one thing he really wanted was the gift of tongues. He wanted to be able to speak to the native Indians in their own tongue. He couldn't do it. He had to pay for interpreters. And yet today we find people on television and on the radio, Catholics, Protestants, Charismatics, Pentecostals, Mormons, Moonies, who knows what else, speaking in tongues, blabbering, not giving you a known language, but gibberish. Learn behavior and perhaps even devil possession, or as the world calls it, demon possession. Verse 10, there are, it may be, So many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. This word barbarian, it's obviously in reference to somebody who would be almost an imbecile. Somebody who would be not only uneducated, but somebody who would be the lowest of the low when it came to just common sense, understanding any aspect of life, and if he was to come into contact with a typical Corinthian in the first century, he'd have no idea what was occurring. Speaking in tongues, rolling around the floor, 
And he would say, what's going on here? This isn't for me. And yet the Jews knew exactly what was going on in Acts chapter 2. Verse 12, even so ye forasmuch as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. They're carnal. Give us gifts, Paul. We want gifts. We want to have the gifts of the Spirit. Never mind the fruits of the Spirit. Found in Galatians chapter 5. We want the fruits of the Spirit. Excuse me, we want the Spirit. We want the uh, gifts of the Spirit, I should say. The gifts, on the one hand, were given to the church during a testimonial period from Lord of Grace, whereas the fruits of the Spirit are eternal. And I said last time that I couldn't be sure my own mind from chapter 13 when it says, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And I left the door slightly open because I'm not sure when that occurred. And the reason why I'm not sure is because in the book of Revelation, we find the 144,000 Jewish evangelists raised up to preach to the world and they have to sign gifts. So we've got to be careful when we come to understanding when that which is perfect is come has occurred. Most people say it is in reference to the close of canon, which is problematic, as I've just given you the reason why, because of the 144,000 and the Great Tribulation. But for the church age, for us here and now, I think for the most part we can gain from Scripture that tongues as a known language has ceased, and also knowledge from chapter 13, verse 8, in reference to apostolic knowledge, had ceased from Galatians 5.10. But prophecy in the sense of Worshipping the Lord, as I say, like a benediction or offering the word of God is still very much in evidence for today. But I can't get away from verse 12, how these people are wanting spiritual gifts. And yet we were told from chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit had given them all that they needed. We were told from chapter 12 how the Holy Spirit had already baptised them into the body of Christ. And also we are told from Ephesians chapter 2 how we are already blessed in the heavenly places. In other words, we have all that we need. We are perfect, we are equipped to do all that the Lord would have us to do, and yet this church wanted more spiritual gifts. They were carnal, they were fleshly. And yet go to Galatians 5, read the nine fruits of the Spirit, and then go back to 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, and you get a very clear harmonisation as to how things should have been. Corinthians were carnal, whereas the Galatians were legalistic, and yet both groups were clearly in great error. Verse 13 Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. Unknown is in italics in your King James Bible, which means it's not there in the Greek. But it has to be there because you wouldn't know what it means if it wasn't there. An unknown simply means an unknown language. It could be French, it could be Spanish, it could be Italian, it could be any number of languages. And verse 13 really needs to be read in conjunction with verses 27 and 28, which we'll get to a little later. Verse 14, for if I pray... In an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. I went to a meeting some years ago. I think I told this already, but I'll tell it again. And during this meeting, there were a group of charismatics present. I hadn't been saved very long, so I wasn't uh, very well up in these things. I was slightly green. And I remember listening to this man speaking in tongues just next to me. And I said to him, what are you saying? What are you doing? And he said to me, I don't know what I'm saying or what I'm doing. And I'm not even interested. It's from the Lord. He didn't have a clue what he was saying. He was speaking in tongues. And I thought to myself, is this honouring the Lord? And that's what we found from chapter 16. And I'll read it to you again. I think Paul very much was concerned of this abuse of the gift of speaking in tongues. Chapter 16, 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. You see, these Corinthians had come from very dubious, carnal uh, backgrounds. They were... 
able to mimic the gift of speaking in tongues. And we can't rule out that some of the Corinthians may have the true gift of speaking in tongues. We can't rule out that perhaps some of these people in Corinth were Jewish, hence why they had the gift of speaking in tongues to rebuke unbelieving Israel. We can't rule that out. But I think that what was the main problem here were, was that the Corinthians were mimicking. They were mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. They were speaking in tongues. And I'm not going to even attempt to try and mimic it. But they were speaking in tongues, gibberish, learned behavior, possibly demon possession. And in the process, they were cursing Jesus Christ. Hence why Paul says in chapter 16, If any man loves not the Lord Jesus Christ, in reference to this group of carnal believers, let him or her be anathema. Then it be accursed. That's powerful stuff. And that's why I was concerned many years ago when I sat next to this man speaking in tongues as to what he was saying. Is it genuine? Is it authentic? I just couldn't be sure. And 13 years on, I'm still not sure whether or not he was misled, uh, possessed, or simply carnal. But let's move on, please. Verse 15. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Worship the Lord in truth and in spirit. Sing psalms to him. Meditate on the word of God. Pray in the spirit. Worship the Lord God in the spirit. That's private time. That's between you and the Lord. 16. Else when thou shalt bless with the spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen? At thy giving of thanks, seeing understandeth not what thou sayest. Some unsaved man walks into your church and he hears a group of people speaking in tongues and I've seen it myself. He doesn't know what's going on. He can't say amen. That amen could be him condemning himself. 17. For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God. I speak with tongues more than ye all. Yet in the church, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Paul, a great man of God, their spiritual father, could see quite clearly what was going on. This beloved church of his was being, in some ways, ripped apart by carnal Christians, weak leadership, and Satan himself, of course, trying to destroy it. And he says one more time, yet in the church, your local assembly, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding, probably in Greek, as this was a Gentile church, that by my voice, I might teach others also. That's the whole point of the word of God. To teach someone else to understand the word of God. And 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Again, go back to what I said at the beginning of this message. That tongues being a known language. Acts chapter 2 and here. The term is unknown. Primarily in reference to an unknown language to the recipients. And even the person who was filled with the Holy Spirit. If it was legit wouldn't necessarily know what he was saying until somebody came along to interpret what he was saying. 20. Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. Be children when it comes to sin, be children when it comes to wickedness, but be grown up when it comes to the things of the Lord. That's pretty simple really, isn't it? If you're born again, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be like a child when it comes to Sinful things, in the sense of, that doesn't affect me, I'm not interested in that. I have no understanding of that type of world. But when it comes to the things of God, understanding the truth of scripture, be main. Be grown up. Don't be babes, don't be carnal. Stop sucking on the dummy and stop taking off the solids. Verse 21, in the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. 
And yet for all that, will they not hear me, saith the Lord? With men, not women, of other tongues, languages, will I speak unto this people, the Jews, and yet for all that, they will not hear me, saith the Lord. He that has eyes to see, let him see. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. This is why tongues was given in the first place. To confront unbelieving and apostate Israel. 22. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. It couldn't be any clearer, could it? Tongues are for a sign, a miracle, a sign and wonder, if you will, to those that don't believe. More specifically, to unbelieving Israel. But prophecy was given to those that believe. Thus saith the Lord. Start citing the Psalms in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, but more specifically, start citing the Psalms or the Proverbs in French, Italian, Spanish, or in Acts chapter 2, uh, Arabian, Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Asia, so on and so forth. You can't miss it, can you? But to predict the future, as I say, is problematic. And we also get from Hebrews chapter 1, how Jesus Christ is the final messenger. He's the final prophet, if you will. He is our apostle from Hebrews chapter 3. He's it. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. So I get a little uncomfortable when somebody says that they can prophesy. They can tell you the future. I think to myself, why would you need to tell me the future when I have the word of God in my hand? But like I say, and I'll say it one more time, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So we've got to be very careful how we understand the timing of the cessation, the completion of the Jewish apostolic sign gifts. But as I say, understanding the other scriptures and also understand that Paul couldn't heal himself. He couldn't heal Trophimus. He couldn't heal Timothy. Leads me to believe that the sign gifts, which I've just outlined, were completed by the end of the apostle's life. But leave the door slightly open, as I say, in reference to the book of Revelation 23 if therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues and they come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers will they not say that ye are mad of course they will i've been to these churches i've watched these people you see it on television you hear it on the radio it's a madhouse people lay in their hands receive the holy ghost and they fall backwards but my bible says they should fall on their face those that fell backwards in the bible are enemies of god and if you don't believe me check John 18, when they come to rest the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says to them, Whom seek ye? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they all fall backwards, not on their faces. To worship the Lord, they fall backwards. They're enemies of the Lord. But here, Paul knows exactly what's going to happen. Some unsaved man or woman goes into a local church in the first century, or even today, and he sees them all speaking in tongues, and he thinks to himself, what's going on here? These people are insane. And yes, the word of God says that the preaching of the gospel is foolishness, to those that perish. But that term preaching of the gospel. Is teaching the word of God. Like I'm doing this morning. And preaching on the streets. Raising your voice. If I street preach and I do. I do it in English. People know what, they know what I'm saying. They understand what I'm saying. If I was a Frenchman speaking on the streets of Paris. They would know exactly what I'm saying. If I was a German speaking on the streets of Berlin. They would know exactly what I am saying. But if I'm speaking in tongues. Gibberish. Learned behaviour or demonic possession. They'd have no idea what I was doing. And they would say to themselves. Are you not all mad? And turn around and walk out of that church. And in the process, blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. But if all prophesy, 
and the coming one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God, and report that God is in you of a truth. There you are. Fall down on your face. How many times have you prayed on your face? How many times have you prostrated yourself on your face? I've done it many times, but not as often as perhaps I should do. Why is he doing that? He's convicted of his sin. He's gone into a church. He's heard them prophesying, reading the word of God, and praising God himself, of course. And he's convicted of his sin. Hence why he falls on his face. Says, God, please forgive me. I know I'm a sinner, but you died for my sins. That's the whole point, isn't it? That's the whole point of us being around once we have been saved to bring others to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not to speak in tongues. It's not to enjoy some private gift, not to abuse some private gift which has ceased. And yet saying that, I'm still not completely clear in my own mind after being saved 13 years as to why this group of Corinthians even had this gift of speaking in tongues. I just can't fathom it. 13 years I've been saved. I've read many books on this whole subject of tongues and I've read books for it and against it, and I still don't really grasp it. But clearly, around 59 AD, it was still around, and I said last time that because the apostles were dying out, because the apostles weren't going to be around forever, because the New Testament hadn't yet been completed, you've got these prophets, 29, 30, 31, which have been raised up to fill the interim period between the death of the apostles and the completion of the New Testament. 26. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. It's not for you. It's not for me. It's for the church. This church must have been really full on. They got a doctrine. They got a tongue. They got a psalm. They got a revelation. They got an interpretation. On the one hand, I sort of commend them because they were clearly zealous for the Lord. They wanted to worship him. They wanted to be a part of this early church movement, this early group of Bible-believing Christians. And not once does he say, you people aren't saved. He says, you are my beloved brethren. I'm your spiritual father. I have begotten you. And yet, such confusion going on here. 27. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course. And let one interpret. Again, man, not woman, if any man speaks in an unknown tongue, known language, let it be by two or at the most three, no more than that, and that by course in turn, and let one interpret. The interpretation is obvious to explain to others what was going on. And yet in Acts chapter 2, there was no doubt as to what was going on. But here, this is still present in the church of Corinth. And yet I can't find this in Ephesus or Galatia or any of Peter's writings but it's very difficult to think that only the Corinthians had this gift of tongues. So I think it's quite fair to say that all of the churches would have had the sign gifts given out to them individually, and yet the Corinthians abused it the most. And yet, as it's only found once in the New Testament, I don't suppose it's that big a deal when it comes to other subjects which are found in every epistle in the New Testament. And yet we hear the most about tongues, and yet it's the last gift, it's the least of all the gifts found in Scripture, and yet it's only found really predominantly in the epistle of the Corinthians. 28. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Can you imagine that? Going to a church which is charismatic, Pentecostal, Catholic, Mormon, 
and other so-called Christian organisations and churches, and experiencing this. Not lightly. I've seen charismatics teaching people how to speak in tongues. I remember watching Derek Prince on a DVD some years ago, and he was teaching people how to receive the Holy Spirit. And he said, put your heads backwards, put your hands up in the air, roll your eyes back, and allow your tongues to be loose. And it was crazy. Everyone's speaking in some bizarre sound all at once. But that's not what Paul wants you to do. He says here one final time, but if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. This rarely happens. And let him speak to himself and to God. If he had the gift of tongues, he was to speak to himself quietly, don't cause a disturbance, and by so doing, speak to God. And yet I'm still swaying to the leaning that, for the most part, these people were blabbering in tongues. They were abusing what they may have heard others experiencing. Because we can't rule out for sure. We can't be dogmatic and say that nobody in Corinth had the true gift of speaking in tongues during this intertestimonial period. But what we can say for sure is that it was never God's will for everybody to speak in tongues at once or in general. Go back to chapter 12, read it carefully, and you see very clearly how the Holy Spirit gives different people different gifts. You won't find somebody having all five gifts. And also, this is a fivefold uh, ministry. Tongues, visions, prophecy, healing, and drinking of poison. There's five parts to the Jewish apostolic sign gifts. And yet we we never hear much about the drinking of poison, do we? Or playing with snakes, found in Mark 16. Let's move on, please. Verse 29. Let the prophets speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Two things. These are prophets, like Agabus, like Apollos, like Stephen, perhaps, that were raised up during the early church. And these men aren't around today because we have the word of God. Also, I'm going to take a chance and say this could also have some eschatological application in reference to the Great Tribulation. Because the Bible is found to be uh, listed in three parts. Historical, doctrinal and prophetical. So when I read these verses, I see first of all that it is doctrinal and also historical. But it could also be prophetical in the sense of prophets are going to be raised up during the Great Tribulation. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to have the sign gifts. And there will be prophets found very much in the Great Tribulation. And two prophets are quite possibly going to be Moses and Elijah. But here, let's stick with the context in the sense that Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth. He's saying that the prophets, plural, speak two or three. And that the other judge. There's no one man minister here. There's no one man show here. Every epistle in the New Testament was written to the elders of the church. Excluding Timothy 1 and 2, excluding Titus, they're all written to elders at the local church. And these prophets, as I say, were raised up to do a limited job. Their main mandate was to teach the Bible, to educate the churches in Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, as to the true meaning of the word of God. Why? Because the word of God wasn't yet written. Maybe only a third of it. And please remember that this stage in Paul's writing, we are around Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 21. So you see the gifts are starting to recede. Acts 21, 22, 23, 24. And by Acts 26, Paul is in jail. He's arrested. And uh, by Acts 28, that's it. He's not going anywhere. So you see the gifts are ceasing. 
But here, around 59 to 60 AD, around Acts 20, 21 thereabouts, there are prophets in Corinth, and no doubt in Ephesus and Galatia, filling in, as I say, trying to teach the word of God to the Corinthians day in, day out. Because Paul couldn't be in Corinth all of the time. He was traveling around the Roman Empire. He was a full-time traveling evangelist. Hence why he was entitled to be supported financially. He wasn't a pastor. He was an evangelist. But I like 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. The spirits in the prophets or the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You start teaching and I will check out what you say. Now today, I do that from the word of God. But here in Corinthians 14, the prophets judged the prophets. That way no church could go into major error. If you have a church which is run by one man, and he's wrong, the whole church goes into error. But if you've got a church which is run by a group of men, it's not so easy to go into error. I'm not saying it's not impossible, but it's not so easy. And you have faithful men who are rotating the teaching, the uh, pastoral of the fellowship, which they are a part of. 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Of course he's not the author of confusion. And yet I've seen it. I've seen these meetings with my own eyes. I've seen them on television. I've seen people in the streets putting on a show. And it does cause confusion. You think to yourself, is the Lord behind this? Or is this just hysteria? Is this just the flesh? I mean, I know mankind is complex, but to go into a first century church in Corinth must have been quite an eye-opener. Like a circus almost. And that would have dishonoured the Lord. And like I say, unsaved people would have gone in there and walked out. Walked straight out. There's no truth here. It's a madhouse. 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience. As also saith the law. Two things. The Plymouth Brethren take a very strict view here. And they say, well, women can't speak in the church whatsoever. And yet, from chapter 11, just turn back there quickly, we saw very clearly from chapter 11, uh, verse 5, But every woman that prayeth, or prophesieth, with her head uncovered, dishonoureth her head. For that is even all one, as if she was shaven. Paul's not interested in praying or prophesying. That's obviously expected. He's more concerned about the head covering. So women did pray out loud, and they did prophesy out loud in the early church and uh, Philip's daughters they were prophets they would be prophesying not necessarily telling the future but praising the Lord so you see the whole context here is weighed up very carefully on the one hand as I say the brethren say no women can't speak whatsoever they have to write notes to uh, the teachers in the church if they have any questions Uh, and on the other hand you have the charismatic saying no we can have women preachers we can have women pastors in fact just a few months ago Manchester was the first city in the UK to appoint a female Anglican bishop. Not just a priest, not just a vicar, not just an archdeacon, a bishop. And that is also an extreme view. The brethren on the one hand are too extreme. I think they really keep their women down. And on the other hand, the Church of England and the Charismatics and others have gone to the other extreme by allowing a woman to be ordained as a bishop. Let your women keep silence in the churches. What's the context? Tongues. For it is not permitted unto them to speak. Don't speak in tongues when the church gathers. But they are commanded to be under obedience. As also saith the law. This is an Old Testament principle. 
In fact, go back to the Old Testament. Take the time to read it. The synagogue would meet weekly, and I believe that the men would sit on one side of the synagogue and the women on the other side of the synagogue. And Islam has duplicated that. It's not quite as uh, strict as it is today in the churches. Men and women can sit together now in a typical church meeting. That's not the issue. But women were not to speak in tongues in Corinth during the first century. And I think this is still very much in relevance to today. Most churches that uh, are charismatic, Pentecostal, that hold to the sign gifts, and the Catholics also have their own charismatic wing, are dominated by female leaders. I mean, I speak about Joyce Mayer, uh, Paula White, uh, Jan Crouch. There's quite a few women that have been really big noises in churches over the last several years and decades. But the Catholic Church has really got a strong charismatic presence. And now the Church of England, as I say, have got their own female bishop. Let your women, without exception, keep silence in the churches. No speaking in tongues, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. You can pray, you can prophesy, chapter 11, but you can't speak in tongues when the service is underway. But they are commanded, this is dogmatic now, to be under obedience, as also saith the law. I didn't write this book. I'm just giving you the reading here. I'm just explaining it to you as well as I can. But Paul, as the apostle, knows exactly what he's talking about. And he's not mincing his words. 35. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Okay, several things here. If you're a woman and you're saved, you are expected to wait for the service to end and then ask your husband at home what was taught during the service. That's the first thing. Secondly, if you are a woman and you're saved and you go to a typical church, if your husband uh, is saved but doesn't know much Bible, okay, then obviously you would approach the teaching elders of the church and ask them. This is common sense, I know, but in the first century, Paul was very much trying to stop a free-for-all. And if you are a saved woman, but you're not married, or your husband isn't saved, then obviously you would ask the teaching elders of your church. And if you haven't got a church, then obviously you would ask uh, elders that you consider to be faithful brothers to explain the word of God to you. But what you can't miss from this is that women are not to be teachers. Because if they were to be teachers, he wouldn't be saying, don't ask anything during the service, but wait till you go home, and then ask your husbands at home. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ never chose any women to be his apostles. He chose 12 men. And the Bible was written by 41 Jewish men living on three continents over 1,600 years apart. No women involved. I'm not saying women are inferior in the sense of being less important than men. No way. Of course not. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene, first of all, when he came up out of the tomb. But women are not expected to be in positions of teaching, eldership, pastoral offices street preaching and who would want to be i mean if you are a faithful sister you wouldn't want to be standing on the street corner preaching on your own i've done it it's not easy i've been teaching the word of god for 13 years it's not easy and james says that we those of us which are teaching elders teaching brothers are going to be be uh, more severely judged when we get to the judgment seat of christ so take it from me you don't want to be a teacher if you're a woman you don't want to be teaching the bible if you're a woman you don't want to be street preaching if you're a woman you don't want to be up on that stage or platform or altar having people under your authority it is a disgrace it dishonors the lord and it's not something which was ever found in other parts of the word of god 35 and if they will learn anything let them ask their husbands at home for it is a shame for women to speak in the church i think i've already read that but it's okay i'll read it one more time because i think it's so important to really take this whole feminist movement apart and if they will learn anything let them ask their husbands at home for it is a shame, a disgrace for women to speak in the church. 
It's a shame, it's a disgrace to speak in tongues in the church. And it was a shame, it was a disgrace to be heard in the church in the sense of teaching, causing a, uh, causing a distraction. Wanting people to look up to you. Look at this great woman, you know, she's something else. Yes, we know there were women in the Old Testament, Miriam. We know there was Deborah. And uh, we know there were faithful women in the New Testament as well that the Lord has told us in his word. But they are the exception, not the norm. 36. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? Paul's ahead of me. <laughs> Paul's got one step ahead of me here. You know, Paul's already ahead of me. He's saying to himself, you know what? They're going to come back at me, and they're going to say to me, Paul, who do you think you are? This nasty, chauvinist, misogynist individual. Who do you think you are, Paul? You know, we want equal rights. He says, what? Came the word of God out from you? Did you write the word of God? Or came it unto you only? Was it written just for you women? See, Paul knows what's going to happen. He knows there's going to be a backlash here. And I see it all the time. I've been, you know, accused of different things over the years. You know, he's a misogynist. He's a uh, chauvinist. He's this, he's that. Nothing of the kind. I'm not, I'm not a chauvinist. I'm not a misogynist. I've no problem with women. But when it comes to teaching the Bible, I can't find it. In fact, Paul told you in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that women are to be silent. They're not to have authority over the man. They're to be in submission. And I know this isn't very popular. I know that... Uh, the world has moved on in some ways, not always, but in some ways since the Bible's written. We've had many female leaders in the world, and we've had a female queen in England for the last 60 plus years. But can I tell you that as an Englishman living in England, England has declined since the end of the First World War and the Second World War for that matter. When the King of England died at the end of the Second World War, his daughter replaced him. And since she has replaced him, England has declined considerably. We are no longer a military power. We have uh, a divided house, a divided kingdom. We have the highest abortion rate in the world. We have the highest obesity rate in Europe. We have one of the highest drinking rates in Europe. We have a high literacy rate in the UK. We have many problems in the UK. And yet, I've been to different countries over the years, and England is still a very great country. Don't get me wrong, I'm not running my country down. I love my country. But the point is that since, we had, or since we've been given a queen, a woman, to run our country, the country has declined. That's a fact. And uh, next year, America is going to the polls. They're going to the uh, election next year. They're going to choose the next president. I think it's 2016. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's next year. And there's every chance they're going to vote for a woman to be their president. And we'll see what happens in eight years' time. I would say that if she gets, a, if she gets elected next year, and I think she probably will, I would say she'll probably do two terms. That seems to be how it works in America. Two terms, Democrats. Two terms, Republicans. And we'll see what happens to America after she finishes office. But let's move on. 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. He's saying, listen, I am a prophet. I am an apostle. I have the authority to write what I've just written to you. So if you think you're a prophet or you're spiritual, check me out. Let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. He knew that a backlash was coming. That backlash is still prevalent today. I remember some years ago I listened to a well-known preacher who took up this subject. And to his credit, he preached against it. And a woman wrote to him and said to him, Dear Pastor such and such, I heard your message last Sunday about women in the ministry. And may I say that I've been ordained to become a Methodist minister. And I've been through the whole teaching system. And I was ordained. And I'm just about to take up my office of a, minister, uh, of a Methodist minister. But I heard your message last Sunday and I was shocked. And she said to him, I thought we'd already worked this out. Me and the body of Christ had come together 
and said it's okay for women to be in the ministry. Well, to cut a long story short, she quit the ministry. She repented. She got out of it. She realized it wasn't scriptural. That's a brave thing for a woman to do or for anyone to do. I mean, she would have got a good salary being a full-time Methodist minister. But she said, no, it's not scriptural. And this pastor on the radio did a faithful presentation when it came to explaining that it was never God's will to be a female preacher. And yes, I know that the Queen of England isn't a religious leader. She's a secular leader. I know that. And I know that the American president's next one in 2016 will be a secular uh, leader, not a religious leader. But go back to Isaiah chapter 1, 2 and 3, where the Lord makes it very clear that when he allowed women to be raised up in positions of authority, it was in spite of Israel, not because of Israel. It's not God's plan for women to have that level of authority. And like I say, if you want to be honest with yourself, you know that it's not your position of authority. It's not your calling. It's not a comfortable feeling to be given so much authority. And most men, I will say to you, don't want it either. Most men that I know don't want to be street preaching. Most men that I know don't want to be Bible teachers. Most men that I know want to just do the least minimal. They want the easy life. But Paul says, you know, he knows exactly what's coming. And he moves on from these women who are going to jump on him in 36 to the men that are going to jump on him. These are weak men. These are men that perhaps let their women wear the trousers. These are men that perhaps let their women rule the homes. And he says one last time, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. You better believe it. Paul wasn't going to mince his words. He was so clear when it came to how a local church should be run. 38. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. He that has eyes to see, he that has ears to hear, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. You got a church which is run by people that are carnal, uneducated, ignorance. They do so much damage. That's how these cults spring up. If you go back to the, the roots of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they were coming out with stuff which had been refuted hundreds of years ago by other Christian leaders. And yet they were ignorant of that. And I spoke to some JWs some weeks ago. And I think I've already shared this story. And I said to this mother and daughter... Where were the Jehovah's Witnesses before Charles Taze Russell came along? And she said to me, the daughter, well, have you heard of a man called William Tyndale? Have you heard of a man called Martin Luther? Have you heard of some other people? And I said to her, yes, and they were not. Uh, Denied of the Trinity, which your religion is, they believed in the triunity of God, and they believed in the supremacy of Scripture. They were ignorant of that. The JWs were ignorant of this. The Mormons are the same. The Charismatics are the same. Go back pre uh, Amy McPherson, go back pre, Catherine Corman, there's nothing there. You've got a few dubious groups throughout church history that had these so-called sign gifts, but they are really questionable groups. If you go back to George Whitfield, writing to John Wesley in the 18th century, he's lambasting uh, John Wesley. He's taking John Wesley apart for allowing people to be in hysteria during Wesley's meetings. So one final time, but if any man or woman be ignorant, let him be ignorant. And on top of that, put him out of the fellowship. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Wherefore, brothers, not sisters, wherefore, brothers, covet desire to prophesy, to proclaim truths from Scripture, to worship the Lord in truth and in spirit. And I will leave the door slightly open to be that intertestimonial period like Agabus with Paul back in Acts and other, other prophets that were raised up during Acts who had some understanding of the future but primarily, I think prophecy here is in reference to worshipping the Lord, proclaim the Lord's truth, so on and so forth, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Don't 
forbid to speak with tongues. And yet, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, what does Paul say? 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. That's the key, to prove all things. Go to scripture. In Corinthians, the prophets were subject to the prophets. They were the judges. They were the uh, group that were given the authority to judge what was authentic and what was not. But now we go to the word of God. Prove all things. All scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, first of all. Then for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped unto all good works, so on and so forth. So keep that in mind, please, when it comes to the last part of 39 not to forbid men to speak with tongues. Verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Absolutely. And yet, how difficult it must have been for Paul to get this point through to the Corinthians time after time. Now, I've made the statement throughout this whole message that I think that women didn't speak in tongues in the early church. I've got a bit of time. Please turn to Acts chapter 2, and the future project is, for me is going to be to go through Acts of the Apostles. I'm not sure whether I'll go to Revelation after uh, Corinthians or Acts not really sure but if you go to Acts chapter 2 please scripture with scripture and I've mentioned Acts so many times that I can't not quote it uh, let's pick it up if you may in verse 1 Acts 2 verse 1 and when the day of Pentecost was fully come they were all with one accord in one place they being the apostles and you find it very clearly from chapter 1 and I haven't got time to read chapter 1 as well but uh, take it from me that. The context here is speaking about the apostles. Two, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled all the house where they were sitting. They're sitting in anticipation for the Holy Ghost to come upon them. Now I'm not going to rule out the 70 weren't present. The 70 may well have been present. And it's even possible that the women could have been present too. But the context here is still in reference to the apostles. You see it very clearly as we read on. Verse three, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire and it sat upon each of them. Cloven means Old English for separated, diverse, different, split tongues. We saw from Corinthians 14, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue. So unknown meaning a different type of tongue is cross-referenced back here to Acts 2, 3, one more time. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. They're in anticipation for the arrival of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And yet charismatics tell you to pray for the Holy Ghost to come upon you. Pentecostals will tell you to pray for the Holy Ghost to come upon you. They will tell you to pray for the Holy Ghost. Derek Prince, one example. Barry Smith, also another one. He told us, uh, he told a meeting once that when he first got saved, he went into a Pentecostal church and he was there for three years. And they were praying over him to receive the Holy Ghost. But I read in 1 Corinthians 12, have I one spirit? Have we all been baptized into one body? You get baptized once into the Holy Spirit. And that happens the day you are born again. Four, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. They, the apostles, five, and there were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. It's Pentecost, maybe two million have travelled from around the world to go up to the Jewish temple to sacrifice, to worship the Lord. What a great day for the Lord to open up the church to the world. Jews, devout men, at Jerusalem, the capital of the world, in the first century. Six, and when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together. And were confounded, because every man heard them speak in his own language. They start off in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They start speaking in tongues, 
praising the Lord, proclaiming the Lord's goodness, his sovereignty, so on and so forth. And then they take it onto the streets. That's a form of evangelizing, isn't it? You don't keep it to yourself. If you're born again, you take the word of God onto the streets. Seven. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Now, I think in the early church and in Israel that probably what happened was the apostles had regional accents like we have in England today. I'm from London. I have a London accent. If you live in Manchester or Scotland or Glasgow or Leeds, you have a regional accent. Scotland would be uh, quite so difficult to understand. The Midlands, Birmingham, Wolverhampton have a slightly blunt accent. Uh, Yorkshire, being in Leeds, is a cross between Manchester and London. Excuse me, Manchester and Leeds, I should say, not London. But as a man from London, my accent is probably more universal, or as he used to call it, uh, transatlantic. That was the term. It was a very big term back in the 50s and 60s, transatlantic. Some of the great uh, British singers would go in America and work in America, and they'd have this sort of transatlantic accent. They would sound a cross between the Americans and the British. But here, these Jews, the apostles, have been identified by the devout Jews from every nation under heaven, verse 5, to be speaking in their own tongue. But on top of that, they understand that the Jewish apostles are Galileans. They must have had an accent of some kind, some reasonable accent. And they said to themselves, what's going on here? 8. And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? This is the whole point of it, you see. How do we know what's going on? How can we understand what's going on? We have come from all over the Roman Empire and we hear these Jewish Galileans speaking in our own tongue. There's no doubt here these are known languages, not gibberish, not learned behaviour and not devil possession. Look at 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judea, Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia. Pagaya and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Count it, Parthians, one, Medes, two, Elamites, three, Mesopotamia, four, Judea, five, Cappadocia, six, Pontius, seven, Asia, eight, Pagaya or Pigia, nine, Pamphylia, ten, Egypt, eleven, Libya, twelve, Cyrene, 13, Rome, 14, proselytes, converts, Cretes and Arabians. There's about 15 people here. Maybe I missed a couple, but there's about 15 different groups of people here. And they're hearing the Jews, the apostles, speaking in their own languages. Just imagine that. They've come from all over the Roman Empire, and they are shocked to hear the Jewish apostles, who probably knew Greek, no doubt, Hebrew, absolutely, Aramaic, absolutely, but they have heard the 12 apostles with Matthias at this time, speaking in their own tongues. Look at 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Peter, standing up with the eleven, which makes the twelve. So I think, looking at Acts 2, that the context here is on the apostles speaking in tongues. Being men, not women. And the shock from 9, 10, 11 and 12 is evident. That they knew exactly what the apostles were preaching and what they were saying. And I think one last time they were probably proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his glory, his sovereignty. Maybe they're reading Psalms and Proverbs in the languages of these 15 groups of people. Like I said, I may have missed out a few people. But my understanding is quite clearly that tongues was first of all a sign from 
believing Israel to unbelieving Israel because the early church were predominantly Jewish. And on top of that, it was a known language. So go back to 1 Corinthians 14. I'll give you a very quick wrap up as I'm running out of time. 1 Corinthians 14, 40 verses, so much material to cover. And uh, it's been slightly rushed today. But hopefully you get the main gist of what I'm trying to share with you all. And he starts off by saying, follow after charity, love, agape, and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy or prophesy. To prophesy, to prophesy, as I say, was to foretell the future. And it was also to proclaim the Lord's truth, glory, sovereignty, so on and so forth. Two, uh, down to six, he's concerned that a man who speaks in an unknown tongue without an interpreter is going to be pretty much feeding his own flesh. He's going to be glorifying himself. He's not going to be edifying the local church. And that's not what this is about. If you had a gift in the first century, you are to share it with other people. And if you have a gift today, in the 21st century, you should share it with other people as well. He makes a distinction between different different types of sounds, pipes, harps, seven, and a trumpet preparing for the battle. And they all differ, of course. But he says, how will anybody know what's going on if there's no clear sound as to what is occurring? You speak into the air, verse 10. There's, there's no substance there. There's no credibility there. And he says, you're desiring spiritual gifts, 12, but you've got all that you need from chapter 1. You've got all that you need from chapter 12, but yet it wasn't enough for them. And uh, 13, let him that speak in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. In reference to no more than two or three, 27, 28, always when an interpreter is present, and never when an unsaved person is present as well. And finally he gets to the whole problem of women joining in, speaking in tongues, blabbering away. And he says, listen, this is unacceptable. This, no, this isn't just some New Testament doctrine. This has been an Old Testament doctrine going back to Adam and Eve. The woman would be in submission. She'd be pregnant. She'd be in submission to her husband. She'd be in need of a husband to rule over her. And again, this isn't very popular for the 21st century, especially with the world of politics moving on, endorsing female candidates. And we've had a female prime minister here many years ago. And I know Israel's had a female prime minister and Europe has had many female prime ministers. Good for them. That's the world. But I'm talking about the church. The church is not the world and the world's not the church. The church should be different to the world. The church shouldn't be influenced by the world. The church should influence the world. The word church means ecclesia in Greek. And ecclesia means called out, separated. We are peculiar people. We are different from everyone else. And yet churches today have completely fallen for this feminist agenda. And not just the feminist agenda. A lot of weak men in the church. A lot of uh, spineless men who won't take a stand, who won't take on controversial subjects. They play it safe all of the time. I think that's Paul's thought in mind in 37 when he says one last time, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. That's pretty clear, isn't it? 38, but if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Let him be, leave him as he is, put him out to the fellowship. Let him be on his own. If he repents, he comes back into fellowship with the Lord. 41 last time, let all things be done decently and in order. I can't add any more to that. Amen to that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. What does it mean to believe in vain? Well, perhaps your husband got saved and you followed him, only half-heartedly believing it, or maybe you're 
wife got saved and you followed her, only half-heartedly believing it. Or maybe your parents got saved and you followed them, only half-heartedly believing it. But he says how he has preached the gospel to them. And he says, if you keep in memory what I've said to you, what I've preached to you, you're fine, unless you have believed in vain. He also starts this from verse 1. Moreover, brethren, brothers, the gospel being faith alone in Christ alone, of course, faith alone without any works. And he says, I preach it to you, you have received it. But he's still mindful of the fact that some perhaps have believed in vain. And yet, for the past 14 chapters, as I've shown week after week, he calls them beloved brethren. He says, I am your spiritual father, follow me as you follow Christ. But perhaps he's also referring to being saved from deception. If you go to the Gospels, Matthew 24, for example, the Lord says, He that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. Not saved from your sin, not saved from hell, but saved from deception. Also, Peter goes to walk on the water, and he starts to panic, and he reaches out. The Lord saves him, and he says, Save me, Lord. He doesn't mean save me from hell. He means save me from drowning. So there's two points to verses 1 and 2, quite possibly in reference to being saved from deception from the previous chapter, blabbering in tongues, speaking in tongues, cursing the Lord in tongues, which we looked at last time as one aspect of abusing tongues. And he concluded chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians saying, if any man loves not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. But I think ultimately the next few verses are going to quite clearly lay out that he's referring to being saved from your sins. But he's still going to underscore the fact that it's possible that some of these carnal people had believed in vain. This is why you're told in 2 Corinthians to examine yourself. But let's move on. Verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again a third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. No mention of Mary Magdalene, which is rather interesting, because the four Gospels tell us that she was the first to see him. Maybe she had died by this time, around 60 AD. But uh, he starts in verse 3, How I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. Did he receive it from the apostles, or did he receive it from the Lord Jesus Christ directly? Probably the latter. And he goes on to say how that Christ died for our sins. Substitutionary atonement, according to the scriptures, Old Testament, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. John 2 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ raised himself from the dead. Romans 8, how the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And Galatians chapter 1, how God the Father resurrected him from the dead. If you were to find any part of the Lord's body, just a fingernail of the Lord's body, the whole thing is over. But you can dig up the last ten popes, and it makes no difference to their faith. You can dig up Muhammad and some of his many concubines and wives and uh, lovers, so on and so forth, and it makes no difference. You can dig up Confucius, Buddha, and some of the Hindu deities, and it makes no difference. You can dig up Abbot Pike, and it makes no difference. But if you were to dig up any part of the Lord's body, it's all over in a flash. And he goes and say in verse 5, how he was seen as Cephas, being Peter, then of the twelve, 
minus Judas Iscariot, of course. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, which means he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. And he only appears to brethren. He doesn't appear to Herod or Pilate or Caiaphas because they are under judgment. And he appears to 500 people at once, probably spread out in different parts of Israel. And he goes on to say, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. He's saying, if you want to go back to Israel, if you want to go to Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Judea proper, make some inquiries if you wish. And some of these people are still alive and they will tell you how they saw the risen Christ. But some are fallen asleep. Some have died in the Lord Jesus Christ and they are awaiting the resurrection. Verse 7. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. James was his half-brother. This is not James Zebedee. This is James Camonese. And this is James, the brother of Jude. And this James is the leader from Acts chapter 15. Pre this piece of scripture, we find how the Lord's brothers and sisters were in unbelief. Something has occurred. Something has happened to bring them to faith. And we know from Matthew 27 how some... Of the dead saints were resurrected when the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected. That must have been quite a sight to behold. It says how they were seen throughout parts of Jerusalem. And we're not told how many saints were resurrected. But that of course is a picture of the rapture. Which we'll get to shortly. But maybe the Lord made a private visit to James. Or maybe James was in Jerusalem with Jude when the Lord was crucified. And they saw him and something changed in that split second. We're not sure. I'm just... Uh, speculating but something has occurred to bring James to faith in his half-brother along with Jude who is going to write the epistle of Jude and of course James writes the epistle of James some people think that James Zebedee wrote the epistle of James I don't believe that I think the Lord's half-brother wrote the epistle of James seven concludes then all of the apostles obviously the rest of the twelve excluding Cephas which he's already told us about I think in verse 5. Look at verse 8, please. And last of all, he was seen of me also as a one born out of due time. Muslims will tell you that the Lord never appeared to Peter, uh, to Paul, excuse me. And Muslims will tell you that Paul never saw the risen Christ. In fact, many people who hate Christianity will say that Paul made up Christianity. That somehow Paul is this great deceiver. But he says, and last of all, he was seen of me also as a one born out of due time. Paul missed the boat, as they say, for three and a half years. The Lord had 12 apostles plus the 70, and no doubt other groups of people. But out of the 70 disciples, all men I would put to you, and excluding the 12 apostles, Paul was not anywhere to be found. Paul was not chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ during the Lord's time on the earth. And I've often thought what it must have been like for Peter to sit down with Paul for 15 days, which we find in the book of Galatians, and have Paul explain the deeper things to Peter, which Peter wasn't privy to. And yet Peter spent three and a half years walking with the Lord, dining with the Lord, fellowshipping with the Lord. And yet Paul was shown the third heaven, not Peter. And John, the son of Zebedee, a cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ, was also shown the future, not Peter. So when people say that Peter was the first pope, that's nonsense. And when people say that the Pope of Rome is the Vicar of Christ, that is nonsense as well. The Vicar of Christ, of course, is the Holy Spirit. But he's almost lamenting that he's the one that was born out of due time. And yet, from Acts 9 onwards, this man, I think, turned the world upside down. Verse 9, 
from the least of the apostles, that I'm not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He's very humble, and yet he did persecute the church of God. And that word apostle means someone who was sent, an eyewitness. And he was an eyewitness. Acts chapter 9, he saw the risen Christ. And maybe quite possibly he saw the Lord during his three and a half years, travelling throughout Israel. No doubt the Sanhedrin had their secret police watching the Lord Jesus Christ, and probably Paul was a part of that small-knit community. But he says how he was the least of the apostles, but not really, because he would write 13, maybe 14 epistles, if you give him Hebrews. Whereas Peter only wrote two epistles. And John wrote his gospel, of course, the three eyes and revelation. So really, in my opinion, anyway, Paul is the greatest of all the apostles. But I guess he's really focusing on the, on the fact that he persecuted the church of God. You know, he had people put to death. He had people tortured and he was a pretty nice piece of work before he was saved. And I don't, I don't suppose it ever really left him. And yet the Lord said to Paul, I'm going to change that man's life. I'm going to make him suffer. He's going to go to kings and rulers. And his writings are going to change Western civilization. And that's very much the case. Like I say, Muslims attack Paul. Christians attack Paul. Uh, feminists attack Paul. So-called female Christians attack Paul. And uh, Catholics and Anglicans. Men and women also attack Paul for his so-called chauvinism. It's crazy, of course, it's ridiculous. It's a slur, it's a slander. But of course, what did the Lord say? If they hate me, they will hate you. And if they don't hate you, something is wrong with you. Look at verse 10, please. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I laboured more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. That's the key. It's the grace of God. We're saved by grace, which is faith. And that grace is what we need each and every day. And I showed you from chapter 13 some weeks ago how that if we do anything without love, it's all in vain. You can be the, great, the greatest evangelist, the greatest writer, the greatest linguist, the greatest soul winner. But if you have no love, if your love is not sincere, if it's not rooted and grounded in the word of God, it's all in vain. And as I say, he certainly laboured more than anyone else. But he says, no, don't give me the credit for it. Give God the credit for it. And that goes back to what I said earlier, that when he says to follow me as I follow Christ is a tall order. And yet, if you're able to follow anyone uh, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, it should be Paul and his writings. And you should always have the Pauline epistles to read in conjunction with the Gospels, because the Gospels are primarily law Old Testament teachings, whereas the epistles are New Testament, New Covenant teachings for us today. That doesn't mean we throw out the Gospels. Of course we don't. But uh, there's a reason why Paul was chosen, because we need to know as Bible believers living in the church age how to live and function. The Gospels are primarily biographies of the Jewish Messiah on the earth under the law. Verse 11. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believed. One waters, or one plants, another waters, and God brings the increase. So one plants, one waters, and God brings the increase. God gets the glory. And I said to somebody only yesterday, we are like postmen, we just post the letters, we just deliver the tracks, we just hand the tracks to people, whether they open them, read them, act on them, is between them and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not our Remit, we give Bibles to people, we give DVDs to people, we do what we can for people. What they do with that information 
is up to them. That's why he says one last time, therefore, whether it were I or they, probably in reference to the apostles, so we preach, apostles, and so ye, all of you, believed. Probably most of the Corinthians were saved, if not 90%, 95%. There'll always be a small minority that don't believe, who have perhaps believed in vain, who just go along with the crowd. Like I said earlier, mother got saved, so father gets saved, or husband gets saved, so wife gets saved, or uh, your child goes to church, so you go to church as well. But you're not really born again. You're just doing religion, as they say. You're just going through the motions. You're just trying to please your partner, your spouse, your mother, your father, your friends, so on and so forth. But he says here that how they had believed... I think Paul was a good judge of character, but uh, the main thought for me from verse 11 is humility. Paul had it left, right and centre. Verse 12, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some survey was carried out about 15 years ago and they asked, I think, 5,000 Anglican vicars how many believed in the resurrection and I believe only a third said they believed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would wonder if if that figure is similar for Catholics. It could be. But who are these people that are denying that there isn't any resurrection? I showed you from 1 Timothy how two individuals were going around denying the resurrection and Paul had to hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Excommunication put them out of the church that they would learn not to blaspheme. And yet this is incredible because Paul is still alive, he's still on the earth, and he won't die until probably 70 AD or thereabouts. And yet these heretics are there, they are present in Corinth, going around denying the resurrection. And yet these aren't heretics outside of the church, they are within the church. And that's why I said that perhaps 95% were saved. Well, I can't be dogmatic on this, but who are these people? Who are these heretics that are denying the resurrection? Go back to my earlier comments. If there's no resurrection, it's all over. And if you find just a fingernail or a piece of hair from the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole thing is over. And I'll tell you something. If you go to Matthew 28, it says, The angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and he rolled the stone away, and he sat upon it. Not to let Jesus Christ out, but to let the apostles in. And the keepers shook as dead men when they saw the angel of the Lord. That could be a Christophany, I'm not sure. It could be the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure. Normally in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is deity. But I'll tell you something. Herod and Pilate made it very clear that if his body could have been found, it would have been found. And if it wasn't found, those men were put to death. So please understand this, that for days after the resurrection, you can be sure that everybody in Israel who hated the Lord Jesus Christ was going around trying to find his body. Jewish leaders, temple guards, Roman soldiers... They were desperate to find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, to overthrow it, of course, to completely dismiss Christianity. And had they found it, it would have all been over. But they couldn't find it because he went back to heaven and he came back for a period of 40 days. But more on that on another study. 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. That word vain has appeared, what, four times now? five times is your faith in vain have you believed in vain did you say a quick one two three pray with me situation did you pray the sinner's prayer did you get baptized through peer pressure did you come to the cross because you thought that perhaps your life would improve be careful examine yourself make sure you believed sincerely 
There's no works involved. Don't ever misquote me. I'm not advocating works. The JWs are very good at producing works, but they're not saved. The Catholics are very good at producing works. They're not saved. Just because you are a very busybody sort of person, a very active person, just because you have works left, right and centre doesn't mean anything. But here, one last time, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. I can't underscore the seriousness of this. If there's no resurrection, everything is over. We're still in our sins awaiting judgment. And this is what separates biblical Christianity from all other so-called faiths and religions. All other religions and faith teach a package of faith and works. Do your best and it should work out at the judgment. Islam says if you do the five pillars of Islam, Allah will be merciful to you. The Catholics say if you die in a state of grace, if you go to mass, if you do the rosary, if you pray to the saints and Mary, you may spend a small period of time or a basic period of time a limited period of time in purgatory, but chances are you'll get out there eventually and go into heaven. It's faith and works. Hinduism, Freemasonry, so on and so forth. Faith and works. But biblical Christianity says forget it. All your good works is as filthiness. All your good works is as filthy rags. There's not a just man upon the face of the earth. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. If you think you're a good person, forget it. If you think your religion's going to save you, forget it. If you think going to church or tithing or keeping the Jewish law is going to save you, forget it. And if all those things could save you, or if any of those things could save you, if purgatory could save you, if going to mass could save you, why did the Lord Jesus Christ have to come and die on the cross in the first place? Substitutionary atonement. Verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. If there's no resurrection, the apostles are liars, the Bible is incorrect, it's all a fake, it's all a mirage, it's all a uh, fabrication, it's a made-up system, and it's all been totally in vain. And yet go back to Matthew, read 28, very carefully it says how some of the apostles still did not believe. I'll tell you what, if I was going to make a religion up, I wouldn't make Christianity up. This book, as somebody once said, is against man. A man knows this book is against him. This book is written by 41 Jewish men living on three continents over 1,600 years apart. Collusion is impossible, and yet all of their writings match up to the letter. Prophecy left, right, and center are most of those 41 Jewish men didn't even know one another. So we know this book is divine in origin, not human. And yet it's quite obvious that if there's no resurrection, the apostles are all liars, frauds, fakes, so on and so forth. And therefore the results are going to be catastrophic because people have believed their message. And yet if Christianity is incorrect, such people are now in hell. Look at verse 16, please. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. You can't go to heaven without a blood atonement. Like I said a few moments ago, all other faiths teach faith and works. Just do your best. Go to mosque, go to the synagogue, go to church, do this, do that. And the chances are your deity will look down favourably on you. But the Bible says, no, I am perfect. I cannot accept anything but perfection. And if I accept anything but perfection, I'm no longer deity. I'm no longer just. I'm no longer God. So God becomes a man 
in Jesus Christ. He comes to the earth, lives a life that we could never live, fulfills the law that we could never fulfill and dies in our place. And he says, if you believe on me, if you receive me sincerely, not in vain, I will save you to the uttermost. Unlike other religions which say and teach and advocate faith and works and also leave you hanging. You can never be sure that you've made it. You're always hoping that you've made it, but you can never know for sure. That's tragedy. And I'll tell you something. If I wasn't a Bible-believing Christian, you couldn't sell any other religion to me whatsoever. If you can't give it to me in writing that my sins are forgiven and that I'm going to heaven, now I'm not interested in joining any religion. And that's why biblical Christianity is supreme over all other so-called religions. Verse 18 Then they also which have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Obviously, of course, because no one's died for their sins. 19. Even this life only, we have hope in Christ. We are, of all men, most miserable. Of course, we have nothing to live for. Wasting our time. If Christ hasn't been resurrected resurrected from the dead, we are, of men, most miserable. Depressed, down and out, without a hope in the world. Look at verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And become the first fruits of them that slept. He's the first to come up and go to heaven. Lazarus was resurrected but died later. The boy from Nain died but was resurrected later. But Christ was the first to be resurrected and go straight to heaven. Which again separates him from all other so-called holy people. And on top of that separates him from the Old Testament saints. Which died waiting for the Messiah to come. You find how that Uh, works out from Luke chapter 16 21 for since by man came death by man came also the resurrection of the dead man being Adam came death physical and spiritual by man Christ came also the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die even so in Christ shall all be made alive all without exception will die 10 out of 10 will die and yet if you are alive when the rapture comes, you're never going to die. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, will live. And he that liveth and believeth in me will never die. Enoch is a picture, of course, of a church-age saint who will never die. And yet, as I say, Adam equals death. Christ equals life. 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after they that are Christ's at his coming. So Christ, as I say, is the first fruit. And then those that are Christ's at his coming. For the rapture, and also First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that when Christ comes in the air to gather his church, the saved are going to come with him, those that have died pre the rapture, because what does Paul say? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And they'll come back with the Lord in a spiritual sense to meet those which are alive on the earth, to be caught up, to go to be with the Lord forever. So I would encourage you to read this chapter and First Thessalonians chapter 4 together to get a clearer understanding of this wonderful doctrine. 24. Then cometh the end when he should have delivered up the kingdom to God, the Father, when he should have put down all rule and all authority and all power. That starts during the Great Tribulation, but ultimately it is fulfilled in the millennium, which is why tw- verse 25 says, For he must reign literally on the earth, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And if you get a chance, look at Psalm 110 to see what he does to his enemies. 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. 
Now, we know that once the rapture comes, we are taken out of the world. But that's not the end of death. There'll be tribulation saints that die in the tribulation. Read Revelation 6. But even the tribulation doesn't bring an end to death. Because we've got a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. And people are going to be dying in the millennium. So 26 is probably focusing on the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. And that's why Paul can cover two or three subjects with just a full stop or a comma or a semicolon. That's why you've got to read this book very carefully. 27. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected which had put all things under him. That's a picture of a king. A literal messianic king. Ruling a theocracy with a rod of iron. The first time Christ came to earth, he came as a son of Joseph to suffer. Yes, he was called the son of David several times, but that term son of David is really in reference to his second coming. So at the second coming, he's going to come as a son of David to rule and reign. And if you cross him at the end of the tribulation, you'll be judged severely, if not put to death. And if you cross him during the millennium, again, you will be put to death. There's no meek and mild Jesus at the second advent. 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is a very difficult verse to comprehend, and I've read it several times since probably last Sunday in anticipation for this morning's service. And yes, I could look at some of the commentaries, but the commentaries are only going to offer you what they have probably heard others teach. So close the commentaries and just read it for yourself. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, submission, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, his Father, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So when it says here that Christ is subject unto the Father, not necessarily in reference to being under him in the sense of being inferior or less than him, as the JWs would have you believe, but probably more in reference to a sense of humility, a sense of achieving his remit, his purpose and he's now going to come back under the father 29 else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all why are they then baptized for the dead why bother baptizing anybody if there's no resurrection and the mormons like to baptize people they go through the phone books they baptize some very unusual people because they have fallen into the trap as have the catholics in the false doctrine of baptism or regeneration that you can't go to heaven unless you've been baptized in water which is ridiculous you are saved by believing in the lord jesus christ you are saved by the shed blood of the lord jesus christ and then you're baptized but don't put water before blood blood saves you water of course is a type of the blood 30 and why stand we in jeopardy every hour these men lived it these men risked their lives day and night if you get a chance, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. That tells you what these people went through. Dreadful torture. Dreadful. And all of the apostles but one were put to death for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there are people out there that will tell you that Christ went to the south of France with Mary Magdalene and lived happily ever after. If that was the case, why do these men die for their faith in Christ? It's ridiculous. Just read church history. Even secular history affirms these things to be so. 31. I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. He died himself. He put off the old man, put on the new man. And he was a real fruit bearer. 32. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me? 
if the dead rise not. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's have a party. Let's have a good time. Let your hair down. Live like the flesh. If there's no resurrection, if there's no hope, let's live it all now. And that's what most churches do. Most churches are very worldly. Most Christians do the least possible when it comes to service. Most Christians just go through the motions and they get convicted of their sin and they say, you know what, we better start going back out on the street again. We better start doing this. We better start doing that. We better start standing with faithful brethren because they are convicted. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Absolutely. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Don't let any filthy talk come from your mouth. Don't let four letter words come from your mouth. But he's really saying evil communication in reference to false doctrine will corrupt. So be not deceived. Evil communications, heresies, false teachings, liberal churches, corrupt good manners. That's why so many people go wrong. Good saved people, they get saved, they start off with the Lord, but they go wrong and they go wrong because they get involved with the wrong crowd. They may join a church or a fellowship or some online ministry, if you will, which is teaching another gospel. And Paul said in Galatians 1, if you preached another gospel, which wasn't from the apostles or from the Lord, let him be accursed. That's why it's imperative to check everything that you hear from me or anyone else in light of scripture. 35, but some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And what body do they come? On the one hand, that's a good question. And yet Paul's response from 36 suggests that the question isn't a sincere question. Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and every seed his own body. No two people are going to get the same type of resurrection. We know from Hebrews 11 how some of the saints back in the Old Testament wanted a better resurrection. And I've almost finished Fox's Book of Martyrs. And I'll tell you this, most of those people that I've been reading about over the past several weeks are going to get a better resurrection. Far better than my resurrection. Better crowns, better rewards. A much better place in God's kingdom. Because they really suffered for the Lord. I don't just mean putting up with uh, unsaved family or struggling in a secular job these people lived it these people were singled out by the catholic church and tortured to death brutally murdered i read one account of a 17 year old woman who had just been married about 18 months or thereabouts she had a young child and they took her out to the catholics they murdered her husband they murdered her daughter and they tortured to death very slowly saying if you recant we will pardon you and she said, I can't recant, I can't deny my saviour who died for my sins. She's going to get a much better resurrection than I'll ever get. But look, please, at verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, another of birds. Please keep in mind that the resurrection is only for human beings. Only humans are going to be resurrected. I'm sorry, but animals are not going to be resurrected. Animals don't have souls. They have spirits but they don't have souls. And yes, we know there are animals in heaven that come back with the Lord. Revelation 19, being horses. There's no scripture to suggest that animals that have died from creation to the rapture are going to be resurrected. 40, there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. Celestial being heavenly, terrestrial being earthly. Going back to Adam being the first man, and Christ being the second Adam. And you're either related to Adam, in which case you die and go to hell, 
or you're related to Christ, in which case you are redeemed, and you're going to spend eternity in heaven with him. 41. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another, starring glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. However you died makes no difference. He will put you back together again. If you were cremated, he'll put you back together again. If you drowned, he'll put you back together again. If you went missing, he'll put you back together again. If you were aborted, he'll put you back together again. If you died in any type of possible way, he will put you back together again. And one day you will be raised to honour. Be struggling in a, in a spiritual sense, in a physical sense. You could be disabled or not. It makes no difference. He will put you back together again and give you a glorified body which will live on forever. And on top of that, if you're unsaved, he will give you a spiritual body which will burn forever. 45. And so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit, a life-giving spirit. Substitutionary atonement. We all come from Adam and the key is to get out of Adam and to get into Christ, which is what the new birth is all about. 46. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and after that which is spiritual. It's a throwback to Adam being physical, earthly, Christ being spiritual and heavenly. 47. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Did you catch that? The first man, Adam, is of the earth, earthly. Won't save you. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Jesus Christ. Deity. The Lord from heaven. Use this with a Mormon. Use this with a Muslim. Use this with a Jehovah's Witness. Our God is from heaven. When you sin against God, only God himself can forgive you. I've been saying this for years now. Don't tell me that Jesus is my call. That's not going to help me. Don't tell me Jesus is a good prophet, a good man. That's not going to help me. Don't tell me Jesus is Lucifer's half-brother. That's not going to help me. The second man is the Lord, L-O-R-D, from heaven. And that goes back to my earlier comment, how the triunity of God decided to send Jesus Christ to come and die for the sins of the world. And on top of that, may I add, he volunteered to come and die for the sins of the world. I've heard Muslims say, poor old Jesus, he was forced to come and be tortured to death. No, he volunteered to come and die for the sins of the world. That's how much he loves us. 49. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. You may be a good person, but being a son or daughter of Adam isn't going to help you. You may be very generous when it comes to charity. You may be a very decent, up-abiding member of society in your local country, what have you. You may be involved with good works. You may be a Freemason. You may be a member of Parliament. You may be into saving the planet, so on and so forth, but it won't help you. You need the image of the heavenly. You've got to be born again. 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Enoch and Elijah were raptured back in the Old Testament. And something happened to them to be able to go to heaven. Now, I don't believe they went into the ground, Luke 16, which was paradise, pre the resurrection. They went straight to be with the Lord in heaven. They are the exception, not the practice. Enoch represents a church age saint who's never going to die. And you could say that Elijah represents 
a Jew who gets saved in the tribulation, but ultimately those two were taken from the earth and changed. One more time, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Without holiness, no man shall see God. So something has to happen to us in order to be able to go into heaven. It's an imputed righteousness. It says how Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Enoch walked to the Lord and was no more. Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind and left Elisha behind. Something happened to Enoch and Elijah to allow them both to go straight to heaven. Whereas Moses died, was buried, and yes, we know he came back at the transfiguration. But this goes back to what I've been saying all along, that you can't go to heaven as you are. Being baptised and water won't do it. Being a good person, so-called, won't do it. Being religious won't do it. You've got to be born again. Make sure you have not believed in vain. Get an imputed righteousness, and that will put you into the kingdom of God, which is physical and spiritual, and you go from being corrupted to being uncorrupted 51 behold i show you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we should all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed behold i show you a mystery something which was held back in the old testament something which wasn't revealed to the apostles but it was to paul we shall not all sleep some of us are going to be raptured. Some of us are never going to die like Enoch. But we should all be changed in a twinkling of an eye. Very much in reference to verse 50 in a moment. It's going to happen so quickly you won't be ready for it. At the last trump, at the end of the church age, for the trumpet shall sound some kind of calling. I won't be dogmatic and say a literal trumpet will blow in heaven, although I'm sure some people suggest that to be so. And he says, for the trumpet shall sound a great proclamation and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Those who have died, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, their bodies are going to be resurrected. And those of us which are alive won't prevent those going up before us. First Thessalonians chapter 4, 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. You'll live forever. Getting saved is relatively easy. Being a disciple is very difficult. Being resurrected is supernatural. We can't do anything whatsoever to help the Lord to resurrect our bodies. It's all of him. 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. We know that the Lord has already dealt with death. We know he's got the keys over Helen of death. So he's already been victorious. But death still hangs over all of us. Even saved people are fearful of death. They needn't be. But they are because they still have their old natures. I remember years ago listening to a well-known preacher who's now with the Lord. And he said when he was diagnosed with cancer, he was scared. He was fearful. And that's quite natural because that's his old nature. But it needn't have been so. Paul wasn't fearful, I don't believe. Peter wasn't fearful, you shouldn't be fearful, I shouldn't be fearful, but it goes back to our old nature. 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The law kills you, the law convicts you, but Christ has overcome the law, 
and we are overcomers through Christ Jesus. Look at 1 John, please. But thanks be to God, which giveth us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Substitutionary atonement. He dies in our place, like I said. And if we believe on him, if we trust in him, we can be redeemed. And we're going to be raised incorruptible to live forever with him in glory. 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. Keep on going with the Lord. Be busy for the Lord. If you're born again, you're still here for a purpose. It's not to sit back and do your own thing. Not to sit back and pamper yourself. Get busy for the Lord. Start planting seeds. Start witnessing to people. Put yourself out. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Paul told us in Romans 12 to present our bodies as a living sacrifice day in day out like I say to get saved is quite easy in human terms anyway but to be a disciple to be a faithful disciple is difficult you've got to deny yourself you've got to put the Lord first and you've got to turn uh, from self-will to servitude so that will conclude 1 Corinthians 15 all uh, 58 verses a very deep piece of scripture and I've only given you a very simplistic understanding a very simplistic uh, reading this morning and I hope that if you've been following me over the last several weeks you are reading these verses and these chapters in your own time in your own leisure not just listening to me on a Sunday or you know listen to these studies online you're actually reading the word of God in your own time to get further into scripture but he starts chapter 15 by really underscoring the fact that some could have believed in vain they might have believed in vain and he wants them to be sure they haven't believed in vain and he says how he was uh, given the gospel and he was given it through revelation and he made it very clear how Christ died for our sins was buried according to the scriptures and how he was seen of Peter then of the twelve then of above 500 brethren at once showing that Christ is deity only God can appear to everyone at the same time and on this occasion he chose to appear to 500 people at once most are still alive around 60 AD but some have fallen asleep and probably Mary Magdalene would have been one of those people hence why Paul doesn't list her James gets mentioned in seven the half brother of the Lord Jude's brother probably full brother no doubt and he sort of laments from verse eight how he was the last to be saved as a one born out of due time but wow didn't he make up for it I mean this man pretty much on his own transformed western civilization and we know from I think it's Romans 10 how up until 56 AD the word of God had gone to the ends of the earth he moves on still lamenting in nine how he persecuted the church of God and he did but by the grace of God he is what he is and this should also be a great uh, scripture for encouragement if you've got a rather questionable background if you have come from a life of crime if you were a pretty nasty piece of work or maybe you're battling uh, demons as they say maybe you've got some problem some skeleton in your closet whatever if God can save a murderer someone like Paul although Paul didn't murder anybody directly you understand indirectly he can save you Moses murdered people David and Solomon committed adultery and David did have somebody murdered and yet God saved those individuals if he can save those people he can save you so don't put your sin you know don't use your sin as an excuse not to come to the cross you know God is in the business of saving sinners the word of God says how Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost 10 going down to 11 is teamwork he says we have preached to you and all of you have believed it's not just Saint Peter or Saint Paul or Saint John as the Catholics call them there's no one man show here. They worked as a team. But 12 going down to 19. 
underscores the fact that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is imperative. Without that, we're sunk. Without that, we have nothing. Without that, it's all over. Just find one piece of the Lord's hair, one bit of toenail. I don't mean to be crude, but I'm just trying to make the point. If you could find one aspect of the Lord's body, it's all over. And you can be sure that Jerusalem would have searched day and night for his body. And had they found it, you know, had it been possible to find it, they would have found it. But they couldn't find it because he'd gone back to heaven. 20 going down uh, to 25. Christ is the first fruit. As I say, he's the first to die and come up and go straight to glory. Pre that, uh, you had to stay in the ground. Luke 16 and wait for the death of the Messiah. Adam is the first man. Christ is the second Adam. To be an Adam isn't going to do anything for you. You've got to be in Christ. Tribulation is found in 24 and the millennium is found in 25. And like I say, it's in a rule and reign for 1,000 years. And it's going to be a, a dictatorship. Pure and simple, a dictatorship. His way or no way. If you cross him in the millennium, he will kill you. You know, when you cross God, he has the right to kill you. He killed Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. He put Moses to death prematurely. He put Aaron to death prematurely. And he reserves the right to put you to death and me to death prematurely now in the church age if he wants to. And I showed you from chapter 11 how many of the Corinthians were sleeping. They had been put to death by God because they wouldn't repent of their sin. They wouldn't turn from their sin as saved people. And therefore God said, that's it. I'm finished with these people. God is holy. God is righteous. And I said this before, and I said it one last time from previous messages anyway, that Christ preached on hell three times more than he did on heaven. 27, going down to uh, 33, deals with false teachings which are going to corrupt you. And 34, I'm not sure if I read 34, awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. Awake to righteousness, renew your mind, renew yourself. Don't be lukewarm, don't be dull of hearing, and sin not. Stop sinning, stop feeding the flesh. For some have not the knowledge of God. They should know these things, they're born again. I speak this to your shame. As a loving father would re would uh, reprimand his wayward child, hear the Lord, through Paul is reprimanding the Corinthians. 35 down to, probably, let's see now, uh, 44. He explains the method of the resurrection, how it's going to work. And yet even when he explains it, we don't really understand it. The whole subject of the resurrection is is a mystery, really. It, it's supernatural. And no, no matter what Paul did, no matter how much time he would spend explaining it to you in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, it's still a mystery. You just can't understand it. But you were told to believe it. 45, he reaffirms how Adam is the first man who was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening or life-giving spirit. Again, Christ is the dispenser of everlasting life, which proves he's deity. You can't avoid it. 49, you've had Adam's earthly image, which may be pretty good in today's world anyway. You may be a highly esteemed member of your society, but in 100 years' time, who cares? You're six feet in the ground, and if the Lord hasn't come back, uh, you're going to be burning in the lake of fire, which is the second death. He doesn't say... We shall also bear the image of the heavenly. I'm not sure I quite understand that. I know we're going to have uh, Christ's body, or we're going to be like his body at the second coming. We're going to get new bodies, of course. But to actually have the image of the heavenly, I'm not sure I quite understand that. But just to be sinless, just to be at peace, 
just being the presence of God is enough for me. 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't go to heaven on your own. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Your body is no good. Your blood is no good. Something has to happen to you in order for you to be able to be in the presence of Almighty God. And I put it to you that this is a clear reference to imputed righteousness. And on top of that, a clear reference to being born again, born from above. 51, 52, 53, get ready. The rapture is going to come at a moment in a twinkling of an eye. Be holy, for I am holy, the scripture says. It's going to come when you least expect it. But First Thessalonians says how the dead are going to go up first. Then those of us which are alive and remain are going to be called up to be the Lord forevermore. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. Supernatural again, down to the Lord's sovereignty. 54, down to 57. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He conquered death, and Paul told us how we are more than conquerors to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love verse 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It can't hold you. It can't keep you in bondage. It can't threaten you. It can't put fear into you. Because the sting of death is sin, 56, and the strength of sin is the law. The Lord can't touch you. Sin can't touch you. Death can't touch you. Because Christ has walked to the valley of death for us and he's there awaiting us i gave you 57 but thanks be to god which giveth us a victory through our lord jesus christ thanks be to god the triunity of god which giveth us the victory through our lord jesus christ it's all about him and one last time from verse 58 therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast unmovable Always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. You might not see any fruit in your lifetime. We all get discouraged. But maybe five years, ten years down the line, fifteen years down the line, some of your labouring will start to produce fruit. It can be disheartening at times, as I say, when you go on the streets day in, day out. And you see the same hardened, uh, disinterested people walking past you. People giving you the finger, people cursing you. Or just ignoring you. Just giving you the the, uh, the treatment of apathy, really, just uh, being apathetic. But whatever we do isn't in vain. And one day we know from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, how every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So one day the whole world is going to bend, go down their knees and confess Christ as Lord. So we are truly victorious in our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'll close there. And uh, I know that this this was a pretty... Uh, simplistic look at the resurrection but uh, due to time restraints I can't spend any more time on it but maybe on a future occasion I will look at the resurrection in a lot more detail but keep this in mind if you, if you will please that the resurrection primarily in scripture is in reference to Israel whereas the rapture is primarily in reference to the church age keep that in mind please but I won't spend any more time on this because I think I've said enough for today Okay, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And this has been a 16-week project, going through the entire epistle to the Corinthians. And I've said over the last several weeks that this was a very carnal church, a church which was saved, a church which was beloved. And yet they thought that because they were saved, they could live as they wanted to, whereas the Galatians was a legalistic church. They thought that if they kept the law, if they returned to 
how the Jews used to live, they were somehow perfect themselves. And Paul told the Galatians how they had fallen from grace, which is another term to backslide. They weren't lost, of course. You can fall overboard, but you can't fall inboard. Um, or you can fall inboard, you can't fall overboard, I should say. But the problem with the Corinthians was they were probably surrounded by a lot of uh, carnal people. They'd come from very questionable backgrounds. And they were battling the old natures, something which we all struggle with. And Paul took the time to say, listen, uh, you're born again, you're beloved brethren, but you need to push on with the Lord, you need to dig deep. So we covered a lot of ground over the last several weeks, taking a very simplistic look through this epistle. And what came from this epistle was the rapture, the potential to lose one's place in the millennial kingdom, if they weren't careful. And he took the time to tell us in chapter 6 how fornication uh, was a sin which would result in losing one's place in the millennial kingdom which was a potential problem that would affect them and still is applicable to today. Uh, but the greatest theme so far that I got from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think it's 17, how Paul wasn't sent to baptize, to put people into water, but to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. And sometimes you have to raise your voice to be heard. You can't just uh, speak very quietly. You can go onto the streets and preach loudly. Raise your voice to be heard. And that's what saves people. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you think you're saved by being baptized, if you think you're saved by going to a church, if you think you're saved by being a good person, so-called, forget it. You're saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and he keeps you saved. Also from chapter 15, Paul took a few verses out from verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, just to reaffirm how they were saved by believing on the resurrection. And he says, in case, in case some of you had believed in vain, it would be good to examine yourself, which he picks up in 2 Corinthians. But what staggered me over the last several weeks was how this group of carnal uh, people were saved. And never once does Paul say, you're not saved, you're on your way to hell. He says, that you're carnal, you've been deceived, which, as I say, is something which we all have the potential uh, to come our own way if we're not careful. That's why we're told to... Meditate on the scripture to examine ourselves each and every day. So let's move on and let's complete uh, this almost 12 hour long study through 1 Corinthians. And let's conclude, we may, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. The collection for the saints, gathering of money or putting money aside for the saints in Israel in Jerusalem, in Judea. And this is interesting because Paul is writing to a Gentile church, not necessarily a very wealthy church, but compared to some of the Jewish brethren in Judea and Jerusalem, they were wealthier. And people say, you know, the Jews control the world, blah, blah, blah. We're here. You're going to find poor Jews in Israel very much suffering. And that gets picked up in the epistle of James. And Paul's going to say to the church in Corinth and also Galatia here in verse 1, probably Ephesus, to take the time to put money aside for the struggling Jewish remnant in Israel, no doubt, because at that time the leaders of Israel were putting a lot of pressure on believing Israelites to abandon the Lord Jesus Christ and go back to the law. That was probably the biggest problem that the believing Jews dealt with during the first century, to go back to Israel, to go back to the law and forsake the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's really what Hebrews is all about, hold firm, don't draw back. Meaning don't go back to the law. And you find it in John 6, 6, 6. Many of his disciples walked no more with him. An enormous, enormous amount of pressure to uh, abandon the Lord and go back to the Lord. Uh, 
sorry, to abandon the Lord and go back to the law, I should say. But here he says, now concerning the collection for the saints in Israel, as I have given order to the church of Galatia, even so do ye. I'm not sure this is a weekly thing. I don't think the Corinthians came together every week, along with the Galatians and Ephesians, to put money aside for Israel, maybe. But what I really get from this chapter is how the early church met each and every Sunday. That's what I really get from scripture. And also we find in Acts 20 how the early church met every Sunday, every Lord's Day, to worship the Lord on the first day of the week, to remember the great price he had paid for them. Look at verse 2, please. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. It's quite possible that people in Corinth and around were just waiting to say, look at Paul, you know, he's coming to Corinth to collect money for himself. No, he told us in chapter 9 how he was entitled to be supported with gifts because he was an apostle and an evangelist. But he says on the first day of the week, Sunday, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him. It's a free will offering. This isn't mandatory, although it would have been expected probably, that there be no gatherings when I come. And again, I don't think this was something which the church did every week, but they would have met every week to break bread. And also from Acts 1, 2 and 3, the early church met daily to break bread. It was a big issue for them because many of these people had come from unbelieving backgrounds and to break bread to be with the Lord's people is a big issue for them. Look at verse 3. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, then will I send to bring your liberty unto Jerusalem. Your letters of commendation. And it's these people that are going to be offered to Paul by letters that are going to collect the money and go up to Jerusalem, as I say, to support perhaps almost the starving Jews. I'm not sure we can really understand just how bad it was for first century Israelites living under great hostility. But judgment was on them, and we know by 70 AD that the Lord destroyed the temple of Israel. Titus sent his army up to Israel, and yet they were told, don't destroy the temple, but the Lord, as always, and you look at uh, Revelation 19, put it in their hearts to do his will, and they burnt that temple down. Their time was up. But you can't miss it. One, two, and three. It's up to you what you do, and above all, it's to do it in order, through letters, there's not going to be just one man doing it all himself. And also that puts the uh, emphasis back on plurality. As I said before, the epistles are written to elders, not an elder. And here a group of people are going to follow Paul up to Jerusalem, verse 4, with whatever they've been able to put aside for the starving Jews in Israel. Verse 4, and if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. Paul wrote... Uh, to the Corinthians under great persecution and his whole life was a story of suffering the Lord said if they hate me they'll hate you and they hated Paul left right and center and yet the last thing that Paul wanted was to be a burden to the Corinthians that's why he said last time that he was a tent maker he wasn't going to be burdensome unto anyone he was desirous that they were able to do what they did on their own two feet and yet if they had the chance to put any money aside for those more needy of him, and Paul was certainly needy, uh, it was beneficial for them to do so. And also that would take any potential criticism of Paul and uh, leave it at the eldership of the church in Corinth. Verse 5, Now I come unto you when I shall pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. Paul was a travelling evangelist as well as a full-time apostle. He wasn't a full-time pastor, he was an evangelist, he was always travelling. In fact, he wrote 13, maybe 14 epistles. 
he wasn't a prolific writer in the sense of some people today who write encyclopedias and yet never do any street work, don't do any soul winning. This man really lived it. I think where the Lord uh, finished, if you will, that uh, Paul was able to continue on. And Paul's a great example. He said, follow me as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, and it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. That's a great picture of humility. Here's the greatest man that ever lived. And we know that John was referred to as the greatest man that ever lived pre the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But post the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul's the greatest. And it's just staggering when you really take the time to think about it. It's such a carnal, weak, pathetic church, really, uh, tossed to and fro. And yet he's going to get there, he's going to reach them, and they're going to send him off with a great blessing. And on the way, he says in verse 8, But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. He said, I'm all things to all people, that I might win some to Christ. He kept the, the Jewish law because he was a Jew. I don't take these verses and think, well, you know, Paul was very much of the mindset that the law was for him, so it's going to be for me. No, that's what Galatians is all about. Most people today are saved Gentiles. And if you are a saved Jew, okay, there might be some scope for you to observe the feast days. But I would say that this early generation of Christians was still very much uh, under the influence of the temple. But by 70 AD, the temple went down and that really concluded all of the feast days. Also, he would go up to Jerusalem. And we find this very clearly in Acts of the Apostles to preach to the Jews. That's the whole point of chapter 9. And more things to all people that I might win some. To the Jew, I was a Jew. To the Gentile, I was a Gentile. That doesn't mean you have to get your hands dirty. That doesn't, that doesn't mean you have to start living with unsaved people or mixing with unsaved people or lowering yourself to commit sins that unsaved people commit. The Lord dined with unsaved people. He associated with unsaved people, but they wanted to know him. I mean, you read back in the Gospel of Matthew how Matthew's friends came to a supper on one occasion and he sat with them. And the Pharisees said, why does your master sit with sinners? Why does your master associate with unsaved people and he was doing that because they wanted to know the truth they wanted to be to be born again they wanted to experience the lord of the universe i don't think we need to put ourselves in an environment with unsaved people just for the sake of doing so but if they want to know the lord jesus christ if they're interested in him okay why not but please always keep in mind that paul was a jew although he was sent to the gentiles he told us in is it uh, romans Nine, how he wished he was accursed if it meant his people being saved. And Calvinists say, no, 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 you were chosen before the foundation of the world. If you were chosen before the foundation of the world, why does Paul say he wished he could be accursed if it meant his people would be saved? He went to the third heaven and he told us later on, along with Peter, how God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But anyway, let's not uh, move away from the main theme of this piece of scripture. Verse 9, for a great door and a fetchel is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Paul was hated, he was despised, he was shipwrecked, he was whipped. We saw earlier on in this epistle how he almost lived hand to mouth. And it goes back to what the early church went through. The Lord said he had nowhere to lay his head. And yet today's church in the West is just so wealthy, it's shameful. And yet Paul was living hand to mouth, he was buffeted left for dead and we think on that occasion when he was left for dead was when he went to the third heaven and he saw things which couldn't be uttered he was speaking in tongues and of course paul spoke in literal tongues 
Tongues of men, he was a linguist. Tongues of angels, because he went to the third heaven. Maybe he even spoke to angels, we can't be sure. And charismatics say, well, you see, you know, Paul spoke with the tongues of angels and tongues of men, so I'm going to do so. No, 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 Paul was a linguist. Okay, Greek was the main language of the first century, fine. But just look at Acts chapter 2. There's about 12 people listed there, 12 groups of people from all parts of the Roman Empire. They had their own language. They never departed from their own language. The Jews spoke Hebrew and Aramaic as well as Greek. So Paul was a linguist, as I say, and he needed it because he was going to travel around the world preaching the gospel to people from all parts of the world. And as I say, when it, came, when it comes to the term speaking with the tongues of angels, I think that's really in reference to his trip to the third heaven. But it says here, a great door is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. If you want to study someone who suffered, if you want to really humble yourself, study the Apostle Paul, and afterwards get a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs and read it. If you think you're a saved person, if you think you've been born again, read Fox's Book of Martyrs and see what the, the real Christian went through the first 1,600 years of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I think sometimes we say we're Christians and we are really... Uh, in many ways, kidding ourselves. We know we're saved by grace. Don't get me wrong. And we're kept saved by grace. There's no works involved. But to be a real decent Christian, someone's going to have great fruit, somebody who's crucified the, the flesh, somebody who's living for the Lord Jesus Christ, go to Fox Book of Martyrs and examine yourself. And you'll be quite surprised what the early church went through. It puts me to shame. I don't mind saying that. It puts me to great shame. Verse 10. Now if Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord. As I also do. This is strange. If Timothy comes to you, see that he may be with you without fear. Fear of whom? Fear of what? Well, maybe there were groups within groups in Corinth which were hostile, perhaps, to Paul. He does pick this up in the next chapter, or the next epistle, I should say, of Corinthians 2, and perhaps Timothy, and we know that Timothy was a beloved son from Acts 16, was perhaps treated with suspicion. I don't know. Timothy was circumcised because he was Jewish. His mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek. And that goes back to 1 Corinthians 9, how more things to all people that I might win some to Christ. But Timothy's going to go perhaps as an advanced party because Paul was once again in chains, no doubt, somewhere. Or he was being withheld or delayed. We're not quite sure exactly what the holdup was. But this term, without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do, it's intriguing because I think Timothy, Titus and Dr. Luke were Paul's chief lieutenants. And yet this term without fear, I can only assume, goes back to some of the leaders or groups within groups in Corinth, which perhaps were critical of Paul. And they thought, well, maybe Timothy is like Paul. I don't know. I don't want to move beyond this piece of scripture. But there was some apprehension here. And Paul could see it and he wanted to make sure that his beloved son wasn't going to be uh, spiritual son, I should say, wasn't going to be uh, given a hard time when he arrived. 11. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto you, for I look for him with the brethren. Timothy was also probably in his early 30s at this time, whereas Paul was in his late 60s, going into his early 70s perhaps, but uh, there's about a 30-year gap between the two. And we know from First Timothy that Paul says to Timothy, don't allow anyone to despise you, probably because of his age. And maybe down to his jealousy, Apollos was a great man. And, you know, people do get jealous of brothers who are gifted in the word of God, and even sisters who are able to show compassion, you know, sisters teaching sisters, 
So 10 and 11 does suggest that there was the potential for some hostility, there was a potential for some kind of altercation with Timothy's arrival. But he says that uh, Timothy does the work of Paul, so please look after him, take care of him, for I look for him with the brethren. Verse 12, as touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren, but his will was not at all to come at this time. But he will come when he shall have convenient time. Apollos, a great man, Acts 18, 19, 20. And yet Aquila and Priscilla took him under their wing and explained the gospel of grace to him. He was still very much teaching John's baptism to be baptized into water, not realizing that the, the blood of Christ is what saves us. And once you are born again, then you go into water. And uh, it's interesting that Aquila and Priscilla, this godly husband and wife team, would help Apollos. And my hypothesis, and offer this very briefly, is that Apollos might have been one of the potential authors for Hebrews. I'm not going to go beyond that. I know a lot of people think that Paul wrote uh, Hebrews, but... As touching our brother Apollos, as concerning our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren. But his will was not at all to come at this time. If there's any kind of papal infallibility in the early church, which of course I don't believe there is, you would have thought that Paul would have given an order, a papal decree to Apollos to get to Corinth along with perhaps Timothy. But you don't find it because he goes on to say, but his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have convenient time. I don't find any papal infallibility here. This was very much left up to one another's discretion. There was no lording uh, one's authority over the early church. Yes, you were told to submit to the teaching elders who labor among you, which means they work a nine-to-five job, as probably most of the uh, early church leaders did. But uh, 12 is very clear to me anyway that Apollos had great liberty, along with Timothy from 10 and 11, but it wasn't convenient for Paulus to get to Corinth at this point in time. So Paul just leaves it and uh, doesn't add any pressure to Apollos and Timotheus. And uh, for me anyway, I get the main theme from these verses anyway, is that uh, it was completely up to one's discretion whether they went to Corinth or not. 13. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men, be strong. Watch ye. That's what the Lord told us in... I think it's Mark 14, going into Mark 15. Watch ye for the Lord's return. You weren't told to watch for the Antichrist. I know this isn't in the context here. I understand that. But that term watch ye is found three or four times in the New Testament. And here, going back to uh, probably the main, well, the earlier verses and chapters would be to watch out for yourselves, watch out for deception, stand fast in their faith, stand firm, quit you like men, be strong. Because deception can take anyone, I don't care who you are. These epistles are written, really, to deal with heresy a lot of the time. And yet Paul was still alive, Peter was still alive, James and John were still alive, and yet heresy was creeping in. And yet we saw earlier on how that's what elders were ordained for, to deal with heresy, to detect it, and to deal with it. And also during this time, we've still got maybe only a third of the New Testament written and in circulation, hence why chapter 14 speaks about the prophets uh, teaching the early church, edifying the early church, because they had to add additional light to the early church. But once the, the word of God was written and put down to circulation, or was you know was, was put into circulation, the prophets ceased. 
And I mentioned that last time because people today think there are prophets who can give a word of foreknowledge. People think there are apostles who can give a word of authority. And I spoke to some Mormons this week who are very much of the belief that apostles and prophets are still in existence. And these uh, leaders, they believe, are needed to give us additional truth or to keep us in the truth. But I said, well, it says in Matthew 16, how the gates of hell won't overcome the church, how there's always been a believing remnant. So we don't really need prophets and apostles. And even if you were a prophet and an apostle, you wouldn't say you were a prophet or an apostle. You know, people say they're apostles and prophets, you know, blowing their own trumpets. But here, watch ye stand fast in the faith, quit you light, men, be strong. It's common sense, really, isn't it? Put on the full armor of God, examine yourself, walk in the spirit, not the flesh. Deny yourself, pick up your cross each and every day. Renew your mind by the reading of the word of God each and every day. Romans 12. Otherwise, you're going to become dry, you're going to backslide, you're going to fall from grace, like the Galatians. And uh, if you're not careful, you're going to end up falling out of the will of the Lord. But like I say, you can fall inboard, but you can never fall overboard. Verse 14. Let all your things be done with charity. Let everything that you do be done with charity. Whatever you do, do with charity. And that word charity is love. And I think that behind that is the word agape, which is the strong, strongest Greek word for love. John three sixteen for God so loved the world. Agape. That's the strongest word for love. And uh, when the Lord met Peter after the crucifixion, he says, do you love me more than these? And he says, Lord, you know I love you more than these. And there's two Greek words there. There's uh, agape and there's uh, a lesser Greek word, which means, Lord, I'm fond of you. And it's interesting because three times Lord, the Lord says, do you really love me? And three times Peter says, Lord, I'm fond of you. I'm fond of you. I'm fond of you. Because he knew that he couldn't love the Lord like the Lord loved him. And that goes back to eternal security as well. But charity, agape, would be the strongest word for love. And this is a sacrificial love, not just a lip service love. This is a love where you deny yourself, where you even die for yourself. You die for people who are saved. You die for people who know the Lord Jesus Christ. You die for people who are growing in grace. You die for people who are struggling. And it goes back to verses 1, 2, and 3, dealing with the struggling Christians in Israel who were under such great persecution, very much like the believing Muslims or Arabs are in parts of Palestine today. There are many saved Christians, former Muslim Arabs, if you will, that are suffering terribly under Hamas and other Islamic terrorists, and it's down to those of us which are able to support them to do so. But the hostility hasn't really gone away. I think the time's going to come where we're going to suffer terribly in the West. You know, we still have it rather easy at the moment, those of us which live in the West, but if you live in Africa, if you live in North Korea, if you live in parts of China, it's tough for you, and it's going to come to us soon. But if you're able to get by rather comfortably, if life doesn't really touch you, then something's seriously wrong. You know, if they hate you, that's a good thing. If they don't hate you, if they like you, if you can fit in with the world, if you're able to rub along with everyone, something's seriously wrong. Examine yourself. 15. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that ye submit yourselves unto such, and to everyone that helpeth with us, and laboreth. They have submitted themselves to the household of Stephanus, and it goes on to say how they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Addicted. Today it's a pretty, mm, has a negative connotation 
to be addicted to anything today, but here to be addicted to the ministry of the saints, to be out and about, looking after one another. You were told in First John that if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. And the flip side of that, of course, would be to love your brother as you would love the Lord. But those of the household of Stephanus had addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, and they were told to submit to such. And this also goes back to service. And I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in cults, and we have them in our town. The Jehovah's Witnesses are out seven days a week. They have no hobbies. They have no interests. They have no pets. They have nothing. They just give themselves wholly to their false religion. And I'm not saying that's what we have to do. I'm not saying that. But what I am interested in is how they live for their religion. And they put us to shame on many occasions. I can't think of a handful of Christians in my town that go on the streets twice a week or three times a week. But they do 12-hour shifts, six days a week, and a minor presence on a Sunday, a token presence on a Sunday. But I've spoken to these people, and they have no interest outside of Jehovah. they got zeal, but they got no truth. And I know saved people who are so worldly that when the rapture comes, God's going to have to grab them and actually root them, you know, uproot them from the ground. If you're saved, you're saved. But I say, if these false people, if this, you know, these uh, false believers, if this group of false brethren can be addicted to their ministry of the saints, why can't we do so? You know, we're not saved to live for ourselves. If we're born again, we're saved for a purpose. That's why we're here today. That's why we're going to be here for the next few days. We're not here to be, you know, enjoying ourselves. This isn't a holiday. We're here to save souls because God's going to one day say to us, how did you live once I saved you? Or who have you got with you? Who have you saved? You've been on earth for 35, 40 years. How many people have you brought to the Lord? Don't say, well, it's not my calling, Lord. Yes, it is your calling. That's why you were saved. And I think there'll be people in heaven who will come from all sorts of backgrounds, housewives, stay-at-home dads, people who just had no great responsibility in life, but they put themselves out. Anyone can do this. Anybody can put a trap or letterbox. Anybody can hold a sign up. Anybody can put a verse on a forum, on a website, on a video. And I think that's why you're told it's a terror of the Lord. It's going to be a great day when the Lord Jesus Christ judges us at the judgment seat of Christ. And I put a statement out some months ago on another study. I think it's Luke 12, how the Lord speaks about whipping those who are his. Whipping uh, brethren who weren't necessarily faithful. And I'm not going to be too dogmatic on that. But when I look at, I think it's Luke 14 or Luke 12, one of the two chapters, there's a great judgment there. Why does Paul say that the terror of the Lord is going to come upon all of us? How we will all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Thankfully, our salvation is not going to be the issue there. But if you're saved, if you're born again, if you know you're born again, you're living after the flesh, or you're not really doing anything for the Lord Jesus Christ, woe unto you. Woe unto you, because your day is coming. 17, I'm glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Cacaeus, for that which was lacking in your part, they have supplied, probably like Timothy and Apollos, faithful brethren, and they got to Corinth, and they gave them what they needed. And this goes back to servitude. This goes back to denying yourself. This goes back to really putting others first, and that's not always easy, because we are fleshly. We have the old nature and the new nature. But Paul showed it was possible, and those brave men and women in the Foxes Book of Martyrs showed it was possible. They were tortured to death, and never once did they recant, and they would have given you the clothes off their own back if it was necessary. Verse 18, For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. The church of Asia salute you, Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. 
House churches were very common in the first century, especially for the Gentile believers. The Jews had an advantage. The Jews had synagogues, and I think it's in James 1. It says, if, if a man comes into your assembly wearing a, a goodly ring, uh, you ought to give him more respect than someone who doesn't have that. And that word assembly, for memory, is synagogue. The King James translates it for assembly, but behind the AV is the word synagogue, which shows that the believing Jewish remnants had synagogues, which were converted into churches or assemblies for worship. But the Gentile believers, for the most, had one another's homes to meet in. You see in Acts 1, 2, and 3, how they went uh, from people's homes each and every day to break bread. And this husband and wife team, Aquila and Priscilla, must have been an incredible couple. They mentioned in Corinthians 16, Romans 16, and several times at the book of Acts. But they're not pastors. People say, you know, these were pastors. They're not pastors. They're not even elders. They're just leading teachers, if you will. Husband and wife team. Salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. We saw the house of Chloe from chapter 3. That had probably written to Paul, saying, Paul, there's great divisions in this part of the world. I'm not sure what the problem is here. Please get to Corinth quickly. And he spends, what, six, seven chapters pretty much taking them apart before he gets to the main theme, seven, marriage. Self-control. Denial. Don't divorce. And if you divorce, don't remarry. Stay as you are, be content. Don't go beyond what the Lord has given you. But the greatest scripture, I think, from chapter 7 was, Brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. If you came single to the Lord, remain single. If you came married, remain married. If you came to the Lord divorced, remain divorced. You know, it's not a salvation issue, but if you start messing around with the flesh, if you start remarrying, divorcing, remarrying, read chapter 16, adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God, and adulterers is simply adulterers. Multiple remarriages, and that's it. That's a potential sin that can be committed by saved people, which could result in one losing their place in the millennial kingdom. But let's move on. 20. All the brethren greet you. Greet you one another with an holy kiss. Not a French kiss. A holy kiss is simply a greeting. And go back to the first century. Understand, please, the great pressure that these people went through. Their families ostracized them like Muslims do today. Uh... Many people that come to the Lord Jesus Christ from Islamic and even Jewish backgrounds are ostracized. We met a couple a few weeks ago in our town who've got two daughters. Uh, and one daughter married a Jewish man, a very religious Jewish man of the Kabbalah. And this saved couple said that their daughters cut them off. We can't, we can't associate with you, you're unclean Gentiles. What do the Muslims call us? Kafirs. But the Jews can also be quite hostile. This daughter and her husband have cut their mother and father off. Because they are unclean Gentiles in their own mind. And they are now no longer able to see their own grandchildren. Hence why it was so important for these this early group of Christians to come together to break bread like today. To have a full meal unlike today. We don't need to have a full meal today. But in this generation they needed it because they had nothing. They had no one. They were completely ostracized. And uh, as I say, if you speak to a saved Muslim who's come from Pakistan or India or Indonesia, they know exactly what it's like to get saved. They treat him with great contempt and suspicion. This holy kiss also is probably a very innocent greeting. Our friends in the continent greet one another with a kiss. Uh, read no more into it than that, please. 21, the salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. The greeting of me, Paul, with mine own hand. Paul was almost blind towards the end of his life. 
I remember speaking to a charismatic some months ago on the streets who said that God wants you healthy and wealthy. And I said to him, what about Paul? He was almost blind before he died. What about Timothy? He had stomach ulcers. What about Trophimus? Paul couldn't heal them. They couldn't heal Paul. But here Paul's made the effort to write this with his own hand. He loved the Corinthians. He loved them as a father loves their children. And yet it would have been quite difficult for him to, to, to write it. Probably even harder to read it back. 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. This goes back to uh, chapter 12. Speaking in an unknown tongue. No man who speaks by the Holy Spirit can say Jesus is Lord. And it's quite possible, I, I cover this in chapter 12, that there are churches or people in Corinth that were meeting on a typical Lord's Day service that weren't just blabbering in tongues, but they were cursing the Lord. And I made the point at the time that Mormons speak in tongues, uh, Native Americans speak in tongues, Hollywood stars, believe it or not, speak in tongues, Catholics speak in tongues. We know an archbishop in the Catholic Church who's now uh, retired, who spoke in tongues. But Paul says, you can't speak through the Holy Spirit saying Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. I'm going to read it, I misquote it. Because I think what was happening here was such good people coming together to praise the Lord, but they're actually blaspheming the Lord. 12.3, wherefore I give you to understand that no man, doesn't say woman, that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, this, whoops, this crowd, let him be anathema maranatha. Let him be accursed, Maranatha. Could you say that to someone? Could you say, if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, Maranatha? I'm not sure I could say Could you say that? I'm not sure I could say that to someone. But Paul could because Paul was an apostle. And that goes back to the tongues. Not just people who don't believe, not just people who have yet to receive the truth. You've got to be gracious to people. You know, I wasn't saved until I was in my 20s. But if you're saved, if you're in a Christian fellowship, and you're very much in chapter... 12, verse 3, when you should really be in Galatians and Ephesians, and you're blabbering in tongues, and it's not a known language, which you find in Acts 2, then Paul says, let him be anathema, let him be accursed, maranatha. That's powerful stuff. Maranatha, Aramaic, for come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We need that. We've been on the streets for eight days now, seven, eight days now, and we've been to many towns, we've spoken to a lot of people. Many people have seen our board, and I don't know about you people, but I feel a great pressure on me when I go on the streets. I feel hostility. I feel a great sense of resistance. Maybe some others don't feel it. I feel it. And I've been saved 13 years, so I need God's grace. I need his grace to save me. I need his grace to sustain me. And I also need his grace to keep me humble. I don't get puffed up like the, the Galatians did and start messing around with Jewish feast days and trying to better myself because I could fall from grace I could backslide and at the same time I don't want to abuse my liberty in the Lord and say you know what I've been saved 13 years I know I'm saved so I'm going to live as I choose I'm going to do that and fall into this trap like the Corinthians did so I need God's grace God's unmerited favor 24 my love be with you all in Christ Jesus amen Christ Jesus his eternal uh, reference Christ Jesus whereas Jesus Christ 
is in reference to his time on the earth. He says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. What a great way to end an epistle. And his love was sincere, his love was sacrificial. And we're told by church tradition that he was beheaded uh, for his faith in Lord Jesus Christ, like these uh, Muslims are doing today around the world, ISIS. And we're told in the great tribulation, the Antichrist is going to start beheading again. And some people say, well, there you are, you see, the Antichrist is going to be uh, a Muslim. Not necessarily. Don't make that conclusion. But the concept of beheading will quite easily return in the great tribulation to those that won't take the mark of the beast. Um, and it's interesting to say that we're now seeing it regularly on the news. In fact, pre the Iraq war, I can't think of anywhere in the world, and I'm happy to be corrected, where people were being, were being beheaded regularly on the news. I can't think of anywhere. Might be wrong, but since 2003, four beheading has become widespread. Say so Al-Qaeda started doing it in Iraq. ISIS is doing it uh, in Syria and in Iraq. And unless that cancer is stopped, it's going to spread. But he says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So there you are. 24 verses. That will conclude this unscripted look at 1 Corinthians 16. And if you started with me throughout this study, hopefully you've finished with me. And above all, hopefully you've been reading along with me. And I would just ask anyone who hears this broadcast to read this epistle in your own time. Don't take my word for anything that you've heard over the last several weeks. I'm just a self-taught Bible believer. I'm not anything special. Um, saved by the grace of God. Kept saved by the grace of God. But you are told to check all things in light of Scripture. You are told to study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needed not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's why the Scripture is written for doctrine. If you get your doctrine straight, you'll be fine. If you get your doctrine all messed up, your life's going to be a mess. And you see what happens when you get into a mess. You get 16 chapters of what happens when you get into a mess. And you get six chapters of what happens when you get into legalism. Book of Galatians. So the main theme from this piece of scripture, I'll just wrap up in the last few minutes that I've got, would be to put money aside as and when you can. It's not mandatory, but it probably would have been, it would have been expected, I would think, if you could. For those that were suffering in Jerusalem, verse 3, because of the pressure that, that, that they were suffering from. And he says, when, when I come to you, I won't take the money with me. But those that you have written through letters can do so. And maybe I'll go with them up to Jerusalem. He wants to wait at Ephesus 8 until Pentecost because he was a Jew. And he got up to the temple and witnessed to the Jews about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, nine, a great door has been opened to me, but there's going to be many adversaries along the way. And you know it were. You know it was very much the case. Whipped, beaten, starved almost. And as I say, beheaded for his faith in Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy's mentioned. Apollos is mentioned. Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned. Dr. Luke is mentioned in other parts of the New Testament. And he says, whatever you do, uh, 14, make sure you do it with charity, love. Because without love, you're nothing. And that was the main thing, wasn't it, of chapter 13. If I say I can do this, if I say I can do that, if I say I can read the word of God, you know, verse by verse, if I say I can street preach, if I say I can write articles, but I've not love, I'm nothing. And that's something we, you know, we need to be careful of, because the flesh can so easily puff itself up, and you can do things through your own flesh, and burn yourself out, as we talked about a few days ago. But 22 is a, really, is a real wake-up call. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. That goes back to carnality. That goes back to speaking in tongues, blaspheming him, and probably even Galatia as well. 
if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're trying to perfect him, if you're trying to add to the cross by being a good person, by keeping the good, you know, the good Ten Commandments, by being a good law-abiding citizen, and I mean keeping the Jewish law, forget it. You've fallen from grace, you've dishonored the Lord, and he says, let him be anathema, maranatha. The grace, mercy, unmerited favor of God, our Lord, Jesus Christ be with you. Grace to be saved, grace to live each and every day, and grace to get to the judgment seat of Christ to get a full reward. And one last time, 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. And that will conclude this unscripted look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16.